Hello, I'm Terry Cooper, and I play the master in the final game. The first master I saw must have been the Deadly Assassin. Back then, I was pretty young, and I didn't know anything about the master before that. I mean, even as I try to remember it now, I mean, I have seen the show since, I've seen the episodes since, but as I try to remember it, I don't even think I, he was a Time Lord. He was just someone called the Master who was basically a zombie in a cloak. And although his mouth didn't move properly in the mask, uh, the performance by Peter Pratt was amazing. And uh, it was fun to see him later on in the same kind of condition, but played by Jeffrey Beavers just before he turned into the Anthony Ainley Master. I really liked The Deadly Assassin. I watched it again not too long ago. Still completely thrown by Tom Baker breaking the fourth wall at that point. But um, again, it was nice to see the Doctor without any companions, you know, thrown into a, a sort of a whodunit or a, a, a plot, an assassination plot um, in Gallifrey. Hello, my name is Lee Rawlings. I play Sam Jackson in the final game. And my favourite master story has to be the terror of the Autons. He's suave, he's manipulative, he's evil, he's charming, he's generally a very brilliant master. I think it's the first and the best portrayal of him in my book. Also, I was born uh, around about episode three, so I've, I've got kind of a good link with this one. Okay, so I'm going to try and answer the questions for the final game, episode 6. So, as the Master's diabolical plan reaches fruition, what are your favorite stories with the Master? Oh, man, that is an extraordinarily tough question because um, I generally don't know if there's actually one that features the Master that I don't like, aside from, like, time, flight, and maybe... Maybe Time Monster. That's it. Like, I always find that the character of the Master is one that I enjoy enough that um, even if <laughs> even if the story itself isn't like terribly terribly new or great or whatever, I end up really liking it because the Master, him or herself, always ends up elevating it. My favorite stories with the Master. Uh, well, obviously the Deadly Assassin ranks up there with them. I don't think I've seen all of Roger Delgado's episodes, um, although the more I got into doing the voice of Roger Delgado, I, I watched a few more, and um, it's impossible not to fall in love with his original portrayal of the Master. I kind of, I think I grew up with Anthony Ainley as the Master, mainly. Mainly Ainley. And I liked the way he was very, very uh, smug and um, sly like a fox, he had a very sort of confident uh, smirk about himself, and uh, I did find him really scary at the time. You know that you know the first time I'd seen properly the uh, tissue compression eliminator, and um, you know that was a really cool thing. Um, I don't, I don't really enjoy modern incarnations of the master, um, John Sims master. Uh, although John Sims is a great actor, uh, I felt he was wrong for the part. Um, he felt too young, you know, regardless of how old he was compared to other actors. He, John Sims seems like a young actor, a young guy. And the master should be, I think, an elder statesman. Regardless of comparing to the doctor, I still think the master should have been an older chap, you know, like David Warner or someone like that. The whole, uh, the red herring with um, Professor Yana didn't really do much for me. It was a little bit hammy. 
Um, and Missy was, to be honest, a slight improvement. Yes, there was the, the novelty of the master changing into a female, but um, Missy did really kind of become scary again. Because I've always found Michelle Gomez fascinating and, you know, slightly off the wall in real life. So she has that dangerous edge. Um, John Sim didn't come across as a potential psychopath, but Missy does. And although she did push the uh, the insanity angle quite far, it was in keeping with her personality. Uh, moving forward to the latest incarnation, Sasha Dewan, um, we haven't really seen too much of him, but I don't like his portrayal either. Um, I think there's this uh, this trend now to have the master really insane. And Roger Delgado's character and Anthony Ainley, they weren't that, you know, completely mad. I, they were still calculating and to a certain extent still quite friendly with the Doctor, but not like the Joker and Batman, you know. Um, I think the insane master thing uh, should be toned down a bit. We want to see a, a Moriarty rather than a Joker. Um, well, I definitely do anyway. Um, the first master story I saw was actually Deadly Assassin, and that's a strange one to come into, I think, um, for the master, because he isn't really the master. He's a, a half-baked version of, um, still equally evil and everything, but just a monster, really, isn't he, in this one? But I loved it. I loved that episode, and I really loved seeing him turning to the new master via Tremas's body in Keeper of Draken. Um, because I was young and I didn't really know any any different, and to me that he was the master, Anthony Ainley, for quite a while. So yeah, that was my first um, my first outing with the master, as it were. Um, in terms of like the first one that I saw, that was probably Terror of the Autons. Um, I don't have a good first memory of seeing that for the first time, but I'm 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 fairly certain that would have been the first one that I saw. But uh, some other Time Lords, well, I, I should have mentioned uh, Omega, uh, or Omega, or Omega, or whatever you want to call him. Um, I've seen Time Flight only once when it was aired. I don't think I've ever seen it since. Um, and although the new designed costume was quite interesting, they went for the, the HR Giga biomechanical look. Um, I can remember the Three Doctors version a lot more. Um, a classic outfit, a really manic performance underneath it all. Um, and I think that version of Omega has basically stuck with me longer than ever, any others. Uh, other Time Lords, uh, well, I don't ever recall watching anything with a meddling monk, so that's completely lost on me. And I did like the Time Lords as seen in the Patrick Troughton era. They look very futuristic in their sort of black and white outfits, uh, or whatever colour they were in black and white TV. Um, but I did like the aesthetic of the Time Lords, as we saw in The Deadly Assassin. You know, um, that set the precedent with the, the headdresses and the, the shoulder pads and all these kinds of things. Really nice, noble kind of uh, civilization. Really like that. In The Five Doctors, you had Barusa, who was Lord President, but also very corrupt. Uh, he was he played it really good, really sort of understated, but you know very focused and uh, diabolical. And um, you have people like the Castellan, who instantly comes across as unlikable and cold, um, but he was a pawn in the game. Um, I'm wondering if the um, the actor whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, his performance was meant to be that emotionless. Uh, it's just that one line that really cracks me up when they uh, Barusa says, you know, get the uh, the mind probe on him and Castellan just says, 
No, not the mind probe with zero feeling in it at all, rather than, no, not the mind probe. You know, it's just like, no. So that was uh, that was fun. Other Time Lords, uh, well, you know, we had Colin Baker briefly uh, as uh, a captain or commander whose name completely escapes me again, but he was the one who shot uh, the Doctor. So that was great. We'd love to see Colin Baker in anything. And... Um, Carrying on, you've got uh, Rassilon. Timothy Dalton uh, was named by um, David Tennant's character that, uh, at the time as Rassilon. Uh, he was a very good and very sort of uh, cold, calculating uh, Time Lord. Would like be nice to see some other Time Lords, some newer Time Lords. I, I'd even be happy to see the re return of Jenny, who is kind of a Time Lord because she's the Doctor's sort of genetic daughter, and obviously the real-life wife of David Tennant and the real-life daughter of Peter Davison. So that would have been good. I think, uh, I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, but uh, it did feel like the whole Jenny story was a potential spin-off series by Russell T. Davis because, you know, I mean, she has made appearances on Big Finish, from what I'm told. But um, it would be nice to see spin-off series or have seen a spin-off series back then when the iron was hot as it were to pick up where sarah jane adventures had left off can't think of any more rogue time lords i mean like i mentioned the meddling monk who i've got no um idea um but um i think some more time lords that travel around should do things um not so much like the doctor as renegades or runaways but more a kind of um you know, they have to visit places. That's why they have, you know, TARDISes. They have to visit places and times to kind of uh, keep track on things, like sort of galactic police in a way. So that'd be quite nice. Um, yeah, so that's that's really it. Um, my favourite stories of the Master, um, obviously Deadly Assassin. Uh, Keeper of Trakham was great because you finally get to see a revitalised Master in the form of Anthony Ainley. And that led to a, a, a good run. And The Five Doctors is... is one of my favourite stories. It's full of holes and inconsistencies and slightly cheap production values, but it's still one of my favourite stories I always go back to. I did forget briefly the uh, the Eric Roberts master from the TV movie. Um, I kind of have problems with it. Um, he, it was a good performance. He was, again, playing it calculating and cold. Um, he wasn't playing it too crazy, too mad. Uh, I didn't understand where the whole reptilian snake kind of form came from and the, the snake eyes and all this kind of thing but um i did like the nod to the old-fashioned costume at the end where he appears on the steps with the, the big collar and everything else but he did kind of go a little bit camp with it you know i always dress for the occasion and this kind of thing um, but he was a quite scary uh, master um a friend of mine in finland has recently uh, done some photography working with eric roberts and uh I really hope he remembered to get Eric Roberts' autograph for me, because I did ask him for it. So if you're listening, <laughs> where's my autograph of Eric Roberts? Yeah, so that that's all I know about um, Time Lords, uh, um, which admittedly isn't much. Um, for someone who's a Doctor Who fan, um, the final game has definitely um, woken me up to a lot of areas of Doctor Who and characters, etc., that I wasn't particularly aware of in the past, so it's nice to sort of... Uh, see it from a different angle, especially now that, um, you know, I'm currently portraying the master. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, 
it's interesting to see what's coming up. And uh, if you're listening to this, you know, thank you to everyone who's been listening to the final game and commenting on YouTube and everywhere else. Uh, I hope you like the performances. I, I get a massive kick out of listening to them myself, not my own performances, but Marshall as the doctor and uh, everyone else, you know, from uh, the Brigadier and Benton and Joe and Sarah and everyone else. Absolutely fantastic. I uh, can't wait for you guys to finally listen to episode seven. Uh, be interested to see what you think. So uh, thanks for that. And that is me, Terry Cooper, a.k.a. Roger Delgado's master, signing out. Time Lords in general, well, my feelings are mixed. Some stories are great, some stories are all right, and some stories are pretty bad. Um, I really like the Timeless Children and the fact that they've been expanded outwards with lots of uh, checkered history involving Jodie Whittaker's character. We can explore that now, can't we, in the future, which is great. And I think that's what they are. It's kind of like this springboard for stories that can be um, explored around the Doctor's past, um, as opposed to the actual race themselves which i don't think are that fascinating um also they don't really make much sense but luckily we've got people like stephen moffat and uh et al to sew up the holes uh, <laughs> that have been made from the past but yeah I, I do like the time lords um around i just didn't miss them when they went so that's my opinion of the time lords naughty boys and girls they are as we meet some other time lords what are your thoughts on gallifrey and other rogue time lords that we've met throughout the series oh that's a really good one um okay so in my opinion this may be a little bit controversial but i don't think we've seen enough <laughs> um i am a sucker for any kind of gallifrey lore i love stuff like uh the five doctors because of that i love um let's see what's uh, the three doctors because of it Invasion of Time is fantastic. I like The Deadly Assassin. I even love uh, Zagreus with all of my heart because of how deep it gets into Gallifrey and lore. Um, so I think it would be great, actually, to have uh, more rogue time lords that we meet in various uh, places and states and, and so forth, especially on uh, the TV series. Because right now, the revived TV series has only ever featured... Uh, the Doctor, obviously, and the Master Missy. We, we've never had an encounter with, say, the Ronnie or the Meddling Monk. Um, and I think that would add a, a nice uh, dimension to sorting out... Um, sorting out some of the... Well, okay, let me rephrase that. I, th I think that would go really well with the feel of the current era as looking back in order to look forward. Like, we look back to the to the past at, to get a new vision for what the future holds for us. And that's just kind of a fancy way for me to say that, you know, I'd really, really love to see Jody's Doctor go against the meddling monk. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's that's sort of my, my dream episode, is to have the 13th Doctor face off against uh, the, the, the meddling monk him or herself. Oh, that's true! We could have the meddling nun! That'd be amazing. Don French as the meddling nun, Chris Chibnall, now. Well, good evening once again. This is Chris McKeon recording my questions and answers for the final game, Confidential Part 6. Uh, it is 10.15 p.m. on Thursday, the 14th of May, 2020. And uh, once again, I'm reading from the questions that Mark McManus um, 
Prime Minister Jeremy Thorpe from the final game has provided me uh, for his Trap One uh, Doctor Who podcast. And uh, since episode six is largely dealing with the culmination of the Master's uh, diabolical plan, as Mark um, calls it in his brief <laughs> for the questions, uh, thank you, Mark, I like this, um, uh, I'm happy to, uh, for that reason, d talk about the Master again. I always like talking about the Master as a villain. And um, as Mark prefaces the first question, as the Master's diabolical plan reaches fruition, and here comes the first question, what are your favorite stories with the Master? Hmm. Well, I'm going to be fairly predictable, as people have heard me and know me a little bit by now, that um, uh, I'm, it's very difficult to um, find a favorite story. Um, so I'll pick a few, and, and the reasons why it's hard to find a favorite story, of course, singular, is because just like with the Doctors or the Masters, it's very hard to find a favorite one for me. Others can, very easily. I Maybe it's out of a sense of disloyalty to certain versions of the character, but, but in re all reality, I really enjoy these characters so much, um, I have... It's very hard to find a favorite. Um, but also, for anyone that knows me, I am a, a fan who holds to the the belief that the uh, war chief in the war games is the master. So for this reason, um, I will start with um, as far back as I can go, and I will start with the war games. I have said before that the war games is likely the first Doctor story that I ever saw, but at such a early, early, early age that I probably didn't understand that it was Doctor Who, but I'm very cer fairly certain that that was the first story that I ever saw was the war games. Um... And I've seen it since, and very much enjoyed it. And and when I saw it again, for the first time, understanding that it was um, that it was a Doctor Who story, um, having already seen um, the classic series Master Stories, when I watched um, when I watched the War Games. Um, for the quote-unquote second time. I was struck watching it and seeing the war chief that I thought, goodness, this is the master. It's the master. And then, you know, I did my research and I realized, well, okay, officially it's, well, it's not. He's not. It's this guy called the war chief. But I just, a few things came into play. The scope and the scale of the story. Um, then, at that time, the second longest uh, Doctor Who story, um, at, um, and still one of the longest ones. Um, I think it's probably the third longest now. And still second, at least in the classic series, if you consider the Trial of a Time Lord as four separate stories. Even though it's listed as 14 episodes. Um, but not just its scope and, the, and its scale for the, the war games, but for the fact that it's such a monumental event, the introduction of the Time Lords... The departure of the second Doctor at the time meant to be his regeneration, of course. Never mind that it wasn't called regeneration at the time, but that we don't see the regeneration. And, um, never mind season 6B, which developed some 15 years later. Um, but, um, for me, The War Games is such a powerful story with 
the revelations that it shows of the Doctor and his history, that for me, considering that so many other landmark events in Doctor Who involve the Master, in a logical sense, I thought, well, this one is one of those first stories that really would involve the Master. And it happens to involve a Time Lord who looks really just like the Master, and acts just like the Master, uh, at least to me and many others, I think. And and therefore I thought to myself, yeah, this, this guy's the Master. There, and I might as well talk for a moment about um, some interesting things about the objections to the War Chief being the Master. I imagine one of those objections is um, lies with the fact that since Roger Delgado was the first actor to play the Master officially in, um, and chronologically in Doctor Who, that a lot of people, rightfully so, and I know for a fact, having talked to many fans, for a lot of people, the, um, the Master is Roger Delgado, and, and not just simply that Roger Delgado played him in the John Pertwee era, but a lot of people that I've known have looking at the have looking excuse me have seen and looked at the lo, uh, the logic of of the character and his progression and have noted that since this, the television series never says that the version of the master is played by Peter Pratt and um, Jeffrey Beavers in the Tom Baker era since that version of the master was never identified as um, an incarnation other than Roger Delgado. Um, meaning that Roger Delgado's master on screen is never identified as having regenerated. Um, that a lot of people would feel that the, the master, as shown in the Tom Baker years, is Roger Delgado's master, just simply terribly decayed. And then, since he steals Tremas's body in The Keeper of Trocken and becomes the Antony Ainley master, especially with the later revelation in the audio's uh, the uh, Seventh Doctor audio dust breeding came out in 2001, some 20 years after The Keeper of Trocken, in which it revealed that through the return of the Jeffrey Beaver's master, the revelation was that Jeffrey Beaver's master never regenerated or changed as some process as Anthony Ailey's master and the Five Doctors indicated that it was not exactly a regeneration uh, that produced his version of the master. What you discover since Jeffrey Beaver's master was always there, but in some way pocketed or hidden within um, Anthony Ailey's form, Tremas's form, um, it casts an interesting light on those later masters. So for that reason, as, as being perhaps covers for the Beaver's master, certainly, who is the same as the Pratt master, and who, therefore, is very possibly the same as the Delgado Master. So for a lot of people, the master of the classic series is Delgado, and only Delgado. And um, there's also the fact that in the... Um, there's a out-of-print novel now, but it's actually one of the few virgin novels that I have actually read. I have a copy of this. It's called The Dark Path by the author David A. McKinty. Uh who is one of the foremost, I would say, authorities on the the master of, of, of that era, and probably any era of Doctor Who, but he wrote some some very notable landmark stories with the master, novels in the 1990s. Um, and he was esteemed amongst 
having talked to some of the other authors at that time, he was esteemed amongst his peers, meaning the authors of the 1990s, of the Wilderness Years, as being one of the best authors to write, uh, if not maybe the best author to write about the Master, because he, probably like me and others, um, was fairly obsessed with the character, and in a good way, meaning that he really understood the character through and through and, and, and enjoyed, uh, enjoyed thoroughly the Master. Um, and he is, and David McKinty is an author whose opinion I, I, um, I very much respect. Uh, for example, and other, and other things, I remember he, he, long ago he made a little post on, on one of these Doctor Who forums talking about, um, the, like, something like, he and I share definitely some opinions and, and agree with him. Not, probably not in everything, but in this I agree with him. For example, why, showing how I notice his opinion, which was that, um, he, commented on Star Wars Episode One, saying that he, The Phantom Menace, saying that it was a wonderful film. Um, and I should preface this by saying I'm not setting him up in a sense of, because I know a lot of the Star Wars prequels are such that a lot of people, for various reasons, don't like them. I will preface this, therefore, by saying that I love the prequels. And so does David M. McKinty, or at least he really loves Episode One. He said there, that's a film that is such a rich film, and on so many narrative levels, so many things are happening that that it is it is an incredible film. He were, I can remember that he was honestly raving about Star Wars Episode One, saying that it was one of the best films he had ever seen, and for many many deep levels and reasons. And I say that to give an insight to the, the mind of David A. McKinty and that he clearly, um, at least from my perspective, um, when he identifies something in a character, he clearly studies it throughout, studies it in his mind. And so he was someone that has really studied the character of the Master. And one of the reasons, again, why people perhaps disavow the idea of the War Chief being the Master is they point to David's um, novel, The Dark Path, which is a second Doctor novel, and I, I didn't buy the story in 1997. I bought it some year, at a bookshop um, some years later, happened to find a copy. I got very lucky because it was out of print by then. Um, but, I, 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 but I got it and enjoyed it. Um, and, and it features this character called Cochet, who's meant to be the master. And on the cover of the book, um, the, um, the cover depicts... Patrick Troughton's Doctor, so his likeness, and Cochet uh, in the likeness of Roger Delgado. So a lot of people understandably pointed at that and say, well, look, that's Delgado's master. The irony of all that, and the, and the, the idea, therefore, was, see, David and McKinty says they're not the same time. Well, the irony is David, David has on several occasions in forums said that he thinks that the war chief is the master and had another novel called Time or Exodus by Terrence Sticks not been published some years earlier, I think in 1991, um, had that not occurred, and therefore, and, and Time of Rexus features a, the war chief, uh, calling himself the war chief and such. Um, had that novel not been written, Davis has, has outright said that Cochet would have been featured uh, clearly as not Roger Delgado's master, meaning not with his likeness, his face, and Cochet would have been a, a, an off-screen on untelevised incarnation, the master, or at least um, of this Time Lord, and he would have regenerated into Edward Brayshaw's war chief, or Edward Brayshaw, Edward Brayshaw's character from the the war games, and therefore he would have established that they were the same Time Lord. And so I should point to Time of Exodus. I have not read Time of Exodus, but I have uh, not all the way through, but I have uh, I have seen it, and I have 
read the relevant portions of it, featuring the the, uh, the war chief and such, um, as then called Professor uh, Kriegsleiter, which is German for it's cl as close as probably you can get to war chief, but it's war leader. But even so, um, essentially the featuring the war chief in pre World War II Germany. And um, at no point in that book does it ever say that he's not the master. I know I'm splitting hairs, but I, but I want to see, well, do they ever me mention the master? Because it's said after survival, and he should know, she knows the master by that point. It never says that he's the master, uh, not the master. It never mentions the master at all. At the time, I imagine, that the idea of out-of-order stories with the master, a particular doctor and then an earlier master, were not really prevalent or, con or, um, or common. But these, and so that would, as, as an argument to say, well, it could just be the Seventh Doctor meeting an earlier version of the Master. Well, that wasn't a very easy or defensible argument at the time, with, if you go by the rules of the series and the laws of time and such. The first law of time is shown in, like, the Three Doctors. However, considering what Big Finish, uh, its out recent, more recent output of stories with the Master, and you consider things like well, the most recent story that featured the Master is something called uh, The Psychic Circus, which is a Seventh Doctor audio um, and a prequel to The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, um, featuring the Master as played by um, uh, James Dreyfus, whom the First Doctor audio Destination Wars identifies as, or at least strongly implies that he is the first Master, like the first incarnation of the Master. So clearly there's some out-of-order... <laughs> There is there is definitely some out of order meetings happening. I think I have not heard that audio, but I talked to someone who has heard it and said that the doctor explicitly says that he's crossing his own timeline. So there's an out of order quality happening there. Also, other examples, oh, and you will obey me, or the uh, vampire of the mind with the fifth and sixth doctors meeting out of order versions of the master Jeffrey Beavers and um, Alex McQueen. So all this I talk about not to go on too much of a tangent, but to say that. Previous arguments against the idea of the war chief being the master ha um, are not so ironclad and st uh, etched in stone. Ironclad and stone etched, um, and and I, there are other avenues I could talk about. The the war king from the faction paradox audios by Lawrence Miles is intended to be the master. Um, that's a certainty. So Lawrence Miles certainly thinks that the war chief is the master. Uh, Malcolm Hulk, who co-wrote um, the War Games when he wrote um, the novelization for the Calling in Space, the, which is called the Doomsday Weapon, um, in a prologue to that story, a couple two Time Lord archivists are, are talking to one another, and and the junior archivist asks the uh, elder archivist about the Doctor and Master's history, and the elder archivist proceeds to exp uh, relate the events um, surrounding the war games. So I think it's very clear that the man who wrote the um, the man who wrote the story f featuring the war chief, the war games, consider them to be the same Time Lord. Terrence Sticks, of course, also wrote that story, and I, he, I've heard that he has said on occasion he didn't think that they were the same Time Lord, but what I, and I don't discount him, what I am saying is, um, his is not the only opinion stated on the matter. Others have said that believe that Robert Holmes, who had written for the Master, of course, in Terror of the Autumn and such, had felt that they, he was also the War Games. I, I haven't been able, the War Chief, I should say, I haven't been able to confirm this. But even so, all it takes is someone to write the story. 
Um, and so I talk about that simply because I really enjoy the idea, no matter what, that the master, that I, should, I should say that each doctor should have, in my opinion, a story with the master. It's one of the, if you need a, a box checking event, I think it's one of those box checking events that each doctor should have. And although you could point to other stories in the canon of Doctor Who, I feature the second Doctor and the Master together. I mentioned the Dark Path already. There's an audio that just came out called um, The Home Guard um, by Simon Guerrier um, and such. And there are some others. There's a short story called The Nameless City that was released as part for the 50th anniversary that features the Master with the second Doctor, although they never meet. He meets th this character called Thascalos, which is one of the the um, nicknames for the master, or at least aliases, excuse me, that the master uses in the Time Monsters, the same one. So the implication is it's the master. Jamie meets this this character, strongly implied to be the master, and the doctor reacts and says, oh, it's probably the master. But he doesn't say the master, of course. He just says someone that I thought was long dead. So it, when it comes to the second Doctor's era and the master, there are several, it's interesting, conflicting little viewpoints of where, who the, not so much who the master is, but what is his condition. <laughs> And which version he is. It's um, because it's 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 prior to the the master's first official appearance. So I've I've always been fascinated by what by the idea of what was the master doing in the Troughton era. And so anything could suffice as long as you get a story out there. But for me, nothing can quite match the idea of something from the era produced in the era. Um. And so for me, the best way to do that is a, a television story from the 1960s. And the best one that can fit that bill of the Doctor and the Master in the Second Doctor's era is the War Games. A bearded Time Lord with dark hair and a Nehru jacket. <laughs> Very similar to how Roger, Del um, Roger Delgado's Master character would be a year and a half later. So yes, I count the, the War Chief as the Master, most certainly. And I count the War Games as a story with the Master. It's uh, vital. Just watch episode 8 of that story. See how much you gain uh, learning about the, the Doctor and, uh, and I, I also argue, the Master, in the scenes where they, they speak to each other. And the, I'll call him the Master. The Master says, you may have changed your appearance, but you know, I know who you are. And the Doctor says, and do, oh, do you? Your machine is a TARDIS. You're too familiar with his controls to be a stranger. It's wonderful. Um... And then, of course, the statement, we were both Time Lords, and we both decided to leave our race. And also the statement just before that, we were we are two of a kind. So the, the way that the as Edward Brayshaw relates to Troughton in that story is far too similar, far too um, aligned with how the Doctor and the Master in later years align and refer to one another. It's far too close to ignore, at least the possibility that there's some... There's some... Um, um, Resonance, some familiarity. Some have said, "Well, the Doctor and the Master, the War Chief, excuse me, don't know each other." I, I sincerely doubt that, given the dialogue. I don't dismiss the the idea out completely, but I would have to be convinced, watching the television story, that someone would have to point something to me and say, "Okay." And I've watched it a few times. Someone would have to someone would have to point to the, some nuance or inflection or dialogue that I haven't maybe noticed and say, hey, okay, that shows they don't know each other. I'm, and, and being very honest, I think that's, that comes out of a misunderstanding of the, of the, of the nature of the characters. They clearly know each other. Oh, in fact, I, 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 I'm just going to say it. They know each other. There's no way around it. They recognize each other. And just a recognition moment in, in part, um, 
think it's part four, episode four of that story. It's wonderful. So, that's one story that I like. I'll go by Doctors then. Uh, stories with the Master. Third Doctor and the Master. Um, I love Terry the Autons. It's a wonderful way to introduce the Master uh, in that era. Um, any of the stories really feature the Master, because there are not so many of them that you can't count them. Um, I'll just name them. Terror of the Autons, Mind of Evil, Claws of Axis, Colony in Space, The Daemons, The Sea Devils, um, The Time Monster, and Frontier in Space. Those eight. And of course now the final game. Um, that's a little self-serving, of course, but I really enjoy it, um, seeing it coming to fruition now. If I were to point to any few subset of those stories, that would, I would say are very good. Um, Terror of the Autons, Mind of Evil, I think, as well. Um, Claws of Axis, I think, for, for the the different interaction of the Doctor and the Master having to work together. The Daemons, I think, is really wonderful. Um, I really like the Time Monster, too. I always feel slightly let down whenever you have a story where the Master only shows up towards the end, like Calling in Space or Frontier in Space, the in-space stories, which are both six-part stories, and the Master doesn't show up until about halfway through. So, you're always... It's certainly in the case of Calling in Space, since the Master is mentioned right at the start of the first part, but you don't see him until part four. I always feel like, oh, where's the Master? Why can't we get the Master to be hiding somewhere and causing causing trouble off-screen somewhere, or at least uh, a side story where maybe he's landed in the wrong part of the of the planet and he's he's beating up the colonists in another, on another part of the... on the south pole of the planet or something. I don't know, but... Um, I really, really enjoyed the pervasiveness of Delgado's master throughout the Pertuiar. It really makes me wish that he had shown up in Season 7. Um, very much so. In fact, I wrote a... To show you how much I wish this were the case, I wrote a, a short story called um, Third Eye View, which is a story featuring the master set during the Silurians. Um which is based off the fact that when the Doctor goes to Professor Quinn's house in episode three of that story, he notices a, a, a lovely grandfather clock. And of course, the Master's TARDIS is on occasion taking the form of a grandfather clock. It doesn't have to take that form. But I just thought, oh, why not? And it, as a way to explain why the Silurian in that story kills Dr. Quinn off screen. Um, some of its actions are not necessarily contradictory, but they are rather extreme compared to what you see on screen. Um, and so I have that the master hypnotizes the Silurian, that Silurian, to kill Dr. Quinn to exacerbate and make worse the, the relations between the humans and the, uh, and the Silurians. Uh, now why doesn't he face the, ma the doctor? Well, that's a very good question. I have to adhere to continuity. <laughs> um, but I, I, if I were to point to, if I were to point to one story that I enjoy probably of, of those it's hard to say because I, uh, as much as I love the easy answer is something like Terror of the Autons, but as much as I love Terror of the Autons, the Doctor and the Master don't meet much in that story. They only meet until about halfway through part four. Then they're pretty much joined at the hip, but even so, they, you, you have a lot of wonderful third Doctor moments, a lot of wonderful Roger Delgado Master moments, but very few comparatively third Doctor Master moments. Um... Oh, I'm trying to think of a story then. I'm going to try to think of a story from that era, the Third Doctor's era, where those two um, actually, you know, are together throughout most of it. Uh, well, 
being very honest, that probably particular honor would probably then go to something like, believe it or not, probably Frontier in Space. Once the Master shows up, the Doctor and the Master are together a whole lot. He might not show up until part three, episode three of that story, a six-part story, but he's, once he does, he and the Doctor are, they kind of meet, he's there in part three, and then they kind of meet it in part four, and then for the next three episodes, Roger Degano's last three episodes, it makes up for the fact that they are together pretty much, they're joined at the hip, pretty much. So I would say if you want to see a lot of good on-screen together, third Doctor Master action, go to Delgado's last story, uh, Frontier in Space. It's wonderful. And it also shows the the menace of Roger Delgado's master, especially when he's with Joe. Um, when I, when I pre- was preparing to write the final game, uh, I, I decided to re-watch the master stories of, of Delgado's era. But but because uh, because there were so many other characters I wanted to use and, and refresh my understanding of them, such as Lee Shaw or uh, Joe Grant and such, I just resolved to watch the whole and, and the Brigadier and such. I just resolved to watch all of the uh, all of the um, Pertwee era, except for Plan the Spiders. Nothing against that story, but I thought I don't want to be in the mindset of anything after the final game's placement. So I watched everything from Spirit from Space to the Monster of Peladon, and then I wrote the scripts for the final game. When I watched Frontier in Space, um, the thing about that story is, I, I of course I'm watching that shortly after watching ta- the Time Monster, and I was struck by, as much as the Time Monster has kind of a, somewhat of a divided opinion amongst fans, everyone's happy to see Roger Elgato, but some people think the story is itself a little maybe bonkers, or, excuse me, or perhaps um, the lower budget maybe shows a little bit, I don't know. But the Time Monster is not a, not necessarily a fan favorite in terms of the quality of the story or how esteemed the story is. Um, there, there, there's, there's a um, amongst fans that I've known, there has been a sense of so bad it's good. I don't think it's a bad story at all, but but it's not um, a highly esteemed um, a story for John Pertwee's Doctor. But I was struck by the scale of the story. I've mentioned scale before in reference to the um, war games. Um, I was struck by the scale of the story and the scope of the story. You know, you're de- the Doctor's dealing with the Master, but you're also dealing with time travel across different time zones and eras and, and a powerful ta- time being in Kronos, so then introducing the Chromovores, their one-time appearance on screen. Um, and in most other media, there aren't too many other stories with them, but... Um, but those, but a real sense of danger, and and what really struck me is had the ending of the time monster been a little different, had Kronos said, "Doctor, I will hold the the master here in torment forever," and the doctor said, "Okay," and you see, and imagine how the story would have been, what the master would be now, had the master simply disappeared. At the end of the story, he's pleading with the doctor, "No, doctor, don't do this. Spare me, save me," and then you see Delgado slowly disappear into time or something. That could have easily been the end for the Master's character. Um, a two-year arc. But they didn't. The Master escapes. The Doctor shows mercy, and then the Master escapes. Um, and therefore, he, then he returns in Frontier in Space. So watching that, Frontier in Space, after the Time Monster, I was struck by the, fa- struck by the fact that if you bookend Frontier in Space with the Time Monster and the final game, you have two, sto- you have two other stories with 
much, much larger scope and scale um, and stakes, much higher stakes than the middle story, Frontier in Space. Which is true, because comparatively, you go from trying to capture and control a time monster, the Chromobor, Cronus, to an, uh, the, the enslavement of the Daleks and the changing of a timeline, and since this is 4 part 6, the fact that that timeline is now anchored to the Master's life force, therefore all of reality is conforming to his will. That really uh, are some very high stakes. Compare that to a war between Earth and Draconia, that will involve the Daleks, of course, but even so, it's simply a war, a terrible war. Some pretty high stakes, but also it's in the future. And so any story set in the future is going to have a little less impact, you could argue, for the viewer, because it's not in the here and now. It, it's, it wouldn't be them. In, a, in another reality, it wouldn't be the people that are running from the, from the Dalek saucer, beneath the Dalek saucer, firing energy blasts, or running from the Daleks. It, it, wouldn't, it couldn't be them, the viewer, because it's not their time. Any story set in the past or the future, compared to whenever that story is made, um, it's a little bit different. It's scary, too. But even so, there's something immediate about watching something in the here and now, the unit years and such. But what makes up for that lack of that lack of a larger scale, not a lack, but that, that sm the more underscaled scope of Frontier in Space is the performance of Roger Delgado in any scene he has, but certainly in my opinion how he's dealing with the Doctor, but also how he deals with Joe Grant. Um, there's a personal element to their relationship because he hypnotizes Joe and, and um, force, forces her to become an assassin against the Doctor way back in Terror of the Autons. By the time you get to the frontier in space, you have a nice little kind of return to that moment. So, so the Master and Joe, their character arc gets to complete because the Master once again tries to hypnotize Joe, but she has found, through help from the Doctor, ways to overcome uh, the Master's hypnotism. Although, in my opinion watching Delgado's performance, and I'll elaborate on this in a moment, if you watch Delgado's performance after she's beaten him, so to speak, he's not a... I don't think he's very angry. I think he's... he's, uh, he's joking. Not joking, but joking with himself. Leading her into a false sense of security. Oh, you've beaten my hypnotic powers, and now you've beaten my uh, fear machine. Oh, well, you're too strong for me. And then he allows her to escape and then send a signal and all that stuff, and lure the Doctor to, to their planet, but the planet of the Ogrons. But what you watch that scene with Delgado, where he's taunting Katie Manning, he's taunting Joe Grant, and the way he's filmed, the lighting is, fair, is fairly dark, not super dark, but it's dark enough, but whoever filmed that did a very good job, because when Delgado is taunting um, Joe, and he's turned away from her, his face is in, sh is in almost total shadow. There is a very scary menace to that, this character where you, you almost feel as if, as if it's true what Je Jeffrey, in a more physical sense, what, how Jeffrey Beavers, in a, in, a, in a documentary, how he describes his version of the Master, as the Master stripped of any handsome, attractive qualities and just what's left is the rage and, and the des desperation. Um, you can almost believe that that there's 
almost another layer to the master, the Delgado master, hidden beneath, under, beneath his skin, so to speak. And that version of the master is rising to the surface in how he's treating Joe Grant. Um, you don't necessarily think they would ever beat her or anything physically, but mentally, certainly, emotionally, absolutely. And there is something quite scary to the performance. It's a tour de force by Roger Delgado. Um, in his final moments as the master, because that's the last, the cliffhanger to part five and such and leading into part six, some of his last scenes as the master was wonderful. It was, it was in a way very hard to watch. Um, but also very, very hard in a sense of, you know, you know, a sense of loss and missing the man and missing the character. Um, I had mentioned, I've mentioned already in these interviews that one of the more sobering moments for me personally in real life was discovering that Roger Delgado had no children and therefore no posterity. Um, he had been married twice, but he had no children with both of his wives. And so, because I had entertained the idea of maybe somehow delivering this story, the final game, to them, to his posterity, who's by now would be probably his grandchildren, great-grandchildren or such. Um, possibly children, but even so. Somehow getting in contact with his family and saying, here's, here's a little tribute to your, to your grandfather, your father your great-grandfather, such, whatever. And so, having learned that while I'm watching the episodes and then getting to the end, Frontier in Space, and realizing this is, this is the end of the character, at least this time I'm watching it, and then all, but then for the first time watching it, knowing, you know, there's no, there are no Delgados left. It was a very sad thing, but it, you're just simply, that's the, very, the bitter part of it, but the sweet part is saying, yes, but we will always remember this Delgado. This Roger Delgado, this man, and what he left to the world, and and to literature, and to and to theater, and and to people, wonderful, well done, well done, Roger. Um. So I, I think I'm going to point to Frontier in Space for maybe a favorite third Doctor Master story. For the fourth Doctor, well, it's a lot easier because you only have three. Um, um. And it's very interesting. Because in all three of those stories, funny enough, uh, the Doctor and the Master have very little screen time together. Um, and in the case of the latter two, I'm talking about, you have the Deadly Assassin, the Keeper, Trocken, and Logopolis. In the later two, the Master himself it doesn't have very much screen time, especially in Keeper of Trocken. Um... And therefore, except for a few moments, maybe at the most a couple minutes, and I really mean maybe two or three minutes, you really realize that even on screen, Jeffrey Beaver's version of the Master is, all, is almost purely an audio master. He, Beaver's is almost purely audio, even on screen, even in the, that television episode, because in the first two episodes, he's totally audio. Well, well that's not quite true. He's totally audio in the first episode. He's... All, Totally audio in the second, except for one. I think one scene where you see inside, you see his hand, where he's at at, at the com at the uh, communications table. And then in part three, you see his face for maybe about a quarter second, where he says, "At last, I am free." Um, the, towards the end of the episode, you see his face, but probably only for a couple frames, a few frames, not more than. It might not be a quarter second; it might be about a, maybe two seconds or something, but it's very brief. And then you see him with the Doctor at the end of part four. 
again for maybe only co- collectively maybe two minutes and then of course his rejuvenation whatever you want to call it um, into the, the Ainley Master who himself is only on screen for about a moment um, and even Legopolis four part story in the first two parts Ainley you only hear his laughter it's not until part three that he shows up and even then he's mostly with Nyssa uh, or the monitor and only meets up with the Doctor in the last maybe five minutes, maybe a little bit more, of that episode. The only point where you have good, I mean, actual Doctor-Master interaction is Tom Baker's last episode ever, at least on screen. Very interesting how the Master is a very shadowy character, so therefore I have always been fascinated with the idea of exploring the fourth Doctor and the Master. Um... And now I'm, I'm not going to take up too long, but I'm, 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 I'm wondering how much I should reveal about the future plans, but I might as well, because people know about it. Um, I might as well take a moment to say that I will be exploring it with um, some future audios. We have a, a planned trilogy for the fourth Doctor and the, and the Roger Delgado Master. By the time that anyone hears this, I think that... Um, well, part seven of the final game will be released. I won't spoil a part seven, what happens in that story. But I think given the Masters in later stories with later Doctors, I think people can be fairly well assured that I'm not going to ignore later continuity. The final game fits nicely within the whole of Doctor Who, not just simply the Pertwee era. So, well, the Masters likely to survive. <laughs> um, but I will be exploring that. This is, I'm not going to talk about at this stage because the scripts have been written mostly but I'm not going to talk about how we're going to involve or explore the master of that the Philip Hinchcliffe era with Sarah Jane and such but suffice to say that the fact that I am doing this I think might show indicate how much I I have been very interested to the extreme with the idea of exploring the character of the Doctor and the Master, especially in eras, across, across Doctor Who, but especially in eras where the Master is not present. I've said before that you can tend to fairly easily you know, drop the Master into, into most eras of Doctor Who, in fact, if any, probably any, and the Master will be there. And that's true now. But it's true a little... It's a little truer now, thanks to the Big Finish audios, because... In many eras in which the Master has not appeared on screen, they have featured him, particularly in the Tom Baker era. Um, when you think about the Master in the classic era, there are really only two Doctors where you could say he's fairly pervasive, and those are John Pertwee and Peter Davison. Um, both have quite a number of stories with the Master. And, um, and, and stories where the Doctor and the Master excuse me, interact a lot and you really get a sense of who they are. Those really are the only two. Um, I would say the only other one that probably had, the only one, other one in the, in the new series that has that many stories is Peter Capaldi. So the three Doctors, really, that have multiple stories with the Master, um, and I mean more than two or three, because um, Tennant has a few, but only really a couple, um, are... are John Pertwee, Peter Davison, and Peter Capaldi. Well, 
Tom Baker, despite not having many, his stories have, with the Master have tend to be quite big events. And so I'm, I should mention the elephant in the room, then, which is the Deadly Assassin. I would definitely, and I definitely point to that one as probably my, the best of the uh, the in terms of again scope and scale. I'm looking really scope and scale in certain ways. Um, the um, or or just the the performance of the actor. Uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to that one for the Tom Baker years, just because it's it really reevaluates um, the Time Lords. So we're circling back to the Time Lords, as we do in the de in the War Games. Um, that you could argue, in my opinion, that there's a, a kind of a loose trilogy of Time Lord stories, um, and I'll get back to this in a moment. But Time Lord stories in 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 that era, so the War Games. Uh, for the for those doctors, kind of for the earliest earlier doctors, where you can have Gallifrey stories, Troughton, Pertwee, Tom Baker, and those are the War Games, the Three Doctors, and the Deadly Assassin. Well, the Master's not involved in the war, in the Three Doctors, but I feel and I but I definitely feel that he's involved in the War Games. Uh, but he's certainly around for the um, Deadly Assassin, and he, that story. Oh, you, I could talk forever about that one, uh, so I won't. <laughs> Because there are other things I'm talking about, but suffice to say that that story for someone watching like myself, watching, going back a long time ago now to watching Doctor Who, and then you're used to Roger Elgato, and then he disappears, and you wonder where he is, and then you get the Master back, and then he looks like how he does in in the Deadly Assassin, and you wonder what in the world has happened. It is a paradigm shift until you've as I did, find out what in the world happened. If, it's, if you haven't read up on the story, but you just are watching the episodes and taking them as they are, a theatrical performance. It is a paradigm shift and a half watching The Deadly Assassin because the Master looks and sounds and acts totally differently. He's completely different to Roger Delgado's Master. It doesn't make the idea that that Peter Pratt's version of the Master is, is Roger Delgado it doesn't make that idea ludicrous, but it makes it thematically and theatrically, in my opinion, very, um, very, 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 um, how do I say it? Very abstract, a very abstract um, relationship, one that's more than ripe or rich, but, but, but in a way almost dying of, of, of theatrical thirst, <laughs> of, uh, of uh, uh, dying for the chance to, to have a theatrical narrative connection. You go from Frontier in Space to de The Deadly Assassin, and it is almost not the same character. But you're told that it's the Master, and he is. But you're left wondering, how in the world, how, how has this possibly happened? And it's still something that hasn't exactly, you know, in some forms, yes, but it's still something that has some, it's still an event in Doctor Who that has, um, that, um, hasn't been fully, in my opinion, explored, um, narratively. But The Deadly Assassin's wonderful, and I think that, it, again, like Terror of the Autons, it follows a very similar, uh, structural pattern, even the point with the Master in both stories, um, Delgado and Pratt smash their hand through a glass case to get something important. <laughs> uh, in Terra the Autons, Delgado smashes a casing and gets the nesting energy sphere. In The Deadly Assassin, Pratt smashes a 
glass case to get the um, the uh, the presidential rod or the rod of Rassilon to open the and interface into the Eye of Harmony. Um, and of course, both stories are written by Robert Holmes. I don't know if that glass smashing was intentional or not, but uh, for both stories. But in any case, it's quite an amazing story. And of course, you have the Matrix and the Regeneration Limit and so many things. But in terms of the Doctor and the Master, like Terry the Autons, they don't meet until about halfway, or probably actually later than halfway through Part 4. So you have a lot of wonderful Fourth Doctor moments, a lot of wonderful Master moments. You don't have much uh, interaction with the Doctor and the Master. And when you consider it, it's very reasonable given the Master's physical condition. Uh, yes, they have a fight scene, but for the most part, the Doctor's kind of beating the Master up, or at least hitting him, knocking him down. The Master's not able to enjoy, uh, fight too much against the, ma the Doctor because he's so infirm, even though he says, I'm not as infirm as I look. But he is still, compared to the Doctor, not terribly um, capable of physical prowess, physical skill, physical events. It's quite an interesting situation. Very different from what you had before and what comes later. Um, but as I said, I'm, it's a little hard to point to other stories in the Tom Baker years, eras and say, oh, my, I might like this story better, but this other story has more Doctor-Master interaction, because none of them do. He's a very interesting Doctor in that sense that he doesn't have much interaction with the Master, even when the Master's the main villain in a story, largely because of the condition of the Master. And that's why I, I think to myself, what, and you look at the Big Finish era stories and such, that's why something like the, the audio, um, I'm getting to the audios because you, you to have a good Doctor Master and expansion and, and, and interaction, you really have to look at the audios for the fourth Doctor and the Master. So I like the story Deathmatch. Um, because that's pretty much the first time, in my opinion, really ever, that you have the fourth Doctor and the Master alone together for a lengthy scene where they're discussing events rather politely um, but they're discussing things, their viewpoints, their differences of opinion, their intentions and so in a weird way meaning off screen if I'm thinking of a very good fourth Doctor Master story, I'm going to point to Deathmatch because that's where you have um, I believe it's called Deathmatch I want to make sure because there are a couple stories that are fourth Doctor stories, believe it or not, that have very similar titles. Uh, making sure here. Uh, yes, Deathmatch. Um, the sequel thematically to Requiem for the Rocket Men. So both stories have a lot of the Master, Doctor Master interaction, but this one, Deathmatch, is very good because you actually have a scene where the Doctor and the Master have a lengthy conversation. So I really enjoy that one. Um, but on screen, I would say, Deadly Assassin, for all that it contributes and changes for the Master's character. And the Doctor, of course, he, you see his, for the first time, a really strong immer immersion of the Doctor um, in Time Lord society. For the Fifth Doctor, oh, it gets harder again, because there are so many. Um, half a dozen stories. Oh, goodness. Uh, you know, it's I'm, I'm going to point to one that maybe is not so um, 
again, a story that might not be too terribly well esteemed. Because it's only a two-part story, and, and as soon as I say this, people probably know what I'm talking about. Small-time villain on the master's scale. Um, but it's uh, the King's Demons. Because sometimes those Davis and two-parters pack a very strong punch. I just watched The Awakening yesterday. It was a wonderful story. Uh, and if anyone's wondering, why am I watching The Awakening, knowing that I'm watching Doctor Who stories for preparation? Well, that might give you a clue to which Doctor I'm preparing to write another adventure. <laughs> um, but... Um, those two-part adventures are very tight stories. I think they're, let's see, those are, I think, The Visitation, The King's Demons, and The Awakening. I think it's those three. So one per series for Davison. And in The King's Demons, you have a two-part adventure. The Doctor and the Master relationship for the Fifth Doctor and Ainley's Master is already well established. It's their third television adventure. Um, and so... And the Master spends the first episode, you know, in, in disguise. The Alien's Master was very notable for doing elaborate disguises. That second episode, you get, again, some very good scenes between the Doctor and the Master. Where it's just them. They have chameleons there, too, but... It's just them, talking, one with another. The Master explaining his plans, the Doctor refuting his intentions... But when you look at the scope of that story, again, it's not a very large scope. At least it's, it's deceptively small. Until you realize the, that the Master is going to use Chameleon to try to destabilize the key civilizations of the universe, and he could do it. But it's the realization, when after you've watched the episode, that the Master very nearly beats the Doctor. In that every little thing that the Doctor is trying to do to stop the Master, the Master is able to counter. For example, when they send, I think his name was Will, they send this... Um, uh, they send a man as a courier to try to warn the real King John of events. The master expect, anticipates that and and um, has a soldier, an archer, kill the kill this man so he can't get the message out so they're effectively isolated. They never say who that soldier is, but I imagine... I like to think it's Chameleon. <laughs> I like to think it's Chameleon, to, you know, prepared as a soldier. Um... But any, any, it makes sense because the, the chameleons really and the master are really joined at the hip again in that story. So who else is there? You have soldiers, but even so. Um, there is that sense that, they, that it is, although it's a small setting, you really have a sense in that story that there's no one else coming to help. And as all the, the friends of the doctor are coerced by the master that the, and convinced that the doctor is the enemy... And at the end of the story, they are still convinced that the Doctor is the enemy. And it's only the fact that the, ma that the Master is slightly distracted in his mind battle with the Doctor, which I absolutely love. You have this wonderful mind battle between the Doctor and the Master over Chameleon. And the Master is slightly distracted, and that is enough that the Doctor is able to grab Chameleon and escape. But even at the end of the story, the Master says, Don't think you've won yet, Doctor. He calls him medieval misfit. And then the Master uh, leaves in his TARDIS. There's a hint by the Doctor that he, because he's somehow sabotaged the Master's TARDIS, that he won't end up where he wants to go. Who, that's never shown on screen exactly where he goes, but a lot of people, including myself, feel that the Master ends up on Gallifrey, because the very next door he's on Gallifrey. Uh, and therefore he's on pr in prison for a while, in that television gap. When you think about the King's Demons, you have a situation that is deceptively small, but it could lead to much greater cosmological chaos 
and it is an event where the master again very nearly defeats the doctor. And you could definitely argue that he doesn't really defeat that the doctor doesn't exactly defeat the master because he only delays an inevitable rematch, which you see sadly in Planet of Fire. Uh, and I like Planet of Fire as well, but um, again, the master is mostly the real master off screen. So I really. Uh, it's a, perhaps a dark horse candidate, but I really enjoy the King's Demons. Sixth Doctor and the Master is a little harder because <laughs> the sad thing is people have noted on screen the Sixth Doctor and the Master don't really have a television story with just the two of them. You have Mark of the Ronnie, and then you have the Ultimate Foe, and in both cases you have other Time Lords there. The Ronnie and the First, of course, and then a whole bunch of Time Lords, including the Inquisitor and the Valeyard in and the Keeper of the Matrix too, in the ultimate foe segments of the Trial of a Time Lord. That's why some people have noted that Craig Hinton, the late Craig Hinton's novel Quantum Archangel, is notable because uh, that was the first story. And this came out, I think, in 2001. So it's a while ago now. But even, it, it took that long, about 15 years after the Colin Baker years, that you actually had a story where, although there are other things involved, you have just the Sixth Doctor and the Master. So if you want just the Sixth Doctor and Master, go to the read the Quantum Archangel. It's wonderful. It's probably my favorite of the Doctor Who novels, and I'm not the only one who thinks this. But um, in terms of television, oh, the Mark of the Ronnie, it's a wonderful story, and you get to see Ainley's Master uh, interplaying and interacting with the Doctor and another time with the Ronnie, and how they're similar and different. You realize that Ainley's Master is just a total jerk no matter what. Although he's he's definitely apparently complimentary to the Ronnie and her brilliance, although I think he's flattering her. She certainly has no time for him, so it's... Excuse me, it's quite an interesting um, volatility, volatile dynamic. Um, Seventh Doctor's easy, of course, survival. And survival is something else. Again, I could talk forever about that one, and... I have a lot of other things to discuss, so I won't discuss it too much. It's just simply saying that it is easily um, Ainley's um, standout performance, as as much as I, I, mean, I love Anthony Ainley's master. Of course, he's over the top and hammy, but that makes him unique. It very successfully differentiates him from Roger Delgado's master. Um, I really enjoy his character, and he's and Ainley is one of the is probably the longest lasting master. He spans the eighties. He was there for a decade. It's amazing how long he was there and how much he was able to do. Even though you don't see him too much at the end of that decade, but even so, he's there. Um, it, with the exception of seasons twenty four and twenty five, he was showing up every year, going back to season eighteen. Um, Keeper talk on Logopolis season eighteen. Castrovel, the Time Flight season 19, um, The King's Demons, the Five Doctors season 20, um, Planet of Fire, Caves of Ronda's only cameo appearance, but even so, he's there. Uh, and it's him, as shown in the audio circular time uh, in season 21. Uh, the Mark of the Ronnie in season 22. I'm counting the, uh, the off screen stories that would have been made for the original season 23, so The Hollows of Time, and uh, probably. It's always talking about Yellow Fever. Never been made, of course, but the Hollows of Time exists now, thanks to the audios. Uh, the Ultimate Foe for Season 23. Then he's gone. Not in Season 24, not in Season 25, but then you see him in Survival. So thank goodness, to close off, appropriately, should be the master to close off the classic era of Doctor Who. And Ainley, oh, new costume. 
almost a new personality. Very different. Supremely dark. I half wish that those... The story's set during the summertime and set during the day. I really wish... The one thing, I, I just wish that it had some of the night scenes, as you see in, like, uh, The Ultimate Foe. Oh, my gosh. I really wish we had another story with that version of the Master. Maybe in some type of scary, dark setting. Because he... There's something horrific about Ainley with those teeth and those eyes. But even without them, just the performance, there's something really raw and 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 cold and very um almost too calm about that version of the master. It's it's uh it's exquisite. It's truly exquisite. And of course, moving on to the Eighth Doctor, um, again, you only have really one source, that's the telefilm, so I love the telefilm. I call it Grace, so I love the Grace story, because I love Eric Roberts' performance, so dastardly and evil, and with such great enjoyment and relish, <laughs> and just glee. Eric Roberts' master is one of, definitely one of my favorites, which means he's, he's uh, equally esteemed by this Doctor Who fan, by me. Um, for further exploration, you again, like with the fourth doctor, you have to look to the and a lot of the really the '80s doctors, with the exception I say of, of Peter Davison, you have to look to um, the audios. Of course, I haven't, and that's mostly Alex McQueen. Um, he's kind of Paul McGann's master, at least in the audios. Um, I haven't um, heard most of his stories though, so I can't really speak to them. Um, I have listened to Dark Eyes too, which I really enjoyed, but. Um, so I could point to the Dark Eyes stories as being very fun adventures, so I look forward to anything more that they do with him. Like, the, there's the Masterful box set that's coming. I can't wait for that next year to see how that is. Um, Ninth Doctor, of course, can't really talk about that because there are no Ninth Doctor Master stories, at least as of yet. And it might be a little difficult, given the nature of what comes next in the Tenth Doctor's era, to establish a Ninth Doctor Master story that's not some type of out-of-order event or a multi-Doctor story. Um, which is a shame. I hope that one day someone can do a, think of a way to do a ninth Doctor Mass story. I'm thinking, thinking, certainly thinking of how to do it for the little stories that we make here, but I, as yet, have not been able to devise a way, an easy way yet. The Tenth Doctor, oh, well, I really enjoy The End of Time. I think that's a very good story. The Tenth Doctor and the Masters is an interesting one. I, I think that RTD very much knew how to write the Tenth Doctor. I think he very much knew how to write the Master. I'm not so sure he... I'm not saying that he didn't know how to write them together, in scenes together, but it, whenever you have them in scenes together, um, it's very often that they're not together. Um, I'm going to point to, of course, the, um, the Last of the Time Lords. Uh... Tenen is mostly off screen, or, or he might be on screen, but he's mostly, you know, aged and infirm and not saying much in that story, or he's um, CGI as, as in that little, tiny little figure. So it's a very strange thing that, you know, RTD, of course, he really is intensifying the drama between the two characters, such a fever pitch, because I can understand why he, had, he was bringing back the master for the first time to the new series and back in 2007 and really making it as if it were the last Master Story. Of course, we all knew, well, at least most of us probably knew that it wasn't the case. Because even at the end of the episode, there's that woman's hand that picks up the Master's ring. Um, 
joked by RTD in a DVD commentary that it was the Ronnie, but it turned out to be a very, very frank or random woman, um, part of the cult of Saxon, the cult of the master, essentially. Good, good stories, but when you think about how the, the Tenth Doctor interacts with the Master in their television episodes, for the most part, it's fairly one note. He is essentially saying, just stop, just think, just listen, just wait. He's almost saying iterations of just do something, just pause, essentially. And, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching those episodes, even back then, and even now, I think to myself, I'm not quite sure... <sighs> yes, I am. I, I, I understand what Artie was trying to do. He was trying to paint the Doctor in, in the desperate light, trying to save the Master because he's the only other Time Lord around, at least at that time. But in but in the context of what you find out in the end of time, that the other Time uh, Gallifrey's still around, just in a time lock bubble, and I, I guess the Doctor somehow knows it. There are a few little retcons I can imagine. I like to think that maybe prior to the end of time, but after the last of the Time Lords. The Doctor maybe discovers in an off-screen event that the Time Lords are still alive because when you think about the end of time, once the Master reveals the presence of the White Point Star immediately, and I'm snapping my fingers, I don't really snap them very well, but I'm trying. <laughs> Whatever. But see, in a snap of a finger, the Doctor suddenly comes to the conclusion, oh my goodness, it's not that the, that comes from Gallifrey. What's this mean? He automatically knows the Time Lords are returning. Now, it's shorthand for getting the story across, and I understand that RTD only had the, that one story to tell this the Return of the Time Lords. I think some people have commented, and I think it may be true to a certain extent, that RTD had a, had a very um, consistent quality to his television era throughout series one through four, but his last, his fifth year, where he had the specials, the quality perhaps dipped a little bit, partly because he was still trying to tell an arc storyline without a season-long arc without a season, without a full series. And there I agree. I think that um, with only those four you know, stories planned, this Planet of the Dead, um, The Waters of Mars, and then The End of Time Part 1 and 2, there's a major arc happening there, but you don't have a massive amount of story time real estate, so to speak. And Planet of the Dead, when you think about it, although a fun story, is a throwaway story. It doesn't really connect to anything else. As, as far as I can tell, I would have to watch it again to see if it is, but I don't believe it really is connecting to anything. Like, the monsters in Planet of the Dead don't reappear. They're not, uh, um... It's not like they are how it was in his other series where, oh, this is happening, and then later on you discover, oh, it was part of a larger plot. No, it's just simply a standalone. I don't think you could afford to do a standalone story when all you have are standalone stories trying to tell an arc. And I'm not even, I won't even get into the Time Lord Victoria stuff of the Waters of Mars. I have a kind of a love-loathe relationship with that story. I really like it. It's one of my favorite Tenet stories. And I'm not against... Okay, I'm going to be honest. Yes, I am against the idea of something like the Time Lord Victorious, because I, I'm with Terence Dix. I think the Doctor is a perfect hero without deficiencies. That might be an unpopular opinion, but I really think so. So for me, when you throw something like the Time of Victorious in there, and I mention this because it's kind of like the Doctor acting like the Master, when you have that... I think you really need to sell it. And I won't go too much of a tangent on this. It's on my mind because you have this time of victorious kind of multi-platform, multimedia um, saw storyline emerging, um, including Big Finish and the BBC books and such. And it could be very interesting. But it looks like they're finally going to be exploring something about the time of victorious, how the 10th Doctor was acting. But 
At the time, it was almost a throwaway moment. The Doctor acting so wildly out of character, he is almost the acting, doing things that would be the maybe the religious equivalent of a, a mortal sin or something. And yet, it's not mentioned again after that story. And then it's somehow tied to the Doctor. If he does it, he's it's his death or something like that. And I, I, I get what that RTD didn't have the story. Um, processing power, so to speak, to tell such an arc. So we only had the little character beats to tell the major character beats, but in my opinion, that was a mat of a beat too large to just tell in, in a few minutes. Especially when the the character drama was an ethical question that in my opinion was already explored and resolved in the fires of Pompeii. So suffice to say, yes, I have a retcon for the time of Victorious that involves the Master. That's a hint for a, some future story. Um... But I, I definitely think that if I'm going to point to something in the Tenth Doctor's era as a tenth as a master I'm, I'm going to point to the end of time. I really enjoy what you have there, in terms of you know Doctor Master interaction. But if I'm going to, I will point to the end of time in terms of the Doctor and the Master and probably the, the scope and the scale side of things. You don't really have a story that in the Tenth Doctor's era that involves Doctor Master interaction and good character moments, so prolonged character moments. You you, you do, but in the end of time a little bit, but um, and in the last of the time was, but therefore, for, on the character side, I'm going to point to Utopia. Yes, Derek Jacobi's not exactly playing the master, but it is um, probably the closest we get, and probably will ever get, maybe not, but certainly so far, to how the Doctor and the Master might have been together when they were friends. Wonderful little moments, and throughout that episode of how they interact and how they, how they how they are as friends, or at least as, as, as uh, respected, respectful peers. It's, um, it's, it's very nice. It's very well done, and I, I really enjoy it. So Utopia is something very special. Um, again, like the Ninth Doctor, Eleventh Doctor doesn't have a mass story. They appear together, the Alien Master and the Prisoners of Time comic for the 50th anniversary, but yeah, it's out of order, and I mean something from its era, where the master of its era. And... Prior to Series 10 with Peter Capaldi, I wasn't sure which version of the Master would even be the 11th Doctor's Master. But thanks to the Doctor Falls and such, that it's I think it's pretty clear that you can say it's John Sim. I don't know what his condition would be. But um, that, might, that brings me to the 12th Doctor. Having said that, I'm pretty sure that... I'm, I'm, I'm certain that Big Finish will... Just like the 11th Doctor doesn't have a Davros story, I'm sure that... The Eleventh Doctor will get a Davros story and a, and a Johnson Master story in um, in the audios eventually. For anyone thinking, oh, what about Missy? I think it's pretty clear that Missy's um, not around in the Eleventh Doctor's era personally, meaning they personally meet. I think it's pretty clear she is around, at least in the Clara era years, but uh, more like meeting Clara, not not the uh, not the Doctor. So I think if the, anyone's going to meet the Eleventh Doctor, it's going to be John Sim. On that note, I hope that, that we get to see Johnson with the Tenth Doctor, too, that somehow they think of some way to, uh, some interim adventure to, to uh, pair uh, David Tennant and Johnson. And I really hope it's not an out-of-order thing. I really hope it is David Tennant and Johnson, because I think that they, those two really work well together, but I think that they need a story where, not to be sarcastic, but where David Tennant's Doctor is not just saying, just stop, just think, just listen, just wait, you know, things like that, where the, it's a little more like a traditional master story where it's an it's a it's a hero and tag and villain relationship not someone trying to save him but me more like okay he's around 
Um, and there are ways that you could do it. And I will simply say this, that at the beginning of the end of time, yes, the Tenth Doctor is recapping the events of The Last of the Time Lords, but only in the context of the explaining to the Ood the visions that they're seeing of Lucy Saxon and such. So you could have other stories of the Master. You have to be a little creative, a little creative uh, in the context, but definitely you can have stories of the Master. Maybe he's non-corporeal or something. Um, or maybe he's invaded someone else's body, but I really think it should be John Sim and David Tennant. So if Big Finish ever hears this someone, please, more John Sim, David Tennant, Master, um, Doctor Stories. And Matt Smith, John Sim, Doctor Master Stories. Now we come to 12. Um, this again might be a bit of an unpopular opinion, because I know a lot of people really enjoy Michelle Gomez as Missy. And I'm not saying I don't enjoy her, but I have never really... I think this is not as... This, it would be an unpopular thing to say, oh, Michelle Gomez is terrible. No, because I, I don't have that opinion. I think she's very good in her... wonderful in her performance. I don't think it's terribly... Un un might not be a majority opinion, but I don't think it's a terribly uncommon or unpopular opinion to think that Missy doesn't terribly feel like the master. Um, and that's because in all the times where she appears on screen, you could perhaps as they are doing the audios, at least for without the Twelfth Doctor, you could have Missy in, a, in more off-screen territory performances, you know, have a, a more traditional Doctor-Master relationship. Meaning that, you know, there's nuance, but she's at its core, what it should be is the Doctor and the Master trying to not kill each other, but the, the Master trying to um, do something that the Doctor is going to oppose at the least... And that opposition is going to result in the Master trying to eliminate the Doctor. Whether or not he actually will, that's debatable. But the intention is, okay, I'm going to kill you. You really, never, you never really get that too much in uh, in the Capaldi era. The closest is probably in Series Eight, um, but he maybe in in um, Death, the very beginning of Death in Heaven. But when Missy blow, you know, just blows up the the, the unit plane, but um, and the doctor's falling in the air. But even so, even so, the upshot is that Missy's done this to give the doctor an army because she wants her friend back. And then series nine, she's there trying to help find the doctor and protect him from Davros and, and such. In series ten, she's locked up, but then she has her redemption arc. It is a different. I'm not. I'm not trying to dismiss that arc. And the, the character. It's a different dynamic. What I am saying, though, is it is, is a different dynamic and worthy of exploration, but it is in absence and separation of the traditional dynamic. And because you don't have on screen, in my opinion, um, the traditional Doctor-Master relationship with the Twelfth Doctor and Missy, in my honest opinion, you don't really have a, a Doctor-Master relationship in that era. Uh, for the most part. Again, I don't dismiss the, the era, but what I'm saying is it's such a radical departure. I feel that it might be... To make the... In my opinion, to make to have made it, for me personally, more palatable. Because it is a big change. The master goes from a male to a female. You can't deny or dismiss that. You can, but I can't, because because it is it is part of... The, they, whether people want to know it or not, know it or not, it is a part of the, the master's character, that he was prior to missing a male. To dismiss it and say that it doesn't matter, you can do that. But I personally, I personally don't because once you change it to a female, as certainly they did this in in series eight, there are these romantic overtones. 
you could argue that they're romantic overtones before, um, but suddenly they're very much there. What I am saying is that there's a shift, and therefore, if you are saying that there is a shift, you have to imply that there it, that the sh- there was some there the shift is departing from something that came before, and so for me, this shift, the do- the, the Missy shift, the gender change, the the romantic overtones, undertones, whatever you want to say, uh, the overtones and undercurrent, and then the redemption. But certainly the more f- frenemy element of the Doctor and the Master. In my opinion, that would have worked better had we seen more of the enemy. We see a lot more. We see maybe the frenemy, and we see the friend. We don't really see the enemy too much at all. And therefore, I really think that it would have benefited for me personally, not for everybody, because every, but people have different opinions, but for me since this is about my feelings, Missy would have benefited, in my opinion, to have a, a story where she was a strict enemy of the Doctor. Uh, that wasn't Moffat's vision, and I can appreciate that, but um, Missy, I think, would have, it, for me, would, it would have benefited had she acted more like the Master on at least one occasion. And maybe they, had, they brought her back in Series 9 or something and featured her in a, in, a pure, in a much more purely antagonistic role. And then you could see what is she like. And then, then you can have the contrast when she's a villain and she's an enemy. And that makes maybe the frenemy and then friend elements um, much, more, uh, much more intriguing because you could see how does she act on all sides of the spectrum. But we only tended to get the more at the most frenemy elements, even in Series 8, because the upshot is she's trying to be a friend again. Strange and twisted as it is, she's trying to be a friend. Um, I should then also then talk about series ten, which is uh, for me. I really like that they brought back John Sims Master, and therefore I really like um, the world enough in time and the Doctor Falls. But it's a double-edged sword because I will be very honest. Uh, I think that I'm not. I'm not saying the Moffat failed Missy. No, but I. I Again, I think it may, he may have made things a little too simple for me, or at least the implication is a bit too simple for me, which is you have Sim and Gomez together, paired together. And prior to this, you know, I was talking with people, even amongst the Final Game cast, asking them while Series 10 was coming along, and asking them while Series 10 was happening, but before John Sim returned. But people knew that John Sim was coming back. And then a lot of people were saying, well, I wonder how this ties with Missy's arc of redemption. And a couple of people very, had some inter- very interesting and very wonderful ideas about maybe how post the end of time you have a somewhat repentant Sim. Because a lot of people feel that Sim was redeeming himself. I personally don't. I think that he was just a little more angry with Rassilon at the time than the Doctor in terms of wanting to kill him. You know, in other words, anyone can kill the Doctor. If anyone's going to kill the Doctor, it's me. You... And I'm very angry with you right now. So you're trying to kill the doctor? No, I will kill him. I'm going to destroy you. But a, 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 maybe a, a, a confused or somewhat repentant ma- a sim master would be very interesting, and that that could have led eventually to Missy Michelle Gomez um, Missy's frenemy state condition and her redemption. But instead, when we have John Sim return, he is as traditional a master as you can get. He is unrepentant, irredeemable, un- impenitent. And he tells the doctor, I, whatever, in his wonderful where I stand is where I fall speech. It's kind. Sim says, this is the face of someone who didn't listen to a word you said. But the way it's portrayed is that Sim is not listening at all. 
Gomez is. But Moffat does very well, in my opinion, the whole idea of these non-linear events where two people that are different time points listen and not listen, and, and yet, you know, maybe one isn't listening, but the other is. But the way it's portrayed there, at least for me, doesn't seem like it's non-linear. It seems that it's parallel. One is not listening, the other is, but not because the other was... How do I say this? The earlier, Sim, is not listening. The later, Gomez, is. But not because Sim listened, but because she's listening. And earlier, what undercuts any sense of non-linear, you know, the, the timey-wimey stuff, as you want to say, is when Sim kind of accuses Gomez of having empathy. Do you have empathy now? And then the comment, is the future all girl? And the Twelfth Doctor says, we can only hope. I don't want to make people think that I don't think that women don't have empathy, or it's not good that a character can have empathy, and a female character shouldn't have empathy, no. Or that a villain can't have empathy. But it really seemed, and other, I talked to other fans that really enjoyed Gomez, that the character was being reduced her, her, the quality of her character and those empathetic qualities were not being reduced to th were, not, were not being revealed as things already within the master that depth and nuance but it was really simply because the master is now a woman therefore she she has empathy but a male master doesn't I felt it wasn't a disservice to the character of the master because um, because it really felt as if Missy now was no longer a part of a, a story arc but was divorced in a way and was her own story arc and I think I, I personally think that others and might agree with me now in light of the fact that we have the Sasha, the Dewan Master, who is, again, just like John Sim in Series 10 and, and other times, as traditional masters you can get. Insane and crazy, sure, but impenitent, irredeemable, uh, and, and, and totally opposed and an enemy to the, to the Doctor. And a lot of people have said, and again, I, I don't like to take these moments to bash the 13th Doctor's era, but I will be honest, people have said, well, what about that character development Missy? And she she became the Doctor's friend. She was willing to stand with the Doctor. Why is, she, why is the Master not against the Doctor now? Because I hate to say it, but I think that I think that Missy is a character of whatever, she, how, whatever the intentions were as she started. I think by the end, um, I'm going to be honest because Stephen Moffat has largely said so. Not that her whole purpose was to be this, but by the end of Series 10, I, how it is you to talk about Missy and define her? Not in terms of the character development, but as a door opener, a harbinger, kind of a, a precursor to a female doctor. Yes, she was. But it almost seems as if the intent has that intent maybe has overshadowed the character of Missy. And now, to a certain extent, I'm not saying it's bad. What I'm saying is that seems to have largely defined Missy now. She was the one that paved the way for a female doctor. And therefore, you can imply from that a little bit that the, her character arc matters a little bit less, maybe? Maybe not? But certainly that character arc perhaps doesn't really matter much now at all because suddenly it's gone. And we just have another master who's trying to just kill the Doctor. Uh, and I... And people have been saying... some I've seen people online say, well, what about all that character development? I hate to say it, but I... I being very honest, I, don't hold your breath for the television series to reveal it. Maxiva Moffat again has stated, um, I think Sasha Dewan as well, I believe in, in press releases or interviews, that they're leaving it to fans to to figure out how to how, how to do that. I don't have a problem with fans figuring out, because I like to do this in retcons, I don't have a problem with fans figuring out how you go from Go um, uh, Sim Gomez to Dewan. 
where I have a problem is is that the it's incumbent upon the writers, in my opinion, to make the decision to um, continue developing the characters uh, and, and, and doing as much as they can if they want to making the choice to um, to note and build upon the development of the characters from pr- prior eras. Well, you have such a stark break from what came before with Michelle Gomez that... To be very honest, I can understand that it's a little like Davros in Series 4. Um, Davros, as shown at the end of the Classic Era, and by the remembrance of the Daleks, had gone through such a transformation that, that some of the writers, if you listen to some of the writers in the I, Davros um, box set documentary, um, which is all of the um, television stories to that point, and audio adventures featuring Davros, essentially his whole life in total, from the... Um, I Davros to um to the members of the Daleks and Terra Firm, excuse me. The idea was there's uh, very rightfully saying, well, Davros at this point is just a head wired up inside of a, a metal uh, casing. The idea was, oh, Davros is just a head. There's nothing left of him now. They had progressed Davros to such an almost a point of no return when it comes to his character that he was there was almost nothing left of him. That the only way to feature you you have a couple choices, but. RTD took the idea of, well, let's just reboot him, essentially. It's, he's, it's later in his timeline. Everything that came before happened, but maybe to give a little more sense of his appearance and, and the physical menace of the character with his hand and operating a suit, we've got to just, we have to backtrack the character physically, uh, um, visually, to how he is essentially up to re- Revelation of the Daleks. The one difference is, it's like the Juggernauts. He's got a metal hand, the audio of the Juggernauts. We have to back him up, essentially, the Six Doctors era in terms of appearance. And they do. He's almost ex- identical to, to how he was prior to 1988. And then 20 years later, in 2008. So he, uh, he, I can understand that Chris Chibnall maybe looked at the character of the Master and, and said, well, where can I go from here? Missy's presumably dead. Uh, and I've, someone else has already done the frenemy element or the friendly stuff. I want to go in the route of m- more enemy again you almost have to reboot the master essentially and just have him show up again as a bad guy it's um it's familiar and i'm a little torn because i like the idea of back to basics so to speak but i like character development too from a writer's perspective it isn't um it might be necessary but it's a little different than what i just said about davros because at least with davros he might be visually rebooted but he's still the same character the development is there um, cold and calculating, but also at times raving and lunatic. The, mas- the master, this type of reboot, pretty much you almost have to ignore what came before. So, I, I, what I'm saying is, again, I'm not trying to end this little question on a down note, because I've been talking for quite a while on this question, because there's so much to talk about, but uh, being very honest, being very honest, I'm not terribly thrilled with where the character of the master is right now, partly because it You've had to do almost a total reboot. Um, partly because... Um, being very honest, he seemed, it seems like we've kind of gone back to just how Sim was in maybe Series 3. I enjoyed the character in Series 3, but he, he was... I can understand why a lot of people... Some people didn't, because he was rather... Car- you could argue he was rather cartoonish, a little more like the Joker in Batman. Well, essentially, it's... He, he, you could definitely make the argument that he's very much in that vein because being very honest, 
Sims Master, if you look at his costume, it's pretty much a Joker's costume. He's not wearing black, in a kind of a time of like black costume. He's wearing a purple suit. I'm going to be in a purple suit with kind of a blue and uh, kind of blue and um, purple checkered pants, trousers. Um, we call them pants here um, in America. But I'm not saying it's not a bad costume. What I'm saying is it's rather unlike the master. It's probably, in my opinion, his costume is a little too much like the performance coupled with the costume is a little too much like the Joker for me. Um, it's not bad. I think I could. It would be. A, I would make a little less of a connection if he had a, 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 a different costume, but the, a purple costume is a little too, a little too far flung for me. Um, it's a, a stylistic choice. I don't think it's, I'm not saying it's forbidden. What I am saying is that it's creating an image for, in my mind that's associating the master with the Joker, perhaps a little too much. Um, I don't know. I, I, being very honest, I'm just not terribly thrilled where the master is right now. Perhaps partly because as much as I like going back to basics, it almost feels a little too much like back to basics um, in light of what came before um, in, in the Moffat years. I think there was a lot of, despite all that I've said, there was character development, so I, and I think that character development's gone. And so, I don't know. We'll see what... But it, nothing's over yet, so we'll see what happens. Uh, so I don't want to go on too much of a tangent about this, but those are... Quite a few of my master stories. If there are any honorable mentions, I really like. I have mentioned the books much, so I'll just say this very quickly. I really like Last of the Gathering by um, Mark Gaddis. That's traditional Doctor Who through and through. Uh, third Doctor, the Master, after Delgado's television time. It's before the Green Death, and so it's wonderful. It's set in that, kind of the very end of Season 10. So it gets the Delgado Master from mid-Season 10 to late Season 10. Very nice. Um, I don't know. Let's see. Other books. Oh, goodness. Little Quantum Archangel, of course. I've mentioned that. Sixth Doctor and the Master. Alien Master. Beautiful book. Wonderful, wonderful story. Kind of the middle chapter in the in the Times Champion trilogy that Craig started and I finished with Millennial Rights, The Quantum Archangel, and then finally Times Champion. Um, Primetime is fun. Uh, with, it's a seventh Doctor novel. Um, that's, a, and that's a nice little book. Um, kind of tricks you because... Again, it's quite a long time ago, so no spoilers, but, you know, it's, it's quite a long while ago, like I just said. You think it's the Master throughout much of the book, but it's someone in disguise. And then the Master shows up, and he's quite in, in a different condition. That's very nice. Um, it's by the same authors, Robert Perry and Mike Tucker, the short, kind of the novella, Stop the Pigeon. That's um, something that I found and read, and it's very good. It's a, it's a short story, but 70 or 80 pages, so it's like a really novella. It's very good kind of um, shortly post-survival. First Frontier by David A. McKinty is very good, too. I really enjoy it. It's his answer to how Ainley, um, the Ainley Master escapes his condition in survival. It's rather... It's, 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 um, it's a little disconnected now from the rest of continuity, given what Big Finish have done, so I hope that at some point Big Finish might um, not canonize. I think that anything's canon. Um, but... Um, but uh, adapt to per the performance. Because they've, they've mentioned such things, Zun technology, uh, nanoparticles that allow Ainley to regenerate, so to speak. They've mentioned such things in the audio, so they've, they've mentioned this version of the Master. I just hope that they would give him a match him to an actor. He, David McKinty, David 
David uh, mapped him, mapped that version of the Master to Basil Rathbone. Obviously, Basil Rathbone is, is no longer with us, so you can't be that particular actor, but I, 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 you could still picture him since it would, by necessity, be an audio master. So I hope that Big Finish at some point maybe adapts First Frontier or, um, well, yeah, they'd have to recast Ainley. But recasting just for one story, I don't know. No matter what, um, just gives us something more with uh, with that version, the first Frontier Master, the uh, 30th Anniversary Master, essentially. This book came out back then, 93, 94. Um, any other books? Well, good question. Um, the story of Martha is, is nice, but it doesn't really feature the Master too much. Briefly, but only in cameo. There, believe it or not, there aren't too many books with the master um yeah yeah so um so those are so so the honorable mentions are almost all the books you can find with the master but um i've but there are others of course but those are some but those that's an idea of my some of my favorite master stories there are there are too many to just reduce to one or two but uh in general those are some of them for each of the doctors um since I've been talking about this for about an hour and a half now, um, I'm going to now move to the next question. Um, <clears throat> just a moment, I'll pull it up here. And, um, and yes, um, and Mark asks in the questions, which was the first master I saw? It would definitely be, well, for me, Brayshaw, but uh, knowing who the character was, a little more so Delgado. That's That's easy to say. Uh, next second question is as you know he prefaces it, prefaces prefaces the second question with the statement that as we meet uh, some other time lords as we do in part six, such as you know the present of the time lords from the three doctors the chancellor from that story and the war games, um, goth from the war games and the deadly assassin and the time lord incognito time lord from the terror the autons who was also in the war games. Um, what are some, th my thoughts on Gallifrey? Um, my thoughts on Gallifrey are pretty complica <laughs> complex, um, and, and really I would say very positive. In fact, amongst many of the fans that I know, I would say that I'm probably on the, on the spectrum that's a bit unpopular of an opinion, which is that I love whenever we see Gallifrey. Whenever we see Gallifrey. I think that's amazing. I wish we'd see more of it. I understood I'm not against the Time War and the Gallifrey being gone, um, but I wish that we would see more of Gallifrey. I'd love to have Gallifrey all the time because I think there's so much you can learn from the, from, from that uh, mythology. I mean, these, these race of beings that are, when introduced in the form of the Doctor, you have someone that has this magical machine, bigger on the inside than the outside, that can take you anywhere in time and space. It is a marvelous, magical Magnificent! I'm using all these, um, you know, alliteration and such, but all the, this wonderful concept. It's a beautiful, infinitely variable concept. And although that's not um, by origin and genesis Time Lord, it's just the Doctor, some alien race, it's still an alien race. And as a springboard, you get to the Time Lord six years later. And as the second Doctor says, we, we have tremendous powers. We live forever, barring accidents. Um, I take that to... I've, sometimes it's funny how you can have the scope of things grow over time, or they can shrink. And it has somewhat shrunk in terms of the Time Lord concepts of time, because um, 
or at least it, sometimes it grows, sometimes it shrinks in terms of like the doctor's age. Um, but in terms of the their lifetimes, you have time lords have oftentimes been portrayed as if they live for a few hundred years, they're old, suddenly they're old. I, I don't think so. I, it's, it's the same thing I have the problem with maybe like the character Superman. When you have Superman shown in maybe stories set in the future, relative to the main, you know, continuity. Any, any time that you have Superman, because I really like the character of Superman in the comics and such, and you have your main continuity, whatever that main continuity is, and then you have, you contrast it with uh, Superman of the future. I've never liked the idea that, oh, say 30, 40 years later, Superman shows up and he's got gray hair. I think to myself, being as powerful and as vital and as lively and as, and as energetic, meaning he has all these amazing powers, he has the lifespan of a human? I don't think so. I don't think so. I've never even liked the ideas when you have like the religion of superheroes set in about a thousand years in the future. And they come back and, oh, the legends of Superman. I think that Superman should be flying around with them in the 31st century. Or in the 301st century, whatever. I think that Superman should be immortal. Or at least in the sense that, yes. And so, if you, and so 30 years later, he shouldn't have any gray hairs. He should never have gray hair. Never. Same thing with the Time Lords. I like the idea that um, human actors age, of course, and they have built into that idea some time differential and things. But these are the interesting things about Gallifrey and the Time Lords, is that, um, that in my opinion, maybe the human, a human actor can age, but a Time Lord doesn't. Tenth Doctor says that in a school reunion. I don't age, I regenerate. Uh, and that's why I honestly love the idea of the Doctor. You could see, say you have an incarnation of the Doctor that lasts for a long time. And I like, I like to think that all the Doctors last for a long time. Uh, more than what we see on screen. Who knows how long a year is. Yes, I know, very much know that some of the books indicated, established that uh, a Gallifreyan year is the same length as an Earth year. <laughs> I don't really like that. I'm not going to ignore it, but relative to what? What, what is the context? Who knows? I, in fact, to be very honest, I don't like that idea. I won't lie, but but um, but I like to think that if the doctor says he's nine hundred, does that mean that could mean anything? Uh, maybe he's visited nine hundred different years. Maybe he's uh, <laughs> maybe he's experiencing nine hundred different years in that moment across uh, different timelines. I don't know. What I am saying is that um, there's so much to the tapestry of Gallifrey. I, I find it immensely satisfying to learn new little details from any era, whether it's the more godlike immortal beings of the 60s and mid-70s, or the more political intrigue of the, of the later part of the mid-70s, or the, um, the kind of the more arcane, um, arcane kind of cultish figures of Omega and Rassilon as a treat in the 80s, with kind of, you know, um, the cult, the cult figures, or the uh, the the um, acolyte figures, and head in from Ark of Infinity. You, you've got, or or then you've got the strange creatures like the Valeyard of the mid '80s. You have a real rich history there, and I and, and then you get the arcane things that are mentioned, the back history and the and the, and the shadowy texts and such that were developed in the '90s. 80s and 90s, but certainly the 90s and such, where they start introducing things like the Time Lord gods and such, um, where you get into almost a kind of a dreamlike state of what Time Lords are and what are their powers. Um, I, I really enjoy Gallifrey very much. I, 
in fact, I crave more stories. I, I understand it was a good idea probably to give a new a new identity to the Doctor and his relationship to the cosmos by destroying Gallifrey off screen at least. And it had it been done in the Eighth Doctor books, circa two thousand one, I think. The Ancestor Cell. And then whether or not RTD knew about such things, I'm sure he did. Um, but that's carried and translated, adapted to the new television series, the new series. I, I think it's great. It, it, in its initial run, it, you can, I, for me as a fan, it hampers the series just in the sense of, well, there are no other Time Lords running around, and whereas the technology, no other TARDISes, you, you just kind of are back to maybe the basics, but from the context, from a starting point in 2004 or 5, that's great on a television perspective, putting it in the context, the Ninth Doctor's era and the Tenth Doctor to a lesser extent, in the context of the whole series, certainly as a writer, maybe someone like me that likes to weave continuity together, it's a bit of a damper on the enthusiasm a little bit because it's like, well, I kind of can go back to Gallifrey because Gallifrey's gone or whatever. And and so, you, and I imagine other people feel this too because you notice some of the more recent Ninth Doctor comics have the do Ninth Doctor dealing with quite a bit of Time War stuff, not Gallifrey directly, but people using Gallifrey technology, the events from the Time War and such, um, relics, because now that the Ninth Doctor's era is much more firmly placed within the RTD era in general, within the context of the entire series, um, it's a little more like a desert, and so you need these uh, Time Lord oases to... to um, refer back to the past, so to speak, and maybe build upon the future. And and just give give that particular doctor a, a, a weightier sense of the present, because you might want to get rid of Gallifrey, and that might seem like a good idea then, and it is. But as years pass, it really... Once in a while, you want to go back to Gallifrey, and, and oh, there's this legend or this event. Well, when all the legends are gone, when all the monsters are gone, when all your friends or your people are gone that are usually monsters... You can tell other stories, but perhaps it's because the Ninth Doctor's era is so brief on screen, it almost feels like all you get is that. That it almost feels like the only way that you can, maybe the only way, but one ripe way that you can expand his era, which inevitably is going to happen. I'm sure, I don't know if they'll ever get Christopher Eccleston into Big Finish, but I, I hope that they do, but eventually they're telling Ninth Doctor stories. Eventually you need to keep expanding in some directions, and, and one way to expand is Gallifrey. So... It's, it's a way that's a wonderful way to expand and develop and deepen the mystery of the Doctor or the nature of the Doctor in relation to his peers. What happens when his peers are gone? That is a wonderful way to explore the character. But eventually, it, it becomes, you could argue, one note if it's just all my people are gone. And you can relate, your character is developed through an absence, through a solitude. But you need some contrast. And so I hope that we can see more Gallifrey in those eras. Ninth Doctor and Tenth Doctor, we can with the Master and such, but even there it's a little limited. Um, one thing I will say is that I think that um, there are wonderful ways to expand upon Gallifrey in the new series, even in the Tenth Doctor's era. Um, in the end of time, Gallifrey arrives, uh, briefly. Well, I'm sure that... Um, once all the Time Lords, and imagine some of the Renegade Time Lords that we have seen throughout the series, I'm sure if they weren't dead, that they were present on Gallifrey. Imagine what happens when Gallifrey returns to the, to, the, to the cosmos and you see the sun again, so to speak. Oh, why not leave? <laughs> so I think you could have the Tenth Doctor meeting some other Renegade Time Lords after the end of time.
Now, granted, that's the Tenth Doctor regenerating, but who knows how long that lasted? His, the Great Reward, I think he calls it his reward period. Um, you could have him meeting up with other Time Lords, the Ronnie, the Monk, maybe even Morbius or something. Uh, perhaps the Corsair. But no matter what, I think that you could have um, and, and that little tail end coda era of the Tenth Doctor's era could have other Time Lords. That could be very interesting. Tenth Doctor regenerating, meeting up with other foes, familiar faces. Interesting. Um, other things, I should, might as well mention them now, um, in terms of Gallifreyan history, I also find very fascinating are the Dark Times that were mentioned, you know, throughout the series a little bit, but certainly um, that term, I think, goes back to uh, Silver Nemesis. So the Seventh Doctor, overall, the the the, 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 the plot strands of was he around and during ancient Gallifrey and such, the, the Dark Times, and probably was, but what was he in, in the, that era? People talk about the Timeless Children, um, the Timeless Child arc. Yeah. You know, just, I, I don't... That's something that I, I have very, very strong feelings about, and I don't want to get too... I, I don't want to say I'm, I would be negative, but I don't want to stray too far into that, because it's still ongoing. It's like an investigation, something old. They get investigations ongoing, so we can't comment about that. Well, this is definitely an ongoing investigation, re-evaluation of... Um, of of the Doctor as a Time Lord in Gallifreyan history. Since that's being developed, I don't want to talk about it too much, but I will say I don't really like it. <laughs> but no matter what, to say that that is an answer to the Dark Times and the other, I think is... It could tie into it to say that is the answer. I think it's... I w I'm taking Andrew Cartmel's word on this, which is it's not, because the Doctor, 13th Doctor, clearly doesn't remember those events. The 7th Doctor clear, clearly remembers something. Um, and it's clearly probably very different from the Timeless Children. They could definitely interweave, but to say that they are mutually inclusive, 100%, the Timeless Child is the other, which is the apparent identity of the Doctor, whatever he was in the Dark Times, I think is um, misunderstanding the whole concept of the Cartmel master plan, so to speak, even though Cartmel himself has said there was no master plan, it was just what he was, just things that he was writing and developing doesn't mean you dismiss what he was doing, it's just that there perhaps wasn't a master plan. It was just as they developed, and they wanted to add mystery to the Doctor. To say that the Carmel master plan is fulfilled in the timeless child, I think is a misunderstanding of the Carmel master plan. It could be informed, they can inform each other, but to say one is the other, uh, I don't think so. Because there's a little... T it's t they are two different, and... Um, and the Doctor's relationship to the two concepts are far too different to just say one is the other. Uh, I think they can add to it. You can, depending on how this all plays out, I think maybe they can add to each other. But to say that it, this is the answer to that mystery, I don't think so. No. Um, this, the total answer, no. But I really enjoy the concepts of the Dark Times. I really um you, know, you have hints of it in the five doctors with the death zone and such when the second doctor says that his ancestors in the days before Rassilon had tremendous powers which they misused disgracefully. Um, what were those powers? And where have those powers gone? You even have a hint of this in the fourth doctor audios. Um, what is it? The, um, the skin of the sleek and the thief who stole time. I think that was series uh, seven. Yeah, series seven of the fourth Doctor Ventures and Big Finish. When that there's um, um, the planet Funderell, and it's a planet that the Time Lords created. 
back in the days when they knew how to create planets. There is a definite sense in the fourth Doctor's era, which I find very interesting. Starting with the Deadly Assassin. When the Doctor talks about the Eye of Harmony. And Spandrel says, well, Doctor, the Eye of Harmony is a myth that no longer exists. I think you can tie together all these different eras and visions of the Time Lords, interpretations of the Time Lords, into a single whole, and that, in, in a nutshell, it is a very powerful race whose only super elite know of their true powers. And even then, they might not know all of their powers. Um, a, a, a foundation, kind of a superstructure upon, um, upon a society that has grown decadent and degenerate to its core, and rotten to its core, as the doctor said. And a part of that is that they have that their general populace is, has become so accustomed to their powers they've forgotten what powers they have. They are a, a city, a society stagnating and calcifying in ignorance and complacency. And at the heart of their society is a superstructure, a super elite class, a ruling class that doesn't even know, beyond the, probably the official ruling class, that knows much more, maybe not all, but know, knows much more about their history and their powers and their abilities. And they kept it secret maybe for various reasons, maybe for the public good, maybe not. Maybe because they want to centralize their power. A, su um, a, a decadent society whose who's super ruling elite or super controlling elite are corrupt with the understanding of their power. So a decadent society that has misunderstood or forgotten their power and a super society that, ha that understands and remembers their power and has corrupted them to an extreme. Some. And sometimes you wonder what kind of society would create renegades like, like the master, but then also people like the doctor. What are what are they, what against what are they rebelling? Um, and then of course you get into things like the Valet is the corruption not just skin deep or society deep, but maybe genetic or personal deep. I mean, the Valet is such an interesting thing. I could definitely talk about the Valet much, much, much more, because I think I can say that I am. Um, I don't want to call myself an... Well, I want to brag and say, well, I'm an expert in the character, but perhaps I probably am, because I have studied the character a lot and developed the character in, in the novel Time's Champion. I'm the one person that has gone to the lengths of actually revealing, giving an interpretation and a, a revelation of what is the Valley, not just who is the Valley, and why is the Valley, but what is the Valley. And I think I'm the one person that's actually gone all the whole length. Big Finish have hinted and teased with with different concepts, but I'm the one person that has gone the full length and said, okay, this is what the Valayard is. I can leave some mystery here and there, but I've actually explained the Valayard. And so I could talk the Valayard a lot, but suffice to say that the Valayard, you could argue, is a very interesting commentary on how much it, uh, the ideas of nature and nurture and society's effects on people and what happens when a, plan, a society has planned the lives of its people to the point where if a person rebels against that society, is the society so ingrained a person that that somehow within the person there is a counter-rebellion, so to speak? You know, is that the valley art? And how does that work? Well, Hinton say yes, but perhaps not in the way you might think. A counter-rebellion, a counter-renegade to the doctor's renegade. Interesting. It's a very interesting ideas that you find when you explore the dark corners of Gall Gallifrey and its history. Um, I will also say when it comes to the Dark Times, I've said this on a few occasions, that um, um, it's one of my big retcon ideas to, to a certain extent, um, encompass and encapsulate other spheres and other mythologies within Doctor Who in, um, under the Aegis 
the umbrella of time or mythology, and, I, and that is, in a nutshell means things like the Guardians. Um, officially, as I've always, as I've said before, found the Guardians to be a very strange addition to Doctor Who mythology. They come from a time, from the Graham Williams era, where you have how the time was reformed at the tail end of the Derek Sherwin, Peter Bryant era, and then developed in throughout the Barry Letts, Terrence Six era, and that was built off of that, the, the Bryant-Sherwin Foundation of the War Games. And Terrence Six and Barry Letts, they developed them as still this very mysterious society. You see very little of them. Um, you only see their renegades, the Doctor, the Master, and then Omega. And you only catch a couple glimpses. The Doctor actually never personally physically goes to Gallifrey in the, three, uh, in the Third Doctor's era. There's an unreachable, unknowable quality to them. You see them maybe at their weakest in the Three Doctors. Well, not their weakest, but kind of somewhat their weakest. But, of course, they're facing a, a super-power threat in Omega. That when you think about it, if Omega were to be a... It's a good thing he's never been a consistent threat in the series because, say, Omega, fully powered, were to emerge into the cosmos with his abilities and with his madness, I think you could effectively say, well, that's the end of the series. That's the end of the story. Because what's going to stop him? Yes, Omega and Times has made it into the main universe, but through uh, various means and through so with some limitations and such. Uh, the television series did in Arc Infinity, the audios have done it in um, the audio Omega, and... Gallifrey Series 7, which is, I think, called Intervention Earth. But in any case, it's Omega possessing another person's body or something. I have the theory that the Omega that we see in Arkham Finney is actually not quite Omega. It is Omega, but kind of a, a, a uh, an extension of his mind that can exist in the main realm. And I have various reasons for this idea. Partly because it's a different actor. You go from Stephen Thorne to Ian Collier back to Stephen Thorne in the audience. But um, but in any case, Omega's never quite seen at full power in a story. Because in my opinion, if you were to do that, that would be the end of the story. He's something that is, I think, the ultimate big gun. Even more than, say, something like Sutek or something. Um, oh, I think far more. Um, because Sutek, at least you maybe can destroy. Or at least, yeah. Omega, probably not. So... Um, but I mention all this to say that you have that ba the, the, the basis and then the, and then the building and the foundation of the, of the godlike beings that you whisper about them and then they just send you little gifts or send you um, little tasks. And even into the er early Tom Baker years and the fail of Hinchcliffe produced stories that were recommissioned by Barry Letts and such. But then it, everything changes in The Deadly Assassin. And time was a much more human suddenly, and, and, and easily, fairly easily killed, even without regenerating. And it's a very radical departure, because Robert Holmes, I remember speaking with Craig Hinton, um, and not long before he died, and, and talking to him about his ideas on Time Lords, and he said that Robert Holmes was an iconoclast. I might as well take a moment to explain what is an iconoclast. If you have icons or very powerful figures or structures or, or institutions, an iconoclast is someone or something that reevaluates those people or institutions or ideas in a, and deconstructs them, often in a, in a satirical way or in a, in a, in a, um, in a contrarian or um, skeptical view. And Robert Holmes, being an iconoclast, reevaluate the Time Lords in a skeptical way, like, oh, they're this all-powerful race, mm, let's reevaluate that. Let's say they're not so all-powerful. 
they might have great powers, but but maybe a lot of them don't know about those powers as such. Does it contradict what came before? On the surface, yes, but you can weave the ideas together, as I said a little bit little earlier. So in reaction to that deadly assassin in the evasion of time, you get the Guardians, because the Time Lords are so depowered that in prior years, in the John Pertwee years and early Tom Baker, Tom Baker years, you have the Time Lords by fiat giving the Doctor an object and saying, take this, use this, do this. If that's their role, that's their story. But then you have the situation where this white Guardian shows up and says, okay, we have the key to time. You have other beings that have great capabilities and and and, um, and control over time. Now they're never said to be they're not, never explicitly said that they're not time lords. In fact, Romana thinks that they you know, she thought that it was the president of the time lords that sent her on the mission, but then the doctor says it wasn't, it was the white guardian disguised as the president. But it's interesting that the guardians often disguise themselves as time lords. Hmm. And they're often involved with Time Lords, at least when, when shown on screen. And, I, as I've said, I take the RTD um, viewpoint of the Guardians, which is in the cosmology of Doctor Who. I'm just not sure how they fit if they're not Time Lords. You could say, well, they, maybe they're another race. Well, then what are they? In the context of Doctor Who, you tend to get explanations of things. Because there are not too many mysteries. You can have mysteries, but the, but the, but the, the beings set forth are, tend to be fairly, you know, Understood. There might be mystery about them, but you could say, well, this is an alien race from planet XYZ, whatever, uh, or from this dimension or this era, and this is where th- and this is what they are. I'm not saying that everything has to fit perfectly. What I'm saying is that at least you understand what the beings are. The guardians are just the guardians. What are they? <laughs> I've said before. Are they spirits? Are they entities? Are they? Uh, are they? Are they? Um, eh, Artificial intelligences? Are they are they androids? Are, are they are they fully evolved humans? What are they? We just don't have that context, and something tells me we probably you know without actually making a decision we, decision we never will because honestly, things like the guardians don't really fit. Without making them so obscure and vague that they just appear and disappear, sometimes literally. I've never really quite sat. Well, with the idea of the Doctor facing a foe like the Black Guardian that's so so powerful that he needs someone else's help, um, and in the form of like the White Guardian, even though the White Guardian just shows up for a moment. Um, I've always liked the idea the Doctor can defeat an enemy, not so much on his own, but yeah, in a way on his own, he, where he can solve the situation with his wits, and not without oh some kind of. Def- you know, this intervention, quasi-divine intervention of something like the White Guardian, uh, because it's just too vague. And in my opinion, it's... The characters are too undefined, in my opinion, to really be to be able to understand them, especially in the context of the fact that when the Black Guardian says things like, I, can't, I cannot be seen to act. So if, he, if even his influence is so limited... Then why, then why do you need a white guardian to show up and help the Doctor defeat the Black Guardian? The characters are too undefined. There's a lot of interest there, but my problem is that I just get the feeling that they're, they're, the, those are beings that on their own will probably never be defined because when you really think about it, um, it's a little bit like 
the war chief being a separate entity or, um, from the master. You could treat him as a separate time lord, but if you treat him exactly as he was on screen, why not just feature the master because he's going to act and do things that the master does? Otherwise, you'd have to radically reinterpret the character, but after 50 years, you might as well just have a story with the master. It's a little redundant. A little bit to a certain extent, like the Valleyard. When Craig talked about depowered Time Lords producing the Guardians, he also talked about the Master being so depowered that Robert Holmes helped to produce the Valleyard. But then in the very next story that features the Master's survival, the Master is rather uh, empowered. And so the Valleyard would be a bit a little redundant, like, oh, this more powerful or this more intrinsically evil or uh, related, uh, you know, scary character figure of the Valleyard. Well, you have the Master again, and he's rather potent. And again, the Master's been shown in the last 30 years all the time. The Valley are not so much. And the Guardians not so much. The Guardians exist a little bit within the, not a vacuum, but within the, within the, um, within the, the atmosphere of the Time Lords. And they're often shown interacting with Time Lords. And so I'm left thinking to myself, it feels like they're, these are visiting beings from another story. And this key to time, it really feels like it should be a Time Lord artifact. But it's not. It's Guardian technology. Well, again, what are the Guardians? If they've got a physical object there, but they don't seem to be physical beings, well, it just, it's, it's too vague. Whenever they show up, I have not a love-loathe, but kind of a like-dislike relationship whenever the Guardians show up. So I think it, should, it feels like there's some other... It, it makes me feel like Doctor Who, as a, as, a, as a concept, is a subset of a larger storyline. A larger storyline. But in my opinion, Doctor Who is the storyline. Because it always is. And any other time, it, it is. But these few couple appearances, oh, it's now, now there are these guardians flying about. And they control all of reality. Well, then, you would think that you would see them a little more often. You would think that. But, but again, probably, it's probably because what can you do with characters like that? And then it opens the door, as you saw in the Key 2 Time Saga in 2009, where you had the introduction of the Grace. Well, beings that are so powerful, they can swat the Guardians around, and they're so powerful they can't even fit into space and time. Well, then what are these things? And they're the ones, apparently, that created the Key to Time itself. So they retconned the television episode. I'm not saying you can't do that. What I'm saying is it's a slippery slope. Well, you can introduce some other beings that swat the Grace around, and they're so powerful that no one knows what they are. Then how does it? Then how are they a, uh, in a narrative sense, a force that the Doctor could even fight? Oh, they, he can't. Well, then, then, then that's the end of the story. What I'm saying is that, I think, I feel that the best way to incorporate these characters and really understand them, is to put them at the ages of time lords. Because again, in the cosmological sense, if you look at the books, the books identify the, t the Guardians as time lords of a previous universe. Okay. Well, we'll never visit that universe. But even so, they're still their time lords, just not from Gallifrey, a previous universe. But again, in the power scale of things, um, you've got the time lords that are from Gallifrey, but they're time lords. You've got the guardians far beyond them, not time lords. You've got the time lord gods far beyond the guardians. They are time lords. You've got this weird middle cosmological rung, so to speak, let alone never try, try, trying to figure out what the time lord gods are. You've got this middle rung that is not Time Lord and yet somehow related. No, they're Time Lords. They're Time Lords of the Dark Times. So I say all this not to go on the tangent, but just to talk about my 
my views on Gallifrey, which is that those are on my mind right now when I'm writing these stories. I'm thinking to myself, I have little, I throw little hints here there. I mention that because in part six of the, of the final game, guess what? There's a reference to the first High Council and its disillusion. Well, as I said, as I've mentioned in the in my story notes, so to speak, on this segment, in this segment of the Confidential series, that's a reference to the Guardians, before they're Guardians. So, and again, I should note, note something, I'm not sure if it's intentional, but look at the division in the, um, in the Timeless Children. Look at their hats. Or look at the Time Lords in their hats. It's funny, but I'm serious, though. Time Lords and funny hats. Well, the Guardians have funny hats. They're bird-like hats, right? At least in their Davison iteration, their, their um, JNT interpretation. The hats that these Time Lords are wearing in the, in the Division look very much like the hat that the Black Guardian wears in, uh, in the Black Guardian trilogy, season 20. And I'm serious. That may, that may be totally coincidental, but again, I'm saying that these path lines of, of characters are running too close together to ignore completely the narrative possibilities of relating them. And that's what I think. I think that the... That's what I think about Gallifrey, is that you have so many avenues in this series to relate the Time Lords. I'm not saying that all aliens and beings are Time Lords, but you could see show how the Time Lords, as a mythology, have influenced the entire run of the series. And I honestly think that on these couple occasions that Guardians show up, I just think to myself, well... Okay, but we the series doesn't need a super mythology. It already has one. So how does this relate to the mythology of the series? Because otherwise it just is annoying. It's like, um, oh, I don't know. I, I can't think of too many other... Um, well, no, I, actually I can't. I can't think of a parallel example in something like Star Trek. Um, and again, it's often off screen. In Star Trek, you have a lot of superpowered beings. You don't really have an overall mythology to Star Trek. You might now with the stories that are coming when Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard. But for the most part, you don't really have too much of an overarching mythology. You have the preservers and that stuff. But you have a bunch of super races. The Metrons, the Excalbians, the Organians, and such. And the Q. And the Q are kind of the... Um, they're kind of this race that under their aegis, you have certain other like individual entity beings from the original series or some of the films that you that are that are not really explained and they're kind of revealed to be various Q. So like Trillane or the entity from the story The Day of the Dove or um, the entity from um, the Gorgon from uh, and the Children Shall Lead or the the being from Star Trek V. They're all kind of revealed to be Rogue Q. There's a book that came out some years ago. I think it was 2007. Um, called Q&A. Which features Q. It's a book meeting with Picard. And kind of like what happens with the Key 2 times. So with the Grace. These beings that show up there swatting the Guardians around. And you, I'm not saying it's a bad concept. But I, what I'm saying is that it, it, it has some implications of a slippery slope. of More and more and more increasingly unknowable powerful beings that you'll never see. You could probably only use them once, and, not, and really, maybe even less than once, meaning, okay, they show up, but you can't know anything about them. They're just so powerful that it's going to be a conceit of the story that they don't crush the universe out of existence. But you've never seen them before, and you'll never see them again. So the narrative weight of the characters is almost automatically, by design, undercut and undermined. So this happens in the novel Q&A. 
where Q shows up and reveals to Picard, oh, Picard, there are these beings, and they're called them. And they are the ones that created this universe, and they created all these other universes, and they destroyed all these other universes, and they're about to destroy this universe. And there's nothing I can do, because they are as far beyond me, the Q, as the Q are beyond humanity. And I'm thinking to myself, well, we'll, we'll never see them again. And this, like, one book is, like, could be the overarching mythology of the series, where it all, of all of Star Trek. And the only thing that keeps them from destroying the Star Trek universe is when Picard sees Q and them, whatever they are, however they're represented, casually discussing the destruction of the universe, Picard starts laughing. And them, this race, they decide, oh, well, because he's laughing, it's so human. And it's, it's a nice little trope. But again, it's almost like it's a very human thing to do, but in terms of narrative scope, that's all you can do, because if you were to ever feature these characters again, guaranteed, it would probably be the only way that you, you would have to just keep returning to that trope. Oh, they did a human thing. He laughed, or he cried. Something very simple. Oh, we don't understand this. Oh, well, then they're worthy of surviving. I'm not saying that doesn't have weight, but I'm saying it can only be done once before it becomes a one-trick pony. Characters like these other things, I think, should be... And so that's how I translate it back to, to the Time Lords and Gallifrey. Like, there are such amazing things, but I think that there are some holes in the continuity that you could um, plug. And I have thought of ways to do this. Uh, and I think it's a lot of fun. I don't say this with conceit or bragging. I'm just saying that's the fun of being uh, trying to be creative and, being, and writing, is that you can come up with ways to bolster and justify um, and... Um, make an example of your th my line of thinking. So when I say I think the Guardians are from Gallifrey, that they are ancient Time Lords, I'm not just saying that. Meaning, oh, well, that's what they are. I'm saying that I have some story ideas. And so watch the space. <laughs> and so, uh, finally, we have the last question that uh, Mark has provided for this segment of The Confidential, which is um, one of my thoughts on other rogue Time Lords that we've met throughout the series. And it's a wonderful question, too. Because although we have seen, in terms of rogue Time Lords, the Master, and, and that he's pretty much the omni-rogue Time Lord, he's shown all the time. Um, and you, but you have other examples of people that have shown up once or twice, or once but in such a very powerful way, a very wonderful story that you, you remember them. Characters like uh, the Monk, Omega, um... Rassilon, uh, the Ronnie, uh, mentions of the Corsair. We really. One thing is that if you think of other time modes that have appeared, they've tended to appear um, more so in the classic series because in the new series, by design, in the during and post Time War era, you really don't have many other time modes running around. Like you're just the Doctor, and it tends to be just the Master. If you, if you have another villainous renegade Time Lord. Um, and that's still the case. That's still the case, given where the series is now. Um, I imagine, however, that you're gonna we're gonna see a lot of other time lords showing up, probably in series thirteen, but from this new past, the timeless child era past. And we will see how that goes. Um, and I, I can't really say much more about that because we I don't know what's coming. Excuse me. But in terms of, you know, these other renegade timelines, that I would include things like the Black Guardian. I'm going to be honest. For me, you have to one thing to understand about me, then, as I've said now for quite a length, the Guardians are timelines. Therefore, rogue enemy agents like 
the Black Guardian, or the Celestial Toymaker, who, not many people know this, but this was the intention, that the Celestial Toymaker, who has been enfolded into the Guardian range, the original intention of the uh, Shoners at the time is that he was a Time Lord. Not a, no, not called a Time Lord, but that he was a member of the Doctor's race, just like the Monk. Never called a Time Lord, but clearly a member of the Doctor's race. So you, you have the first Doctor encountering really two time, rogue Time Lords in his era, on screen. The Monk and the Toymaker. And I know that people would say, well, the Toymaker's got all these crazy powers that Time Lords don't have. Well, how do we know that? And in the context of the t way that we see Time Lords act in the War Games and in the Pertwee era, and no joke, um, something like the fourth Doctor story, The Abandoned. It's an audio where the Doctor encounters within the walls of the TARDIS an earlier um, owner of the TARDIS, Mariana. And this lady, and I guess and these are my thoughts on the Time Lords too, and also a little bit time back to things like the Time Lords being Guardians, the powers that that lady, that, this Time Lady, this ancient Time Lady, is wielding are so like... Uh, we're not talking just like, oh, the mental powers of the Time Lords from, like, the war games, but she's got powers that you've seen something like the Toymaker um, employing, you know, creating beings, or, or the Guardians doing, or the Grace, you know. And, and I should say that um, if I think the Guardians are Time Lords, then I think the Grace are, too. <laughs> what is the relation of the Guardians and the Grace? Oh, I'm keeping that a trade secret for now, but, oh, I, have an, but I have an answer. But in any case, uh, I know that I might be sounding a little coy and braggadocious, and I apologize if I do, but I'm just trying to keep some mystery, a little bit of showmanship. But, um, but someone like a Mariana, there is a realm within Doctor Who where you can have these Time Lords that show up, ancient Time Lords, that have the mental creative powers of on a level of the Guardians. And why do I say, and, and therefore, what is the implication? Well, maybe the Guardians are Time Lords. I'm sure that's not the intention of those stories. But you can you can use that as a weight of evidence, saying, well, if Time Lords can have these mental abilities. If one does, there's no reason to say that others can't. And therefore, the original idea of the Toymaker being a member of the Doctor's race holds a little more weight. Because yes, he has these crazy powers. But then so do some other Time Lords. It's rare. In a nutshell, my idea is that, just briefly going back to that, that the, you, ancient time was dark time. We know that they had tremendous powers. Well, that sounds like the Guardians, right? And, and other things. Um, so so you have a range of beings in these other time wars, renegade time wars that we've met. And with different motivations and different abilities. Um, some are just purely evil, like the Master. Um, or... Or, and desperate like a Morbius. Some are very cold and clinical like the Ronnie. Um, some are um, idealistic and driven mad by the idealism like Borussia. Some are, are infinitely um, hubristic and driven to despair and, and, and tragedy by their, by their pursuit of power and godhood like Omega. Some are kind of more uh, kind of complicated political figures in that again fall to pow from fall from grace like Rassilon. It almost seems to be a, if there's there are certain races in Doctor you can definitely say are cursed. The Daleks are cursed. The Cybermen are cursed. I think you could say maybe there's something like the Sontarans to a certain extent are cursed. Um, I would say the Toclophane, future humanity. The Toclophane are cursed. Meaning what? That means that their destiny, their nature, the choices that they've made have led them to such a vile, wretched, 
and, you could argue, almost unholy condition. Uh, a, a terrible fate, a terrible life, an existence. That their life, that their life is almost death. Because they exist in such a way that's contrary to, to life itself. That all that they can do is destroy um, themselves, destroy others. Um, I think the time ones are kind of, in a way, cursed too, in that, no, I think they are, and that they are bound to be hated. And even many of the best of them are driven to destruction. Because the, and in my opinion, this is the case because the more they discover the powers that they have, they are already a, a society that is corrupted, absolutely. But imagine what happens when you have a society and a people that are so that are corrupted absolutely, and they discover, well, guess what? We have even greater absolute... The absolute power that we have is not absolute power. There's even greater power. And then what levels of corruption can you find? Well, you see that in many of these in their renegades. That for various reasons, more amoral or unethical or scientific or militaristic, in any case, they are. They are a people that even their greatest their greatest figures can become monsters. Even with the character of the Doctor, you have the Valayard. And it's, uh, that's something that has been a very interesting concept to, to explore. Um, and the nature of, well, what makes a good Time Lord? In the nature, you know, of what defines good and evil. In the context, sometimes you could argue, although I, I certainly feel that from a human perspective you have good and you have evil, um, but from a time lord perspective, from a different, like a base change of numbers, I, I'm a, as I said before, I'm a computer scientist, I also have a, a math degree, and so a lot of, some things I think on my, on, in other parts of my life, my other side of my brain, you think of base changes of math, you know, from base 2 to base 10 or whatever, binary, or decimal, and things or such, hex, <laughs> you, you have to convert from one thing to another, and so you, if you, convert your viewpoint from a human viewpoint to a time lord viewpoint. Good and evil are probably different things. Um, but they exist for them. And maybe the idea of good and evil for time lord is conformity and, and rebellion. Conformity, uh, obedience, order. Um, and from that idea, if you, were to, if you include the guardians in this sort of thing, the black guardian would perhaps be almost a more cl cl a little closer to the doctor in that sense, in that he's maybe a more of a a renegade from his people, um, in that he's driven by chaos. You could say though that that would that that would be an interesting view on the on the master. Well, as the master, since he's driven by chaos as well, does that make him from the viewpoint of the, of the time lords good or evil? Certainly evil, but um, it would be his own view of what is good individuality and freedom and such. It's very interesting, but of course, being such as that, like the Master want to control all others. So, freedom for me, but not for thee, so to speak. The, you have a lot of very, a lot of, it gives you a different perspectives on what makes a villain a villain, or an anti-hero an anti-hero, or a hero a hero, through this very vast range. Funny enough, though, that, and that maybe it's the conceit of the series that you have such a wide range of renegades and ways to explore these concepts, but more often than not, you just have the master. Because of, because really the simplest thing is the hero versus the villain. The doctor versus the master. But then sometimes you have the doctor versus Rassilon, or the doctor versus Omega. 
has has been a long time. The Doctor versus the Ronnie is something that's very interesting. I think the Doctor versus the Monk is one that I would love to see. I would love to see a little bit more of this character because the Monk, as much as I, as much as I would love to have the first Doctor have a, a, a story with the Master on television, I, I I recognize in a way resign myself to saying that's not going to happen because although some people have tried to you know and I can understand why to do this this would be easy too easy for me all oh, the monk the master the monk the war chief and the master are all the master some people said that I think one thing I think it was the FASA game or something from the 80s or something maybe the 70s which equated those three time lords as the one the master I fully agree that the war chief is the master but I don't think the monk is the master um, motivations are different and I think there you have a very interesting concept before the master of a character uh, a time lord character that was a um that's not a villain. You can have renegades from the society that are perhaps um, simply a difference of viewpoint. And it's an interesting idea when you think about co the contrast between the Doctor and the Master, actually the Doctor and the Monk. Um, and sadly, at least on screen, that's purely Hartnell Butterworth. And I say sadly not because of the characters, though they're wonderful, but we never have had a chance to see the monk return. I just read it just a few minutes ago, a little article apparently that Peter Harness, who was working in the, uh, as a writer in the, in the Capaldi era, has revealed that he pitched a storyline that never happened um, as an origin story for the monk. I think it was would have been called How the Monk Got His Habit, <laughs> a pun on the fact that monks wear uh, their clothing is called a habit. Um, so... It would have been nice to have the monk back again, but even now, for 54 years of counting since we last saw the monk on screen, but back in that era. It's an interesting contrast of the monk versus the doctor. It's not good versus evil. It's, um... You could think of it as traditional versus radical. It's a little bit of order versus chaos when you think of it. The first doctor is not a chaotic guy too much. He certainly has... Maybe he's more time lord in the sense of, well, you can't... Uh, rewrite history, not one line. That's his ethical standpoint. And that resonates throughout history, and that he's trying to, throughout this history of the Doctor, that he's trying to preserve the history in a way. And yet, he, other doctor, various other Doctors are a little more cavalier, or a little more loose, or a little more liberal, so to speak, or radical in their interpretation. And so, whereas the Doctor and the Master, for the most part, are going to be just, and you need this, the more kind of archetypal good versus evil, hero versus villain, right versus wrong. Um, the Doctor and the Monk could have a more varied relationship depending on the Doctor and the, and the Monk in that it's not a, a hero versus a villain, but it's a, a, a preserver versus a, a disruptor uh, or a meddler. In that case, a preserver versus a meddler. The time meddler. In fact, the Doctor calls the monk a time meddler, so that implies that maybe there's a section of time or society, from the standpoint of someone that knows the rest of the history of the series. Could there be a section of time or society that are meddlers? Are there a group of time lords that are time meddlers? You have time lords and time meddlers, which are time lords, of course, but... And the story itself is called the time meddler. It's an interesting... Sometimes he's called the meddling monk. Otherwise, it's just the monk. Um... It's, it's a very interesting concept that I wish we had more, quote-unquote, time to explore in this series. Um, one thing that I think is, a, is a tr practically a tragedy, we never got to see it happen, is um, 
is the uh, is uh, Patrick Troughton and Peter Butterworth uh, paired together on screen. Um, I don't want to give away too much uh, future plans, but um, let's just say that someone that I know f- for certain reasons um, was watching the Time Meddler, and uh, and then he was watching. Also, he happened to watch a, a Patrick Troughton episode. He watched the Three Doctors, and when he watched the Three Doctors, he said, "Oh, I, I see. Um, I see. Um, he, I see." Putty, uh, and I should say this prefaces by saying that he he made this quote unquote mistake by because he's not a he's not a Whovian. He hasn't watched much of Doctor Who, but he was watching these stories for a reason. And he watched the Three Doctors. And said, "Oh, I see. Pat, uh, Peter Butterworth was in um, was in uh, this story." And I said, well, "What do you mean?" Oh, the Three Doctors said, "Oh, that that's oh no, that's not him. That's Patrick Troughton." He said, "Oh my gosh, they look they look like almost identical." And it's funny that he said that, because I've often felt that not only do Peter Butterworth and Patrick Trenton have a strong physical resemblance, Butterworth's a little more square-faced, but even so, their their coloring, their hair color, eye color, everything, and and their mannerisms are very similar. I think it's a real shame that we never got to see Trouton and Butterworth together because, not just the fun of the actors together, but because it would have been such an interesting thing in the late 60s, mid-late 60s, to see how the writers might have compared or contrasted the Doctor Monk dynamic um, in comparison, and therefore hopefully contrast to the dynamic between the first Doctor and the Master. Excuse me, the Monk. We know how the first Doctor and the Monk interact. We never got to see how the second Doctor and the Monk interacted of that era. Yes, there. Spoilers is the audio of the Black Hole, where the where Rufus Hound playing the Monk appears with Patrick Troughton's Doctor. They're played by Fraser Hines, but even so. It's it's a performed moment in Doctor Who, but it is a recreation um, of the era, which doesn't make it less. It just means it's of a different. It's made in different era, but even so, it's not the Butterworth Monk. It's explicitly a different Monk. So we get to have the contrast, but really would have been nice to see how you have the contrast between the same actor playing the Monk, the same Monk, but different Doctors, because Hartnell and Troughton are very much reflections of one another. You can talk about the Doctor himself as being reflected amongst amongst himself. Some doctors are very starkly contrasted from the uh, from the one that came before the one that came after. Sometimes more than others, but very much all the time. Um, and the monk, I feel, is a very interesting character. Like I said, because because he is um, he's not a villain, but he is opposed to the doctor. But the re- at the root of all this is y- who's really right. You will probably side, you'll usually side with the doctor because kind of a viewer loyalty and knowledge that he's the good guy, and because he's usually fighting the villains, the bad guys. But is it such a bad thing when you think about it that the monk is trying to change history? Is he trying to destroy the world? No, he's trying to set history on what he considers to be a better track. Now, is it his right to say what is a better history than what we already know? That's a big question. By the same token, it is, is it the Doctor's right to zealous, to uh, to preserve such zeal, what he perceives to be um, the right course of history, which is the one, that, the history that we know. And he even gets into further interesting philosophical ideas when, um, when you have Doctor Who in certain episodes that show, relative to the production of the episode, future Earth. And I'm not just talking about, you know, things a thousand years in the future, even from now, but then maybe 50 years in the future. The Enemy of the World is a prime example, because when it was lost, the story, 
Um, there was never any stated indication of when it took place. We just know, well, sometime in the 21st century. And for a long time it was thought, well, maybe the mid-21st century, maybe the 2060s, maybe 2030, but mid-21st century. When the episodes were found, you discover, oh, goodness, it's 2018. When they were found and revealed to the public, it was then five years in the future. Now it's two years in the past. We've surpassed something like the enemy of the world. Well, the... Granted, this is fiction, but from a philosophical perspective, the future is now the past. And that future is quite a bit different from this present. No one's walking around, not too many people walking around with kind of leather or, uh, you know, well, navy jackets, all the, everyone, especially everyone's looking like the master. People aren't walking around. The world doesn't have um, zones and, and controllers for the zone. Like the European zone and such. Um, there was never um, Ram Ramon uh, Salamander. I'm, I think he's from the Yucatan, Ramon Salamander. There was never. Uh, I think he's from Mexico. Yeah, he's meant to be from the Yucatan of Mexico, but there's no Ramon Salamander who was such a major figure on the world stage in 2018. Now, of course, it's fictional. What I am saying, though, is history, established history of Doctor Who and its future, we've started to reach some of that established future history. Doctor Who has started to outlive, or at least out, um, out re, um, um, it started to reach and to um, catch the, the dreams of its own future. The series has lasted that long. It started to, we started to rewrite history, so to speak, with real history, overriding the fiction. And so there are some definite divergences. And so from a viewer perspective now, it's like, when you watch the stories, we have to preserve this future history. Well, that's a history that doesn't exist. It's fiction, but also for us, part of the fiction being immersed in the fiction is, oh, it could, this could be us. Something like The Enemy of the World is is an interesting spot. I just watched, um, I said I've watched The Awakening, I also watched Warriors of the Deep, so you can tell I'm watching season 21. <laughs> um, I just watched it, and 2084 is still 64 years from now, but... Um, we could hit that. It could be like that in the future, but, you know, will it be? Who knows? But it's certainly a, a, a viewpoint of the future that's born out of the Cold, you know, the cold War that was still happening in 1983-84, although it was on the wane. Even so, you, it was, in real history, the Cold War was beginning to be on the, was almost at the end. It was on the wane. Um, maybe not but not, perhaps, but not publicly, perhaps. I don't know of the era, the times directly, but but publicly it seemed to be very strong. Privately, behind the scenes, it was on the wane. Um, certainly within the, in a couple of years. But um, but the public perception was, oh, it's as strong as ever, it will never end, and therefore it's still happening 100 years from now. Well, um, will it be that case? Maybe, maybe not, but what I am saying is that it's an interesting perspective seeing something that was made about 35 or so years ago and then watching it now. But what happens when you overcome and go past that future? I say that to, to frame it something like the Doctor and the Monk. The Monk is trying to change history for what he calls the better. Well, may, maybe he doesn't have the right to say it's better, but does the Doctor have the right to say that what exists, that to preserve what is, is better? The question is why? Then it, it kind of opens the door to certain events, which is, it's not so much that this is the best version of history, but it is the version of history. What makes it the version of history? That's the big question. Are there some long-term goals that the Time Lords have in preserving history? 
what has determined that this is the 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 that that what is established is established, and then of course you get into things like well then why why is history being changed all the time in the past or the future on an alien planet? Maybe it's not so much always that it's established history is is must be preserved, but maybe Earth's history must be preserved, and maybe certain other key planets, nexus planets, as it's called in various stories. Maybe Earth's history, for whatever reason, is known from beginning to end, and probably including New, New Earth. I like to think, personally, that that Earth, even in the new series, although it's been destroyed and replaced by New Earth, I like to think that New Earth is, is Earth. Um, they've already established that, you know, Earth, as we knew it was, the continents were all over the place, but then reestablished. Well, who's to say that Earth wasn't mistaken <laughs> for another planet or something? That maybe Earth was moved. We know that the Earth was moved before by Ravelox and such. What if it was never quite moved back? That's something to consider. It's never stated that it's moved back. What if Earth was never moved back? Uh, but some other planet took its place. Who knows? What I am saying is that you could manipulate. I like, and, and of course you also have the fact that Earth is supposedly destroyed in the television story, The Ark. A totally different time frame. What I'm saying is that you have interesting ideas and you can spin them in certain ways. Maybe it's only the Earth's history that's known. Or in general. Maybe there are only certain planets that are known. And they affect others. But other planets whose history are not so set or understood or known, you can change. But that it, that's a dynamic between the Doctor and the Monk that I would love to see developed more. And, um, and given what I just said about my friend who uh, was watching the Time Meddler and later the Three Doctors... Um, Again, maybe, and just as I'm watching, I watched all the perch we are to prepare for the final game, um, and I'm now I'm watching season 21. You can, I'll just simply just say this, maybe there's a little hint of a pattern of watching television episodes to prepare for something. And I've been talking about the monk quite a bit. Hmm, good question why. <laughs> um, but you have, it's almost the, the way that Doctor Who sometimes cheats itself in terms of its variability. It always goes back to the Doctor and the Master, and I love that, and I cannot get enough of it. But sometimes I, I would love it if, if we could return to other Time Lords and explore how the Doctor reacts to other forms of villainy or other forms of tyranny or other forms of other perspectives, ones which he opposes. It would be very interesting if you had a renegade Time Lord who appeared that the, do that the Doctor, um, where the Doctor felt more aligned, like perhaps Campbell or Mposhe, but even there, from the Planet of the Spiders, even there as a Time Lord... It's a, he has a very different viewpoint, the Doctor's old hermit, his old mentor, who doesn't so much accuse, but maybe discusses the Doctor's greed. But as Terence Dix has said, um, he felt it was really a, a misinterpretation of the Third Doctor, because, as he said, John Pertwee was not a greedy man. And the Third Doctor is not a greedy person. And is it really greedy to want to pursue knowledge? Perhaps if it starts to endanger, endanger others or yourself, but of course, there's always danger, certainly of others. But like I said, I'm not so. I I agree fully with Terence Sticks that I don't think the Doctor was a greedy man. I think that from the perspective of Campbell Rampasha, he is. But again, those are different perspectives. I think that's a one man's perspective. Doesn't mean you dismiss it, but that doesn't mean that defines the Doctor. It's a person's another person's interpretation of the Doctor. A little bit like how in the New Adventures you had many dream sequences or events that were hinting that the sixth doc the seventh Doctor killed the Val um, seventh Doctor 
engineered his own creation and killed his previous incarnation, which would lead to creation of the Valayard. But that was never stated directly. It's all done through dreams and metaphor and other people saying such. So it's an interesting idea that you don't dismiss, but it gives you manip um, manipulation room within the narrative. Narrative manipulation. Um, same thing with something like the relationship between the Doctor and Kampa Rinpoche. Um, another character I would love to see again. Um... In, in, the, in, the, in the nature of the series. The problem is that, with the exception of the Master, most of these Time Lord Renegades have appeared only once. Most, not all. But, at the, but again, at the most, you might have a couple times, like Omega, or, or the Monk, or the Rani. They're the lucky ones that get maybe a second appearance. The only one of the few that actually has a multiple appearances um, throughout the series is Barusa. Barusa is a very interesting one. Because this gets back to maybe does the society itself of Time Lord's history corrupt the person the more they discover about them, about their people, about their powers, about themselves. Barusa starts, we see him in, he's really unique in that other than the Doctor, he's, we probably see him the most varied, other than the Doctor and maybe the Master. And we see him in four different um, incarnations. Rassilon, I suppose, comes close. I think we've seen him in three different on screen, but a fourth at least in the audio zone, or fifth really. Maybe half a dozen. But Barusa, you have in four different incarnations. And he goes from being a rather haughty, but but decent, but rather haughty and kind of a, a very dismissive of fools um, incarnation, the Deadly Assassin, to a more stately and, but maybe a little more kindly and, and, um, and wise um, version in the Invasion of Time, to the rather... Um, quite um, um, warm and and welcoming, uh, friendly version that we see in the Ark of Infinity, and then to the back to the more mysterious and aloof and colder version we see in the Five Doctors. But then, of course, it's because he's gone mad and he's creating a facade. A very interesting story arc. You have another little, like I say, if you have like a mini arc, but from War Games to maybe Calling Space, but Three Doctors to Deadly Assassin, then you have another bigger arc from. That story, to Invasion Time, to Arkham Infinity, to the Five Doctors with Barusa, and kind of the Doctors exploring the Doctors' complicated and fraught history, and then kind of almost a truce to a certain extent in the Five Doctors. And then, of course, then you have the, the, the Trial of a Time, which is his own situation, which maybe, again, gives him kind of a further truce, a final truce, <laughs> to, the, to the Doctor, and, and at the time in the classic era, though I'm sure it gets, of course, it gets worse. But in any case, you can explore how the Doctor is with Bruce, another mentor figure, another mentor figure, someone who he trusts and admires, Doesn't just, not necessarily warm and friendly, but but there is a maybe a mutual respect, certainly that devolves, and in fact goes closer over the years, to the point where, you know, in, in Arkham when Barusa sees the fifth Doctor, he says, you too have regenerated. There is a sense of he's recognizing the Doctor as... You get the sense that by the time you get to the five doctors, excuse me, the um, Arkham Finney, that Barusa, over time, has maybe come to, and these experiences have come to, has come to accept the doctor as a little more like a, maybe like a, like a peer. A kind of a, a, a son figure or something. They're a little more like peers. And, um, and so he's not just saying, oh, Doctor, there you are, but he's not just saying, oh, Doctor, you've regenerated, but you also have regenerated. Look, we've, we've shared an experience. Um, there's a real... That's why it, what, what makes something like the figure of Bruce so tragic is because he... 
there is that growing warmth and, and friendship that you see, maybe not quite friendship, but maybe so, at least how the, the interpretation of Barusa and that's in Arkham Finney. There's a growing closeness to those characters. They've gone through the trenches, so to speak. They've battled the Master, they've battled the Santarns and the Vardens. Uh, now we have Omega, and perhaps other adventures off-screen. Now we have Omega, this renegade. And then eventually, oh my goodness, the Master's back, but now he's battling himself, you know, he's battling Barusa. It's, uh, that's a tragedy because it, you didn't see two characters going farther apart. You saw them at a distance coming together. And then suddenly, once they're together, and then suddenly it's the, it's cold again because the, me, the, the teacher and the mentor and maybe even the beginnings of a friend has now become an enemy because he's gone mad. Very sad. Very sad story arc, but a wonderful character plot, uh, arc. Very tra the tragedy of Barusa. Um, it's very interesting, you know, because those are some of the timers that you see really throughout the first 20 years of the series. You see the monk, and and um, and then you see the master, and Omega, and I've mentioned Omega, and then and all throughout Bruce, and that largely covers really from Hartnell to, that covers really Hartnell to Davison. Excuse me, I should then take a moment to cover these earlier things, just really quickly. Um, other characters like the toy maker, time lords like the toy maker, because he is meant to be a, to a time lord, and um, of this era. And who else was there? Uh, Morbius. Well, the toy maker is very interesting. Sadly, most of his episodes are gone, but he's, he's appeared in other such stories in the books and the comics and the audio since. Um, very interesting character, the toy maker. Again. Most people don't associate him as a Time Lord, but that was the original intention, and since he's a Guardian, I think the Guardians are Time Lords, well. Uh, it shows a Time Lord, a very remote Time Lord, that probably is so ancient and so powerful that he can only exist within his own realm, for the most part. Um, and there's so little left. It shows what happens when the society is so decadent that all that you have left are little games to amuse yourself across eternity. Um... But it, that, since you can't amuse yourself with so much, that is the joy, that's the fulfillment of your life, is manipulating other little beings. It really gives you a sense of what it really is a perfect match for the Time Lords of the Dark Times in um, mentioned in the Five Doctors. These beings that you could I would probably imagine, therefore, that probably maybe the Toymaker made the, constructed the Death Zone, or was one of them. Probably are, was the architect of the Death Zone, very likely, because you have a lot of games there. Pe beings brought there to to, the, you know, play the game of Rassilon. Of course, if the game of Rassilon's there, again, interesting ties that Rassilon was probably around there, uh, contemporary with these beings. Um, it's a very interesting little story, but the Toymaker's a very cool little character because he's very remote, has a history with the Doctor, um, very powerful, very um, outside. You're outside the normal universe, so as far as we know, Within the, his realm, and within this realm, the toy maker is all, and yet the doctor still can fairly reduced because of real world circumstances. William Hartnell's health was fairly poor at that point, and so he, there was a strong thought of replacing him. So he's mostly rendered invisible, and without a voice, you just maybe see a hand at times. From what I understand, most of the episodes are missing, but I believe so. You see maybe the doctor's hand, or maybe nothing, just pieces move, uh, game pieces and such. There is that real sense of, oh my goodness, the real danger. So you have these beings, you have a, t uh, some, a time where they can, that can push around people like his own, from, from his own race, like a 
being on a, a piece on a, a board. But then it shows what happens when the, the board pushes back. Very interesting. Um, and of course, there are the things in Revelation shown in later books and such, talking that he's um, a, something from a different time and space. You would say, well, that means he can't be a time lord. Oh, well, um, that just means, in my opinion, that gives you a place for creativity. And um, and remember, the Time Lords are, you know, when they travel through time, and the Tardises and Gallifrey are outside time and space. So that, that means maybe it's a different time and space. I'm not trying to sound too coy and um, contrary. What I'm saying is that that's how I'm thinking. You have all these pieces, how do, and these pieces that you can add, connect. And you take the pieces that you have and, create, and um, spin a story for them and construct a, a, a concept, a narrative from the characters and the evidence that you have. There's also Morbius. I really enjoy Morbius. Just the, the Frankenstein element of just, you know, something cobbled together. A being that uh, is, is a, not even a shadow of his former self. But, again, just the, the, the folly of... The, not so much tragedy for this character, because he's not a, really a tragic figure. He's a... He's a... The, 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 the pride coming before the fall. Well, you've seen the fall already. And, and then, therefore, the, the pride is there. Very powerful. It's the folly of pride. They all have it, but Morbius really shows him. That's all that he is at that point. It's just his pride that refused to refuses to die, and views all of the life as as more than more than inferior, but 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 um, unworthy of his of of existence. And uh, when he. Child, when he when he's taunt, when he's scoffing at the doctor saying I am the uh, time one of the first strength well, who are you oh I'm no one I'm no one and yet I'm here to fight you in other words I'm no one just like you <laughs> you're more potpourri that should be a more appropriate name for you because he's fodder almost like compost you know organic you know he, uh, remain he, the, the remains of his body that's all it's it's there, there is a, a, a disturbing element to morbius and that he's nothing more than just pieces um held together by his own will and the zeal of 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 lackeys like solon it's a very scary concept um it's been neat to have morbius come back in the in the books and the audios i would hope i hope this we certainly see morbius again and in the audios, I think he would be great to have in the Time War. I think he would be a wonderful character to have in the Time War. I'm surprised we haven't seen him yet. In fact, to be very honest, I'm sure that we will. Um, but uh, you have wonderful concepts there. Beyond the Davison era, of course, the Ronnie, I should mention. Um, and the Ronnie is someone that is, again, a wonderful, just like the monk is a good contrast from the, doc, the master. Except here, so is the Ronnie, except here we get to see the Ronnie and the Master together. And so you see it up close. It's not just your thoughts and, and conjecture and, you know, interpretations. And interpolations of the character. You can just, you see it right in the mix. How the Master and the Ronnie are interplaying. It's quite a volatile relationship. Um, I could almost... Uh, it's too simple probably to say, well, they might have been once, you know, romantically involved because... The master does not act like someone who's been rejected, in my opinion, <laughs> but more like someone that is, likes to taunt. Um, in my opinion, if anything, it almost seems like we, a hint of... 
it could be one of two, a few things. Maybe the Rani was never interested and she's just totally disgusted that the Master even is pretending or taunting with the idea. Maybe she was once interested in the Master, but is disgusted with herself that she even considered... I personally think that she probably was never interested in the Master. I think that she's just simply... Uh, I think that... I like to think of the Master and his inter my interpretation of how he's dealing with her. He's always calling her brilliant and brilliant and brilliant. Because I think he's... he's um, he is insulting her. Because I doubt that he really thinks that she's brilliant. I think that he's saying that to lull her into some security. And the, the insult is that, for the Ronnie's perspective, she's insulted, she's being insulted, because she, he knows that he knows that she's not going to be um, played and, and persuaded or... or seduced by his his favors or his his praise but he's still doing it to insult and annoy her because that would perhaps rattle her um he, because the way that i see the ronnie especially in mark of the ronnie is that she is such a cold aloof distant and unnatural type of person meaning having no natural feelings um is she evil? Well, compared to the master, perhaps not. But she is very immoral, unfeeling. She's clinical, not to a fault, but to a perfection. She is a scientist. A tyrannical scientist, perhaps. But even her subject, she's not ruling over them as a tyrant in the sense of, oh, do my bidding. She's using them as, as presumably, on the planet Myasemia Goria. They are her test subjects. A race of test subjects. Now, I know that the audios... I haven't heard the audio plan the Ronnie. I know that they've explored with the Shaban Redmond Ronnie, her relationship to the uh, beings of that planet. It'll be very interesting to see. I, I look forward to listening to that audio. But it's, um... There's a lot of interesting stuff that you could do with the Ronnie. She's a renegade, perhaps she's been cast out because some of her experiments maybe caused trouble. I would be very interesting to know, interested to know more about it. But again, it's the conceit a little bit, is that you have so many interesting characters and, and varied doctor, quote-unquote, um, rogue relationships... But it always just kind of, even though I love it, it evolves to the Doctor and the Master. And I think it's, at this point it's always going to be that way. I don't think you're going to ever replace the Master with um, with some other characters. Um, it's interesting that um, in the book I wrote, Times Champion of the Chaplain, and Craig Hinton wrote a story called Aspects of Evil for a Charity. I think it was called, oh, I... Not sure which I think it was called Missing Pieces, but in that in that he wrote a story called Aspects of Evil, which had the Thirteenth Doctor, and and it, there were several references to the ba the Master, but in the same breath, so to speak, there were references to the Chaplain. So it's interesting how there was perhaps an intention on Craig's part to establish the Chaplain as a a rival in terms of villainy and um, a threat to the Doctor in the form of the Chaplain, someone to rival the Master in terms of importance, but. Uh, um, of course, we only see the chaplain in Times Champion. Craig had plans. I can say that. He had plans to feature the the chaplain in a novel, a Seventh Doctor novel called Thy Kingdom Come, which would have been a sequel to um, his Fifth Doctor novel, The Crystal Bucephalus. Of course, that was never made, sadly. And um, I'd love to do something with it, of course, but but there was... There, there was no real story there, so... 
but he told me a few little notes, which I'll keep to myself just for the fun of it and also for spoilers' sake. So, yes, I, that might be a long-term pipe dream goal to do something with that story, that kingdom come, and feature the chaplain again. But, um... But you have these characters, really, that there's so much variance and so much joy and, and, and intrigue and, and rich, different textures. It's kind of a... In the irony... And maybe the contradiction for me is that as much as I love seeing the master in every story, because he almost he dominates the role of renegade time lord, evil renegade time lord, Doctor Who. That you, there's room, but there's often never. But it's that room to feature the time lords is an empty space largely, even the new, especially in the new series. Because once you get, I've mentioned all these characters and these different eras. In the Seventh Doctor, you have the Ronnie again, very different, really, from Mark of the Ronnie. Uh, in the story Time of the Ronnie, you have Lady Painfort, who um, you think, oh, she's not a Time Lord. I think it's pretty clear that she, you know, the back history of the novels, and certainly what I wrote in Time Champion, that she's a renegade member of the Sisterhood of Karn. So she's a, if not a Time Lady, she's definitely related to them. But beyond that, um. Well, I'm trying to think of the... Have there been any Time Lords introduced in the Eighth Doctor's era? Because beyond that, once you get in the new series, you not you, by, by kind of design, you're not really going to have any too many other renegade Time Lords running around. Um, well, you have certain characters that are popular. Well, you, of course, in the Eighth Doctor's era, or the Seventh, you the Eleven. Um, you have um, the Doom Coalition, Pandak and the Sonomancer and everything, and um, you have um, Zagreus, pretty cool. You have Rassilon. Rassilon becomes kind of more the villain in the McGann era that you see in, or at least this more tyrannical or authoritative figure in the R tail end of the RTD era, in the end of time, and then in the Capaldi era and such. Um, you really have, um, you have several characters that appear, but like I said, sadly, or Cardinal Olistra, I think from the, uh, from the audios, the Time War era audios as well. So you, you have other renegades, but a lot of these stories, I haven't, I haven't heard these stories, so I can't really speak to them much. Um, I haven't got to them yet. So I'm kind of reaching the limits of the, somewhat of what I know, although, you have very obscure things like Madrigal, who was a character from the comics in the, I think in 1974, I think, Third Doctor Sarah Jane. Um, you have other things like Astrolabus from the Sixth Doctor comics. Um, oh, goodness. You have very obscure things. You have the, like, oh, you had a general from the Fifth Doctor on the Stockbridge comics, I think. Um, I don't know if it's the same general as you see in the in the new series, you know, with the, in the Capaldi stories, but you have a lot of different characters and such. Cardinal Cardinal Zero from the McGann, uh, from the Davison audio is very interesting character who sought a different type of regeneration situation. Oh, I I can't believe I forgot Drax. Drax is someone I would like to see again because he only appeared once on screen, but his in his one appearance in the audios, he's pretty effectively shown shown and proven himself to be a good opponent for the Doctor because he's manifested all his incarnations in once so they can know future events and plan accordingly. It would be an interesting thing to 
have a follow-up story where how the Doctor will deal with Drax. Will you reboot him in a sense and show him just on his own, or have a way the Doctor is accessing other time periods to counteract Drax's unfair advantage? Good question. Um, and since I've mentioned the Toymaker as a Tomo, yes, I'm considering the other ones to be Tomo, so the Black Guardian or even the White Guardian or such. Um, jury's still out on those because they're so obscure, especially the White Guardian, but uh, I will say this about the Black Guardian. If he is a Time Lord, to me he is, as a Time Lord, being very powerful, very obscure, but with a grudge against the Doctor, um, what has stopped him, kind of beyond the Davison era, what has stopped him from continuing to attack the Doctor over and over again, as you kind of get the sense he was doing in the Fourth and Fifth Doctor's eras? Because um, the Fourth Doctor audios have shown him starting to reappear more than once. So what stopped that trend? Um, you know, you can under that. Who knows? I know. <laughs> I have uh, I have written stories, or not written stories, but I'm planning things for the for the future that might explain what would cause a truce between the characters. Um, so you have a, you have a. In, in total, when it comes to these, when it comes to the, to the renegade time lords, there's more than enough material to explore, and it's sadly though, mostly unexplored. It's sadly very unexplored. I mean, in terms of just basic on screen, uh, we haven't. I mean, even something's recent. Let's go backwards, like Rassilon still presumably out there in his bowship at the end of time. We haven't seen him in in oh, well, five years. And will we see him again? I don't know. I think given Gallifrey's current state, at least present day, quote-unquote, being destroyed, I think it only would make sense that we should probably see him again. Maybe to lament the state of Gallifrey, certainly. Um, but, so we, but, you know, we haven't seen him in five years. Omega we haven't seen on screen since 1983. Mentioned in 88 a lot, but we haven't seen Omega in quite a long time. I know that when Rassilon returned to the end of time, at one point, um, RGD was considering him making that character Timothy Dalton's character Omega, but it makes more sense, in my opinion, and truer to the character, in a way, to have him be Rassilon. But we haven't seen Omega in 37 years. We haven't seen the Ronnie in 33 years. That's not counting dimensions of time, but then that just reduces it about 27 years in terms of on screen. But still, you know, something like getting into around 30 years. The monk. <laughs> well, Morbius, we haven't seen. I was just saying the monk. Morbius, I'll save him the last. Morbius, we haven't seen in. Oh my goodness. 30. 45, 45 years. Gosh. Um, I'm going to count the Guardians. We haven't seen the. White and Black Guardians in 37 years. We haven't seen the... Oh, gosh. We, in terms of on-screen, we would have seen him... Oh, I'll, I'll give a special consideration to the lost stories in the Nightmare Fair. So we... We haven't seen an intended return of the uh, Toymaker in 35 years. But in terms of on-screen, we haven't seen them... We haven't seen him in 54 years. And just over that is the Monk. That's the problem, is that most of these characters haven't been seen in decades. 
And that's and that's kind of the sad thing. And a lot of these characters, cool characters, are not even on, from on screen. Um, we we haven't seen most of these these renegades in in many 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 years. Some of them for more than half a century. Uh, and and so I think that um, being very honest, I was about to, I, I want to say I think it's incumbent upon the the series uh, character you know the series writers to feature them again. But you know, to a certain extent, the series has gone along just fine without them on screen. And that's the sad thing is that you don't have to have them around. Just like Gallifrey and the Time Wars, you don't have to have them, but they are the overarching mythology. As familiar as the, as the master to as, and as recent as the master to as, as, antiquated as the monk to as, as far flung and and obscure in terms of understanding as the, as the guardians plus the toy maker and such, um, but. But it shows you the rich history because you still remember them. But it shows you how rich this history is. That they've, and it shows you how rich the history is because they have in, these characters have endured in the public consciousness, largely thanks to the audios, because most of these characters um, have been appearing with relative frequency, including the monk. The monk has had a renaissance in the audios. It's only been the last ten years that he's been appearing, and only in the last five consistently. But the monk is consistently appearing across all of Doctor Who. He's now, he just recently showed up in a seventh Doctor audio. Um, and I think it's wonderful. Rufus Hound is pretty much the Omni monk now. Omni meaning he's there throughout as far back as Troughton and as far ahead as as the Missy era. So you know, you know Matt Smith Capaldi era, post Time War. And he's and we know that he survived the Time War by becoming human. Um, there's a small conceit to that which is that that probably means you never know but it probably means that you don't really have too many doctor stories with the, with the monk in that post time war era but you know it's all right we he gets to appear with missy but i would love to see one of these later new series doctors meet the monk absolutely i think that would be wonderful marvelous any of these characters um i like to think that the renegade time wars these characters that never really die are the ones that sur have survived gallifrey even barusa somehow um and certainly Omega, I'd love to see Omega again in a big final battle, so to speak. Maybe for the new series. One character that I think, of all these characters, that I think, where I think it is probably a little more incumbent upon the writer, and I think I've mentioned this before, to return is the Valayard. We haven't seen him on screen since 1986. It's now 34 years. He has been showing up, you know, on occasion in the audios, as recently as last year, in a rather, not low-key, but far less perhaps with far less fanfare than I expected, although maybe I'm not noticing. Um, he, for the first time in the third of a century, he shows up in a performed Doctor Who adventure with a Doctor other than the th Sixth Doctor. He meets Began's Doctor. It's amazing. But of course, that's not quite the Valayard. Um, it's, it's, you know, that's an interesting little storyline for those that haven't heard it, because it is recent. I will say spoilers, and I won't say anything more. But, um, um, perhaps there's a statute of limitations on spoilers, you know, if something's from years ago, you know, 50 years ago, yes, I'll mention it. If it's from just last year, maybe the last six months or something, you know, I won't, I won't spoil it. But I think the ballet art should come back, definitely, because if I'm thinking about, maybe in closing, the future of Renegade Time Lords, given where Gallifrey is now, um, 
there is in a weird way a, a sense of you know not featuring too many but just featuring the Doctor and the Master but we've got thanks to the story of the of the Judoon kind of a weird contemporaneous sense of I don't know how ancient but oh much older Gallifrey perhaps even ancient Gallifrey um, existing in the here and now it's a little bit like the two Doctors the second Doctor seems to be just contemporaneous with the sixth sixth but um, so I think we're going to be seeing what's the future of Gallifrey this isn't a question exactly that Mark uh, explicitly asks for this segment, but, you know, for the future, just my thoughts as a addendum, as a closing thought. I think that what we're going to see in Series 13 is more of what we saw in Series 12, which is, um, I think that Gallifrey, as we know it, is gone. I don't think that we're going to see Gallifrey restored in the traditional sense. I think that Gallifrey is gone. Uh, and the time of this, of the, of the, you know, have survived the time war are gone. It's rather almost redundant and sad and almost it's such a waste you could argue but it but they're gone i think what we're going to see is the gallifrey of the past of this new past the timeless children era past um for the doctor so we're going to see more of dr ruth i'm sure and we're going to the the, uh, the fugitive doctor played by joe martin we'll see more of the division we'll find out what was the doctor doing in that era and i my personal theory is that all this will lead to the 60th anniversary the big revelations in Gallifrey, whatever that we see in the 60th anniversary, will be Gallifrey of the past. We may see the, the ruin destroyed Gallifrey again. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't be... I, I expect it. But I really think that in terms of time, we should, should return for this. I think we should see Rassilon again. I think that we should see Omega again. And I think that we should see the Valayard again. Because it's the right time. Twelfth and final incarnation. Probably not the final doctor anymore, but twelfth and something. Well, in terms of numbering... Some, that has to count for something, because it did for so long. So, as much as they knew, that's kind of this time. So I, I really think it would be very nice to have the Valayard return. Um, and I've mentioned that before. But I definitely think that the future of Gallifrey and the Renegades are the ones that we're going to see in the Division. We may even, maybe we'll see past versions of these so ones we've seen, but I doubt that. I doubt that. I think that we're just going to see... Well, being honest, I think we're probably going to see Tech Tayun. Um, and being very frank, I think we must see more of Tech Tayun. Because as a character, it's rather... Whatever you think of the character, or the stuff, the, the concepts revealed in the Timeless Children, a lot of people had a very, and I agree here, very strong reaction to how the narrative devices, which was just all in exposition. And Tech Tayun is, is a voiceless character. We just see her, eventually him, just there. Well, if Tech Tayun is essentially the founder of Timeless Society... I have issues with that kind of re re revision of the history because suddenly, where's Rassilon? Who knows? I think Tech Tehun and Rassilon should probably. It would be interesting if they were to reveal that Tech Tehun is Rassilon. Um, I think you should establish some type of relationship between those two because otherwise, who cares about Rassilon then, even though for the last 50 years they've, we've been talking about him? Um,. But I, I really think that we need to have some further exploration of such things. So I think we should need... I hope that we see Tech Tayun again. I hope that we see more of this division, which... And sep either, either, in my opinion, either tie it to the Celestial Intervention Agency or give it some type of differentiation. Otherwise, it's just simply... It feels a little lazy otherwise. So, yeah, it's, it's this, but it, I'm just calling it that. It's totally different. When it's pretty clear it's not. It's taken on face value from the time of children. It's just the CIA. Celestial Intervention Agency, so something more. Something to either connect it all together, connect this new past into the into 
what we've known or give it a, a clear differentiation. And and like I said, I think that this is all leading to the 60th anniversary. And then the future of the series, I don't know what's beyond it, but that's what I'm thinking is happening. We are seeing a new history being, a new past history being created, in a way a soft or maybe even a hard reboot of Doctor Who. It's past. Um, they're adding a lot, but being very honest, the only way that they can add this type of stuff is is a form of a reboot, because it's, it's a revision of what's come before. It's not necessarily impossible to fit, I suppose, although it's... Although... I fear that taking the viewpoint of, well, canon doesn't exist, there is no canon, that can become a problem, in my opinion, because, in fact, it is a problem, because that means that what you rewrite now can be rewritten again, and then rewritten and rewritten until it becomes, it's not just simply, oh, you have stories that maybe contradict, but they can all can fit, and then you can have a situation where nothing fits, and it becomes very confusing at the least. In my opinion, you have to have some. In creativity, you have to have some sense of a foundation. Um, you have to you have to have a foundation of creativity, not not so much. That doesn't mean oh then you're stuck in a boundary, but that it means you know what it is, you know what you're creating. Um, and so I, I and why you're creating it. And so I certainly hope that whatever's happening now with the, with the series with Gallifrey and the Time Lords and the Master and such that it's not so shifting. We might be playing in a sandbox, but um, I hope that the sandcastles don't all fall so quickly. Well, I've been talking for quite a while about these concepts and, and these answers for the Final Game Part 6, Final Game Confidential Part 6. So I thank everyone again for listening, and I hope I haven't bored too many people. But I hope that I've given some insights into, further insights into my views on on, on the series and on Gallifrey and the, and, the, and the Time Lords and the Master, because um, it's a, I suppose it's a point of privilege of being the author of this series, and I hope that other people can maybe have heard something that what I've said and can inspire, inspire them to write a story or a few about in Doctor Who or their own stories. Just knowing that it is such a rich experience to create a mythology that, that people want to, to study. It's a wonderful experience. Well, thank everyone again for um, listening to the, the continuing uh, the Final Game Confidential. So I said part six, and uh, I hope that you'll all join me for the final uh, story. I said no, it's now in the early morning, it's now 1.51 a.m. on the 15th. I've been such, talking for such a long time now, but but um, as of now, I imagine we're about a, hopefully a month away or less from the release of the final game, part seven. This will be an interesting time to and an interesting stuff to record for that segment. But for now, I'll say goodbye and wish everyone a wonderful evening and... and, uh, and uh, be safe and good and happy, and uh, enjoy listening to the uh, into to the final game. And I hope to um, and everyone will circle circle back for the for the last installment of this confidential. Thank you again. Goodbye. Well, good morning to everyone again. It's twelve forty-two a.m. Uh, on now Monday, the fourth of May, twenty twenty. So for any of the of those Doctor Who fans that are also have a, an intersection with Star Wars enthusiasm, may the fourth be with you. Um, I was going to record this earlier, a couple hours ago, and what this is is the my commentary on the final game, part six, for the sixth in, the sixth installment of the final game, confidential, for the Trap One podcast by Mark McManus. 
I, as I said, I was going to record this a couple hours ago, but I realized that I hadn't um, listened, believe it or not, to all uh, the final game, Part 6, all the way through on the day that it was released, which, as relative to now, was the um, 30th of April, so some four days ago. But um, on that day, I listened to most of it, um, but I had heard some part, uh, parts, some sections already, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll skip those, because I already heard them. Um, um, so, and I thought that that would be fine, but uh, at the time it was fine, because I, I was busy that day, and I had some other things to do, so I listened to the parts that I hadn't heard. But uh, for the purposes of this commentary, I I felt it was best... Um, for myself and for the audience to have my best performance, so to speak, that I should listen to the full episode and have it fresh in my mind. And um, the one risk to that being that uh, it meant it would, I would be recording this fairly late because the episode itself is nearly an hour 15 minutes in length, just shy of an hour 12, it's about 71 or so minutes. Um, about the length, believe it or not, of... Um, the Voyage episode for uh, Doctor Who, the 2007 Christmas special. I know what the title is, but I don't swear. <laughs> and I don't want to even get into the habit of saying uh, words that... So you have a sense of who I am. But for saying words that uh, might not be a swear word in that context, but even so, I don't want to even get onto that part of a slippery slope. So I don't say... I don't swear at all. So that, that, that episode uh, is 71 minutes, the longest of the Christmas specials. Um, so, so is part six of the final game, and therefore that makes this the longest episode in duration of the final game so far, with the closest being after before that episode one at 63 minutes, and then episode five at about f almost 56 minutes. Um, and then uh, I think if we want to go in descending order, episode 3 is about, oh, I don't know, 53 minutes, I think, and then episode 2 at 48 minutes, and then by far the shortest is episode 4 at 37 minutes. As I mentioned before in that confidential, it's a transitional episode. Some important things happen, but in, but not a lot to, not enough to sustain like an hour or close, oh, 45 minutes or, or more. Um... But this episode definitely it has a lot happening, and therefore it carries appreciably beyond an hour. Not much more, but a little more. Like I say, cutting out the credits, it's probably about 70 minutes or so. Um, maybe 71, but in any case, um, I just listened to it, and it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. I was marveling at uh, the cover. Such a beautiful kind of bronzed cover by... Uh, bronze seems to be the major color of the cover by um, by Marshall Tankersley. So once again, well done, Marshall. Um, so thinking about part six, this episode, the penultimate episode of um, the final game, is is it's it's a very interesting one to remember because by the time I um, wrote the script for part six. The casting was well underway, um, of, 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 uh, of for the for the actors and such, and the that, and this means that you know there was a lot of um, I was getting everyday oh, re replies and from other from uh, interested actors, uh, 
responses in the form of you know, um, recordings of sides uh, and of, of scenes and such, and, and then deciding who was who. Um, so there was a very interesting time, very busy time, because I was still in school. I've recently graduated, but at the time, this is in the summer of 2018, so it was a full two years ago, maybe slightly less. It might have been by... might have been June or something, but, but certainly it's about two years ago. And so I was very busy then, and very busy with other aspects of making the final game, as I, by the time I was writing part six, but part six was... Um, was a very fun ep um, episode and script to write. It's on the longer side. Um, the only other script that's longer, I think, is Part 7, um, which, in retrospect, um, is probably long enough to split into two halves, but it won't be. I, if anyone wants to know and they hear this, if they happen to hear this, what I'm saying now before they listen to Part 7 of the final game, which I think is unlikely, but it's even so... Um, I can confirm that Episode 7 is not going to be like the Harry Potter films or other kind of action-adventure films of some years ago where of a book series where you might have a, a movie to a book, a movie mapped to a, a book, excuse me, mapped to a film, but then the last book is mapped to two films with varying results. Something like the Harry Potter films were able to get both of their installments of their final book um, adapted to film. Sa the same with the Hunger Games, but then sadly something like the Divergent series, which I feel may have been actually may have been in terms of some characters, perhaps a superior to the Hunger Games, um, it sadly um, was unable to get its final uh, film made. It had the uh, a film adapting a good portion of the third book, but not the fourth film, which is too bad uh, because I you can tell I enjoyed the Divergent series. And the Hunger Games as well, and, and Harry Potter, and all those books. But it simply shows what happens when you when you have a lot of material and a lot of other um, forces acting upon the material. But in, so in this case, to ensure that there will be no problems, and there won't be, because we, this is all volunteer and a labor of love. So it will. That's one good thing is that if you can get it done in these conditions, it will be done. Uh, the final game, Part 7, will just be one go, and it's probably going to be pretty long. I can guarantee it will be longer than Part 6. Um, I almost shudder to think how long it will be. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But anyway, the script for Part 6 was very fun to write. I knew that after the the build-up episodes of part th the first three episodes where you have establishing the, doc the, the situation of where the Master is in Part 1, and then the mystery that... Um, compels the Doctor and the Master to work together to solve in Part 2, and then fighting against the Daleks in Part 3 still as ostensibly as allies, and then the revelation as part of the cliffhanger of the Masters working with the Daleks. And then you have the transition um, of Part 4 from Earth to a ravaged Earth, and then to Scarrow, and then the kind of the more action-oriented, and then also some exposition of Part 5 revealing the Master's plan, which is pretty much revealed. The, the Master's plan is all revealed in Part 5, so there, there are no real shocks beyond that, beyond Part 5, at least so far. Part 6 has a different take. You have these these rises and falls in, in narrative structure, and in some way we, we have a... We, we were on a rise in Part 5, and we still are. It's not exactly... A, it's not so much a fall, but you have certain things you have to do to depart from what came before in order to um, establish more tension and to establish 
um, a situation where all the moving parts and pieces of the narrative are coming together for their final performance, their final hurrah, the denouement, the 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 and the climax and the and the conclusions of the event. And so, part six, after the exposition, which I talked about a lot, which I discussed in the previous installment of the series. You get through the ep- exposition of Part 5, and I've already discussed how to make that a, a fun experience or an interesting experience, a, a frenetic or energetic experience. With the exposition largely out of the way, in, from the master's perspective, in this episode we shift to a larger view, which is not exactly... Um, no, it's not so much improving, uh, and... It's a form of expansion of the narrative, meaning you go from one level to another. Maybe you could describe it as maybe being, um, well, one easy, one easy description is uh, the layers of an onion. You uh, peel away, so to speak, um, and you get to the core of something. You could call this, I could call, you know, refer, refer that metaphor, but in a slightly different way is that the more layers you expand, think of it as in a trans-dimensional way transcendental dimensions um, the more the layers you peel in real life will get you to a smaller sphere but in the more layers we pull away in this type of story we have a larger sphere meaning we've gone from simply people on the talking to each other in a, in a lab in the first episodes to being in a countryside in kind of the second and third episodes then being on a Dalek ship um, so the stakes rise so now you're not just dealing with humans but dealing with Daleks and then the transition, you you have a ravaged Earth with Daleks, and then you go to Skaro, so now we're dealing with interplanetary, interstellar, interstellar sphere. So going from a terrestrial sphere to a more, um, you know, stratosphere, so to speak, and, you know, with the Daleks in the atmosphere, you know, or outside of this, the grip of the Earth, and then to interstellar sphere with parts four and five, um, and then traveling across, you know, Skaro and such in part five, to part six which still has a portion of the narrative based on, in, on a terrestrial sphere, so to speak, or an interstellar sphere on Earth, on Skaro. But then we add into the mix Gallifrey. And so now we're, in a sense, kind of a, a, in, an extra-dimensional sphere. And I might as well take a moment to, descri- to describe my feelings on Gallifrey in the context of Doctor Who in, as a whole. Um... I probably won't. I won't discuss all of my feelings about Gallifrey because they don't. I have a, quite a few, believe it or not, um, and not all pertain to this story. And and also, if I were to explain all that I feel about Gallifrey, which I believe is really positive. In fact, probably largely amongst fans, probably quite. A, I'm not saying this in any way as is a judgmental situation, but just my an observation is probably my views about Gallifrey and generally Gallifrey stories are far more positive than I have seen most reviewers. Uh, and rightfully so, they, I've seen many reviewers make many fairly critical and sometimes very negative statements about Time Lord stories, uh, largely Gallifrey-bound stories and such, um, Time Lord mythology stories. Rightfully so, because it, it is rather obscure, or can be very staid or stately or sedatorial, um, sedentary, all these ponderous-sounding words meaning that it's rather large but yet not moving much. You, you can't have these stories that just pile large amounts of, again, exposition and narrative and and theory and, you know, scientific sci-fi sense, almost a theology, so to speak, of upon the narrative of Doctor Who. And it can be quite heavy because it's 
a lot of it is simply is very bureaucratic is uh, very governmental very judgmental a lot of um, minutiae arcane information that is really contained upon Gallifrey usually not always it may pour outwards into pour upon um, and shed its weight upon um, other planets and other civilizations, but that's fairly rare. And so there is rightfully so a, a somewhat negative view upon Gallifrey amongst many fans because it, it is rather unknowable. Or the more that you, or or you could say this way, perhaps it should be unknowable because the more that you know about it, the from in many ways the less mysterious it is, and perhaps the less interesting it is. For me. Um, I've always enjoyed Gallifrey. Um, and I understand, I understood certainly some years ago, and I understand now when the, when the new series started, I'm talking about, I'm referring, um, why Gallifrey was removed from the narrative uh, with the time war and such. In ways, because since I've been around with Doctor Who for quite a while, it was something that wasn't new to me. Um, Gallifrey was removed from history through some type of a war as far back as the, I think, the turn of the millennium, or at least maybe a little bit after. In the Eighth Doctor, um, uh, what they call the, what we call the EDAs, the Eighth Doctor Adventures, the book range from the, um, from the uh, BBC books, which ran from the late 90s until the mid-2000s. And um, I've read some of those books, but I'm aware of all of them, and certainly Gallifrey was removed in a, um, from history, supposedly destroyed, Interesting enough for later retcon to be behind some type of time lock and to give enterprise enough some type of time distortion time lock, and this happened in a book called The Ancestor Cell by um, Steve Cole, Stephen Cole, and Peter Angelides, I think. I might be mispronouncing his name. I probably am. Um, but Gallifrey. But I say that's just in a small portion to say that I, I'm aware of Gallifrey in history. I really enjoy it. And I've always enjoyed it, and so. In the context of the final game, it was always important for me, for several reasons, that this narrative not only mention and not only involve Time Lords directly in the form of the Master, or mention Time Lords fairly consistently, or as a presence in the form of the circuit override, going back to the very first episode, um, the circuitry that was left um, found embedded within Liz Shaw's um, computer systems, the satellite, the um, space security system. Um, and, of course, then the Time Lord voices the Doctor hears through, at various points in throughout this narrative, um, these moments where he has these psychic connections and at the part of the climax of part one and part three, and then part of the beginning, therefore, this episode, part six, uh, these voices and trying to warn the Doctor. So they've the Time Lords have been getting closer throughout this um, this adventure. Having said all that, I, it wasn't. You could you can certainly argue that it was it wasn't absolutely necessary to bring the Time Lords directly in, involved in this series. Or you could say simply, oh, they're trying to warn the Doctor about these things. But I felt that, on a personal level, first beginning with the personal, I really wanted to involve the Time Lords because I enjoy it so much. Also, just as there are many traditions. That, in Doctor Who, meaning each doc on a on a uh, a multiplicative level, meaning each Doctor, a regenerative level, each Doctor has a meeting with something in most, if not all, of his regenerations, um, and there are a few of such things: um, the Daleks, the Cybermen, uh, the Master, certainly, 
Um, or at least most. To date, we don't have a story with the Master and the... Mm, I mean, a dedicated story with the Master between the Ninth Doctor or the Eleventh Doctor. Um, and I certainly feel that that's something that should be changed eventually. Yes, the, those incarnations meet the Master in this part of the 50th anniversary special column was called Prisoners in Time, but it was the Anthony Ainley Master, so we're going back to the 80s, and that version of the Master meets the 11th Doctor. So I still feel that the Master, it's incumbent that he meets all the all the Doctors. Easily, in my opinion, he can meet the, the 11th Doctor. Not so easy even for me to consider how he can meet the 9th, but even so. Something like that, where you feel that there's almost a need to do, to in, in, pair each Doctor with a, a figure in Doctor Who. It's like, like I say, the Daleks, the Cybermen. Um... The Ice Warriors are fairly, uh, actually, believe it or not, not on screen as much, but in other media, and especially in the audios and such. The Ice Warriors have met up with most of the Doctors. The Fourth Doctor is one of the outliers, but he'll be meeting with uh, the Ice Warriors in an upcoming audio, I think, called Ice Heist. And that leaves the Ninth Doctor hasn't had one. But for the most part, and perhaps the Thirteenth as well, although the First, but for the most part, most Doctors have met the Ice Warriors. Most Doctors have met the, the Sontarans. Um, hmm, any others? Sontarans have had more Doctor meetings on screen. Um, but to be fair, a lot of the later Doctors post-Tenant, so we're talking 11 and 12 certainly, have been Sontarans meetings in the form of Strax. Um, which is it's fine, it counts, but... It feels a little cheating because it's just one individual. It seems to, and he's not, he's a more of an ally. So it's, the, the 11th and 12th Doctors are still, in my opinion, largely lacking a good battle against the, um, the Sontarans as, as, as enemies, or at least as a race. Um, but you have, uh, you have these certain monsters that keep meeting with the Doctor. The Zygons are starting to get a few more. And certainly the Brigadier. And in terms of friends, uh, the Brigadier, Sarah Jane, to a lesser canine, uh, to a lesser extent, Jamie McCrimmon, and even believe it or not, someone like Tegan. But um, um, you have certain rites of passage for each Doctor to accomplish, certain boxes to check, which are not necessary, but they are so consistent that certain things are almost not quite a requirement, but 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 a uh, but in my opinion, uh, um, a boon, a gift, um, an extra dose of fun to allow the Doctor to renew something about himself, to review something within himself as a character in contrast or comparison or, and connection to this other, these other characters, be they individuals, enemies, or friends, or, mon or, or races, enemies, or friends. Um like the Brigadier and the Doctor renewing their friendship across the years, across different Doctors and incarnations and such. Um, that one, I should say, before I get back to Gallifrey, is something so important to me that I still try to find a way to pair the later Doctors with the Brigadier. Um, I'm talking about Doctors beyond uh, uh, McGann. And it's a funny little side note. I'm not so sure why, but it's never... Having said that, it's never really quite um, bothered me as much as the Ninth Doctor and the Brigadier don't have a, have a, have a meeting. And I might, as well say, I might as well say it now, if you'll bear with me, because uh, I'm going to go on a little tangent here. But just because 
I've just thought of this, and, and I suppose I, um, it pertains to the final game, and it pertains to what... And I, it's not quite a tangent, it's just giving a lot of background information about why I feel this way. But my personal opinion as an author, and I'm going to talk about The Brigadier. The, a very, I'm very, very grateful that Tony Filer has done such a wonderful work in recreating... Uh, the spirit and the sound, even the sound, yes, of uh, Nicholas Courtney's voice as the brigadier. Um, in in many ways, I think that he is just as he is he is as successful as Marshall Tankersley and um, Terry Cooper are in recreating the voice and the sound of the timbre of uh, of their character, their respective characters. Um, in every statement and, and, and nuance and, and, and uh, inflection of his voice in, in the lines, um, I can picture Nicholas Courtney when uh, Tony Father is saying um, his words. So thank you very much, Tony. And this is important to me because the final game as written, even before it was written, it was never going to be made without the Brigadier. Um, you can have Dr. Master Stories in the unit era without the Brigadier because that happens more often than you think. Um, yes, the Brigadier appears in Colony in Space, but, um, only briefly in the first and last episodes, and he has no scenes with Roger Delgado's master. Um, the Brigadier does not appear in The Sea Devils. Not even mentioned, as far as I know. Um, and the Brigadier does not appear, of course, in Frontier in Space, so therefore the last time that those actors, Nicholas Courtney and Roger Delgado, of course, uh, had any time together in a story, and even then it was fairly limited. I'm not sure if the Brigadier shared any scenes with Roger Elgato was in the Time Monster. Um, probably the person that shared the scenes was um, um, John Levine as, as Sergeant Benton. So lucky for him. I don't. Yeah, I. I don't believe the. Uh, yeah, I'd have to think about that. I, I, because I watch it. I don't know if the master, the master and the brigadier have any scenes in Time Monster. But in any case, but they are together in the story. You know, the characters. So you don't have to have the brigadier meet the master in something like the final game. But I, I was determined that he should because I wanted this to be a celebration where everyone's together, and as you can see, evidenced by the fact that by this point, and this will come later, but Joe Grant is here, and of course, since the beginning of the episode, Liz Shaw was around. And Mike Yates, certainly Mike Yates didn't have to be in the final game, given what happens to him in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and then there's a follow-up conclusion to his arc in Plan the Spiders, something to consider later in our discussions here in, in this series, about why I include Mike Yates. I have talked about why I included him in earlier episodes of this Confidential series, but how it ties into the Plan the Spiders, maybe you'll start to get a sense of it at the end of this episode, if you've heard of the episode, uh, part six. But when it comes to the Brigadier, uh, I just feel passionately about it. He's my favorite supporting character in all of Doctor Who on the on the hero side. In in the villain side, it's the Master, of course. But uh, more than K Nine, more than Jamie, more than Sarah Jane, and uh, more than Rose or Amy or Clara. For me, the Brigadier is the is the companion. And it's, the irony is that not he's not often considered to be a companion. I think he's more than a companion. I think that he was, um, um, and I realize again that I'm largely just praising the character now, but I'm just I just feel the urge. Um, it was a, he he is more than a companion, and in this era he's certainly a regular character. 
but I think in terms of a traveling companion consistently, no, he never was that type of a character. But I think he's more. I think he becomes post the unit years of kind of a pillar of the um, of the community of Doctor Who, so to speak. Certainly one of the great central figures in the mythology of the series. Um, and I think that he outgrows certainly the unit years when he returns in the in the Davison era, because he and grows as a character because he doesn't appear, uh, return in Modern and Dead. Um, as not to diminish the other characters, but as an appendage to the um, the unit structure of Doctor Who, um, meaning he appears with Benton and Yeats and other soldiers and such. You know, it's mentioned, but does not appear at all in Modern and Dead and only has a brief cameo in The Five Doctors. So, <clears throat> and yet the Brigadier is there. And he becomes kind of a, this pillar character that can appear on his own. Although in something like Battlefield, um, unit returns. But no matter what, there is this sense of the Brigadier returning and being paired with the Doctor and renewing that friendship with each incarnation with the Fifth Doctor in Modern and Dead, with the Sixth Doctor in the Spectre of Lenny Moore, the audios, um, with the Seventh Doctor in Battlefield, with the Eighth Doctor in the Minuet, again, I don't swear in the title, but the Minuet um, story with Paul McGann. Um, and so, only in those four stories, units not around in Modern and Dead, it has only a relatively small or limited appearance in extended cameo in Spectre of Lenny Moore. It's a very much a presence in Battlefield, but... Only the brigadier is there from the, his other days, so he's a, kind of a guest, brought out of mothball, so to speak. But he's returning, and then units not around at all. In fact, he's not even called the often the brigadier by people. He's called Mister Lethbridge Stewart since he's in America. For those four doctors, kind of the middle era doctors, the middle modern era modern era doctors, the brigadier is certainly silent on his own. So when I mentioned the ninth doctor and the brigadier, there is a ninth doctor brigadier story. It's a comic that came out a few couple years ago, called Official Secrets. And I'm very grateful that it exists. There is a, a licensed Ninth Doctor Brigadier story, but I feel torn about it because it doesn't quite feel right because it's set in the unit years, uh, specifically because Harry Sullivan is there. It's set in the Fourth Doctor's era at some point. It never says when it is, but sometime probably after Terror of the Zygons, what would be roughly equivalent probably to season 13 or 14 of Doctor Who, of the classic series. So I feel a little torn having the Ninth Doctor meet his old friend out of order. But not just simply out of order with the other Doctors, you know, before, you know, Doctors 5 through 8 or so, and 10, or any others, but that he's not on his own. So I'm torn. I'm grateful that there is a Ninth Doctor Brigadier story, but I honestly feel that the Ninth Doctor still deserves, in, in my opinion, is necessary to have him paired with the Brigadier, quote-unquote, of his era in the mid-2000s. Um, we'll be equivalent to Series 1 of the new series. Um... But and yet, for some weird reason, maybe because Christopher Eccleston's time was so short, I never quite uh, feel as much of a need to pair up the Ninth Doctor and the Brigadier as I feel extre an extreme overriding need to pair up the Tenth Doctor and the Brigadier. Uh, and I think it's just of the eras. The Ninth Doctor was around for so brief a time, it, there was no sense, there was no chance really to get to pair up those characters on screen. There was a chance to pair up the Tenth Doctor and the Brigadier. That's a whole other situation. And I won't go into that right now, but uh, I am very much desirous that at some point the 10th Doctor and Brigadier appear in performed media. And then, of course, 11 and 12 and 13 and onwards, whatever. But, uh, but I mention all that just to give you a sense of how much I care about tradition. And, and, and 
positioning each incarnation of the Doctor with a certain um, element of his history. I mentioned in the last episode of, um, of this confidential that the reasons why I included the Cybermen in um, in this story. I didn't have to include them, but I felt that it was necessary because John Pertwee's Doctor doesn't have a dedicated uh, of his era television story with the Cybermen. Um, it would have been nice to have a scene where the Third Doctor directly confronts the Cybermen in this story, but I I felt that it was a little that it would have been too much because this is a Dalek story. It, and you, when you pit things like the Daleks and the Cybermen together, it's very powerful, but it's very, there's a reason why it's only been done really once on television, so to speak. Um, and, but even so, I included scenes with the Cybermen, and the Doctor's aware that the Cybermen's there. The Cybermen are in the story. Well, just as the Third Doctor does not have a dedicated Daleks, uh, excuse me, Cybermen story, um... Now, I'm thinking talking about Gallifrey. Why bring the story to Gallifrey? He may not have... He has a dedicated Dalek story. I'm talking about John Pertwee's Doctor, the third Doctor. He does, and that's, of course, um, um, predominantly... Well, it's, the, it's the three Doctors. But even before then, he has... There are scenes set, one assumes, on Gallifrey in Calling in Space. Uh, the opening scenes of Calling in Space. Um... Show three time lords, uh, unidentified, but in costumes very similar to what was worn in uh, what they what the, uh, the time lord tribunal wore in um, the war games. Not identical, but very close, white and black costumes, so to speak. Um, so there are time lords, presumably on Gallifrey. There's one scene at the beginning of Calling in Space, and then of course many scenes throughout the Three Doctors. But the one thing that has always slightly irked me about that when in about the third doctor's relationship with Gallifrey is that unlike many of the other doctors on screen he doesn't actually go to Gallifrey the third doctor never sets foot on Gallifrey in his own era but just like the third doctor meets the Cybermen later in, in his uh, than his own era in the five doctors the third doctor goes to Gallifrey in the five doctors so yes you the, you check that box but outside of its own era and that always slightly irked me just the same thing with um, Five Doctors is really a catch-all for many things that some of the other Doctors didn't do. The Third Doctor gets to meet the Cybermen, the Third Doctor gets to go to Gallifrey physically, um, the, um, the first two Doctors meet the Master, so to speak. Again, I always mention this, of course, I think the, ma the War Chief is the Master, so for me as a fan, that box was checked in 1969 for the second Doctor, but for the first Doctor, yes. Um, you have a lot of boxes checked that you can do all at once in a multi-Doctor story, but there's something special about doing it in its own era. And so I felt compelled to get the third Doctor to Gallifrey personally, because it wasn't something that was done in his era. And for those that might, who are hearing this who don't quite know what I am saying, I'm sure that you do, but what I mean is, the first Doctor never goes to Gallifrey in his era, but it wouldn't, that wouldn't feel right, given the nature of the, um, the series at the time. It's just starting. There's no Gallifrey. Um, retroactively, there is, but in, of that era, he's just from his home planet, and it makes sense that he wouldn't go back there that would probably end the series. But the second Doctor goes to Gallifrey in the War Games. The fourth Doctor on screen goes to Gallifrey twice. He goes in The Deadly Assassin and The Invasion of Time. The fifth Doctor goes to Gallifrey on screen twice in Ark of Infinity and The Five Doctors, along with his other incarnations, of course. The sixth Doctor does not go to Gallifrey personally, but he's practically there because he interacts with these other Time Lords. That's one thing that the third Doctor also doesn't do in 
the three doctors, I'll get back to them in a moment, is that he is not interacting with the other Time Lords of Gallifrey. It's, it's the Time Lords very much observing events. We really, it's a kind of unique thing where we get to see how the Time Lords observe events uh, outside their realm, so to speak. So although the Sixth Doctor doesn't have a Gallifrey story set physically on Gallifrey, you practically get it in the, in the context of the Trial of a Time Lord because he's around a bunch of Time Lords on a Time Lord space station. Still, that's a box to check somewhere else. And so forth. Um, and then beyond, beyond that, after the Sixth Doctor, it gets a little spotty because then he, seventh Doctor doesn't have, the Seventh Doctor doesn't have a story set on Gallifrey. The Eighth Doctor, of course, barely has any tele, a story set on television. And then since then, then you get into the Time War and such where it's harder to do. But in the era of the classic series where there is a Gallifrey, most Doctors go to Gallifrey, um, with some exceptions. And the third is an exception. But it's so close, because you have the three Doctors, and briefly calling space. So I felt a need to get the Doctor to Gallifrey. Um, and so I, in constructing the story, that was the, the natural... I thought to myself, where do I get, how do I get the Doctor to Gallifrey? And I thought, well, the natural way to do it is... Um, as a resolution of the cliffhanger from part five. He, you hear the, 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 the torpedo explode, but what you discover very nicely is that in between the moments, the Time Lords freeze time in that immediate era and rescue the Doctor. And then you have the resolution of the Doctor's repaired sonic screwdriver. That, and that, this makes part four retroactively just that little bit more important in that in that, in that episode, the Doctor discovers that a screwdriver, which in the previous episode was burnt apart Apparently blown up, but not, but large, really, really heavily damaged by the master's weaponization of the of the instrument to destroy the Daleks in Part Three. Suddenly, the, the screwdriver has been restored in Part Four, and then in Part Six, the very beginning, you discover why the Time Lords have fitted it in a way to turn into a recall device, a little bit like a Staten remote control, um, which, if you recall. Um, also appears in this series, so we're getting a lot of Two Doctors influence, in um, Part 3. So there's a Statenheim remote control, and, and here you get a little bit of that too. It's not called that, it's not quite the same thing, but then it has, serves a very similar function. The Doctor's sonic screwdriver essentially becomes a Statenheim remote control um, on a personal level. So think of it like a Statenheim for a time ring or something. And this takes the Doctor to Gallifrey. And, uh, and this brings me to me talking about the, um, and giving thanks to the performances of the actors involved in these scenes. Uh, this is where we meet with several other familiar Time Lords, from the television series and from the final game. And this answers uh, one long-standing question going back to part two of this story. And that, for, for listeners, um, that's going back to la the beginning of last September. So we're talking now, ooh, eight months ago which is the identity of a Miss Sleipnir. Um, because she's a character that pop appeared in parts one and two of this story, played by the yeah, wonderful actress um, and a costume designer in her, in her um, theater, costume theater designer in her, uh, in her life, her daily life, um, Meryl Herbert. So thank you so much, Meryl, for bringing this character to life and performing it so, so richly. Um, she's the lab assistant in part one, named Miss Sleipnir, of course. I think in the script she was listed in her lines as lab assistant. Um, and initially, I should say that when it comes to Sleipnir, I didn't um, automatically write her as being a Time Lord. I just thought, oh, she would be a, a, 
an extra part um, with some uh, with some lines. But then I thought to myself, since I have from the beginning, I knew there would be a time load circuitry involved. I thought, well, that time load circuitry has to get there somehow. And so very quickly, while writing part one, I thought she has to, someone has to have placed this circuitry um, in within Liz's systems. And I realized, well, who who else is in, in this scene so that you, the audience, the listeners don't feel cheated by saying, well, we don't, we don't know who this person is. Who else in the scene has speaking lines? Um that we would know. There are two other assistants named Galvin and Hardy from part one, but they don't have any lines. So it has to be someone we quote-unquote see. And I realized, well, the only person around is Miss Sleipner. I thought, well, then, therefore, who's Miss Sleipner? She's got a, she has to be a time lady. And that's, a, that's certainly strongly implied in part two when she, um, if you remember, when she makes contact with some people, unseen associates, and then disappears, and the sound that accompanies her disappearance is very much... Uh, reminiscent of the transmat sound from the uh, Five Doctors, uh, the the recall device that the Doctor had in the Five Doctors, or the I should say the Master received my counsel and the Doctor borrowed. Um, so people hearing that, pro- if they know that sound, would think they would think, oh, she's a Time Lord. If if not, they certainly think she's some type of alien or some person, something other than a human of 1975. And of course, it's revealed here that she's a Time Lady. A member of the Celestial Intervention Agency. So, in this kind of interdimensional sphere of, you know, Gallifrey, and I should take a quick moment and say one other thing about Gallifrey, which is, from my perspective, it's not just simply a planet at the coordinates, which are stated um, um, on screen, you know, in various stories, but it is, you know, the 10 by 11 by whatever. I I, I haven't memorized it, um, Gallifrey's coordinates. I'd li- I should do that at some point, but in any case, um, it's not just simply a planet out there, but I like to think that Gallifrey might be at a certain point in space and time, uh, if people were to see it, but I like to think that it exists in its own space-time realm, definitely outside of space and time in general. Um, it may have a reflection, let's just say, of some type of, some type of reflected presence at those space-time coordinates, but I like to think that Gallifrey, as we see it, is not at any time. So, for example, if the Five Doctors... That's not Gallifrey circa 1983. It's Gallifrey circa whatever the dateline is. Uh, let's see. Prior to 5725.2, I think that's the number in the telefilm, in the Grace story, when the Seventh Doctor's returning the Master's remains to Gallifrey. I think that's the date given. So it's sometime before then. But not 1980. that does not equate to 1983, nor, 1983 nor does the telefilm equate to 1996 or 1999, whatever. Not at all. But in any case, um, once the Doctor reaches Gallifrey, we see a lot of familiar faces. Um, before he actually gets to Gallifrey, of course, he's um, he's greeted by the incognito Time Lord, played by Owen McEwen. So thank you so much, Owen, for helping us. Um, and uh, you'll see Owen again. He, he, he'll, he's going to be playing the... Um, he'll be playing... It's been stated, but I well, I was about to say what he'll be playing in other story in up, upcoming stories, but I won't because it's only, it hasn't been fully st- uh, that hasn't been announced yet. 
I, I caught myself just in time. And it's been announced to some of the cast members, but not to the public. So you'll be seeing, you'll be hearing Owen McEwen in an, in an upcoming prominent role for another story. But um, Owen McEwen here appears, of course, as the Incognito Time Lord, and that Incognito Time Lord was the same character played by David Garth uh, back in the Terror of the Autons Part One, the first Time Lord to introduce the Doctor to the presence of the Master on Earth. That's played by Roger Delgado. Uh, so, I felt that it was probably the only time we could do this, or at least so to speak, um, a, a, an appropriate time to do this, to reintroduce this character, who um, has, in the years since, appeared on a couple of occasions throughout the, do the Doctor's life, large, certainly the Third Doctor, even retroactively um, before Terror of the Autons. This character appears in a Big Finish audio called Shadows of the Past, um, which is a Liz Shaw Companion Chronicles audio set um, um, prior to the Ambassadors of Death, so between si the Silurians and Ambassadors of Death. And it does a couple things in um, that story, one of which it promotes uh, Benton from a corporal to a sergeant. Um, so a nice little connection between the invasion, progression from the invasion to the Ambassadors of Death. Um, but the Incognito Time Lord appears in that story. Um, so he's been around since the beginning, or at least very early in the Third Doctor's era. He therefore appears in this story at the end of his era, and um, and then he transitions the Doctor from the time pocket, protecting him from the from the um, mass the missile sent by the Master and the Daleks, to um, which would have presumably caused the Doctor's death, maybe regeneration, but it's implied it probably would have just killed him. Um, that would, that would be the intention, from my perspective at least. Or at least it would make, just like the Doctor breathing, when exposed to the Vorum gas and the two Doctors, it would have made regeneration done with difficulty. Um, but we also um, have the welcome, so to speak, maybe, but uh, welcome return from a listener perspective, if not for the Doctor, of characters Cardinal Goth um, and the Chancellor. And then after that, the Lord President. And the, for any people that don't know, of course, the Lord President would be the same character um, from the Three Doctors. The Chancellor, also from the Three Doctors, and previously in the War Games. It was the production intent of the Three Doctors. He was the same character, the third Time Lord from the War Games. And then, of course, Cardinal Goth, who, I don't know if it was ever the intention, but has since been identified as the first Time Lord from the War Games. And we have an interesting thing that happens here when the Doctor meets these three Time Lords. Um, and I should also give a brief shout-out to the actors um, Jerry Kokich and Pete Lutz. Jerry voicing um, Goth and Pete voicing the Chancellor. And, again, wonderful, wonderful um, performances in, in, in their recreations of these voices. Uh, of Clyde Paulet, who played the Chancellor, and uh, Bernard Horsfall, who played Goth. So well done to all all these men. Um, there is a moment where the Doctor identifies these three Time Lords, Goth, the Incognito Time Lord, and the Chancellor, as the same three Time Lords who uh, sentenced him to exile on Earth. Um, now, people know people who know a little bit of their history of Doctor Who will know in terms of actors that you have a share, an actor shared between the first Time Lord and Goth 
in the War Games and the, Deadly, in the Deadly Assassin, between the third Time Lord and the Chancellor, um, between the War Games and the Three Doctors. That leaves us the the second Time Lord, and how does he connect the Incognito Time Lord? The second Time Lord, I should say, from the the War Games, is played by um, Trevor Martin, and the Incognito Time Lord in Terror of the Autons is played by David Garth, and. The connection there is that they are the same Time Lord, but unlike Goth and the Chancellor, who are played by the same actor, therefore they are the same incarnation, this is the same Time Lord who has since regenerated. And that comes from uh, the novelization of the uh, Terror of the Autons. So, um, yeah, the novelization of Terror of the Autons, where the, that story is written by uh, Terrence Dix. Um, that story identifies the Incognito Time Lord as one of the tribunal that sentenced the Doctor to um, exile. So I thought, well, there you go. Um, and I always found it interesting um, that in that general era, from the Troughton years to the Pertwee, and also, in the case of Goth, the Tom Baker years, early Tom Baker years, that, um, that two of those three uh, characters, either explicitly or, or implied... Uh, to uh, return in later stories, um, meaning Goth and the Chancellor. But the second Time Lord, as played by Trevor Martin, never returned. And I thought, well, I wonder what happened to him. Well, as, uh, as far back as the mid-70s, when the, novel, the Target novelization of Terror of the Autons was released, it was since revealed that that, partic- that Time Lord um, um, was the same Time Lord that appeared in um, Terror of the Autons. The, the War Games Time Lord was... Time War 2 is the same as Incog- the Incognito Time War of Terror of the Autons. Um, if anyone wonders how does he regenerate, from my perspective, I have since written, um, and this goes back to how the final game all got started, when I was, I've mentioned this before, that I was involved in a, um, a charity anthology called um, Masterpieces. Um, and I, and, which is spearheaded by Scott Claringbold and finished by a man named Paul Driscoll. Wonderful little, wonderful, richly blessed in terms of uh, quality of writers. Uh, I'm amongst very good people. Um, these people um, have done really great work writing for Doctor Who. Um, people like David and McKinty and Ian McLaughlin and others. Um, I wish I had the list of all the writers, but they did a wonderful, wonderful job. Cara Dennison, I think, is another. Um, and of course, Paul Driscoll. So wonderful work. Scott Clarenbold. Um but the story that I wrote is Bandages, and Bandages is, in a nutshell, my War Chief is the Master story, uh, which bridges the the events involving the Master from the War Games to um, what would be early Season 6B, I suppose. Yes, I, I definitely believe that there's a space of time between the War Games and Spearhead from Space. And at the conclusion of Bandages, just for people's information, the Master escapes his imprisonment, and as he's about to escape from uh, leave Gallifrey, he's confronted by the Tribunal, as portrayed by the actors in the War Games. The second Time Lord, so the Trevor Martin incarnation of this Time Lord, is about to accost the Master, but the Master um, blasts him with his TCE, his Tissue Compression Eliminator. Uh, it doesn't shrink the... Um, this particular Time Lord, but it certainly injures him so greatly that the third Time Lord, the Chancellor, from the Three Doctors, tells the first Time Lord, Goth, that a regeneration may be necessary. And so, um, we don't see the regeneration happen, but it's strongly implied that that's what's about to occur. His body starts to glow. Or at least it's it's very damaged. So the, the implication is there that Trevor Martin becomes David Garth. 
that's just background information that I supplied. But I wrote that um, in the bandages specifically with the intent to bridge the characters because I had already said at that point that this is who um, uh, that this is the the continuity to which I was following the target novelization of Terror the uh, Terror the Autons. So we have a, having said all that and revealed all that information, you have a, a, a War Games reunion. A couple different, a couple of the time ones once removed have since regenerated, but you have a War Games reunion between the Doctor and the Tribunal. Goth, Incognito, Chancellor. Um, and the, I should say that the, in, uh, if you want to consider how they, how do they look, I lo- what's their appearance, I like to think the Chancellor is still wearing the same um, costume as he did in uh, The Three Doctors. I like to think that the Incognito Timer is he's described as still wearing his costume they wore in Terror of the Autons. Um, and Goth? That's the most leeway, I suppose. Um, he's a cardinal in this era. Um, I think there is a... I had a small, not so much risk, but I believe that the there's a prelude to... Um, Oh, I think it's... Oh, what is it? Oh, I th- it might be Legacy, which is a, a new adventure. There's a, I can't quite remember which one it is, but there is a prelude. Uh, what I'm talking about preludes is that back in the 1990s, when you had Doctor Who novels being written uh, for the new adventures and such, you often would have these printed in maybe Doctor Who magazine... Um, these preludes, which would be written by the same author usually, um, ex- giving background information, you know, like a like a, a prologue, so to speak, to to the events of their novel, but it just wouldn't be included with the the novel proper, the actual book. One of them had Goth um, reveal that Goth was um, the Time Lord um, behind the Doctor's trip to Peladon, the Curse of Peladon. So that's why I'm saying it's probably legacy. Uh, the prelude to the novel Legacy, which has the seventh Doctor go to Peladon. But that story, I believe, um, identified Goth at that time, relative to the uh, Curse, of Peladon, uh, Curse of Peladon, as a Chancellor. Um, and yet, in the final game, I have him as a Cardinal. So I toyed with that. I wrestled. Should I have Goth be a Chancellor or not? But then I thought, I'm going to stick with the, with the of the era, and in this era, in the Pertwee era, the Chancellor was the third Time Lord, played by Clyde Pollitt, not Goth. Goth is a time the cha- time lord chancellor in the Tom Baker years, and so it's possible that he was a time lord a chancellor once, and then he circles to another position, and then comes back as a chancellor. Who knows? Um, but uh, that's just more background information that I'm aware of all this minutia. I'm not trying to brag that I'm aware of the minutia. I'm saying this that it's sometimes an albatross around my neck, or sometimes it's a burden being aware of the minutia at an extreme level of Doctor Who because you are aware of the contradictions or you are aware of other people's interpretations which are equally valid but interpretations of, of a certain, uh, established characters' story arcs and their progression and filling in gaps filling gaps and so to speak and so from my mind I decided that I wanted to put um, Goth as an earlier point in his life um, so I wanted to place him as prior to being a, uh, the Chancellor. That's why he's a Cardinal here. And so therefore, what is he wearing? Uh, it's just probably the um, similar colors to what he wears in um, 
in the in the deadly assassin he might be wearing perhaps less slightly less uh who knows maybe slightly less legal regal robes or something but um i um i was very happy to reunite the doctor the third doctor with these with these uh, time lords and then place them in the same set so to speak um as the time lords in the three doctors so if you if anyone wonders where the time control is on Gallifrey and explicitly on Gallifrey if anyone wonders where this is it is the same set as um as seen in the three doctors and I in my mind it's also the same set maybe just another room um, as seen in Calling in Space. So that the Pertwee-era Time Lords are, are appearing, are, in my mind, um, the CIA. As, as are, in my opinion, are the Time Lords as seen in um, the War Games. They may not be acting as the CIA, but I like to think that, at the least, Goth is a CIA agent. Um, and I would think they probably all are CIA agents, these particular, those three. But I, um, I was very, very grateful to place the, the doctor, John Pertwee's doctor, on the sets, um, in an imaginary sense, but in a retroactive sense, in an audio sense, on the set of the three doctors on the Gallifrey side, stuff that he never did. I don't, who knows if John Pertwee even visited that set. Um, he never has any scenes there. The closest is William Hartnell's doctor, the first doctor, interacts with those time lords. So yes, a, a doctor interacts with those time lords on screen, but it's Hartnell's doctor, and even then was pre-recorded footage. By extension, Troughton's doctor interacts with the time lords because he talks about, he's, he's been briefed. Uh, the only doctor that does interact with the time lords of Gallifrey is, is John Pertwee in his own era. It's funny. Um, but a lot of neat little things happen uh, in this scene with the Doctor on, on, on Gallifrey. Um, of course, he meets, as, he's, as I've said now, the the ones who sent him in the exile, into exile, and but he also gets to meet the President, the Time Lord President, uh, played by wonderfully well by John Kolchak Pertwee in the style of, um, in the tribute to Richard Burton, I believe. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is how John um, uh, decided to interpret the character in his voice. I think he did a wonderful, wonderful job. And this is all in the style of Roy Purcell, who was the actor who played the, um, the Time Lord president. Credited, I think, is called the president of the council in The Three Doctors, in the credits, at least. And I felt it was absolutely vital to have the doctor, to make sure the, the doctor and the president meet. Because he, as you see, in, as the doctor himself says, in the script... The president is just about the one Time Lord that the Doctor is eager and happy to meet. And and I said this because it's the president in The Three Doctors that breaks the rules, who makes the maverick decisions, who steps outside of the laws of time to say, we need help, the Doctor's involved, he, the third Doctor, is trapped. What can we do? Let's break the law of the first law of time and bring his other selves into the picture so that we have a chance to succeed. So he's a maverick figure. I am very impressed, uh, very much so, with that particular Time Lord because he's so different from many of the other Time Lords that we've seen before and after. Even now, he is so incredibly different because he is, without, on his own initiative, unilaterally, just on his own authority, 
He exceeds his authority to break the laws of time. And with such a, and he can do it not just simply by stating it, but he's able to sell it by his performance. Where Purcell was very, he's a very commanding figure, and he um, he looks like a president, so to speak. He looks like a, a man who's in charge. And and who faces the danger, and and who's not afraid at all, no hesitation, to say we we okay we we have reached our limit. We, of our rules and our regulations, so let's we have to break them on this occasion. He's a very doctor-like figure in a different way, very different from the doctor, and yet very, almost like he's inspired by the doctor. And 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 I've always felt it was a shame that the doctor and that particular president never meet on screen. I've always thought, do they have a shared history? Do they know each other very well? Do they, do they, um, do they know one each other of old? Or is the is the time of present just naturally a very forward-thinking man, kind of like a precursor to Romana, the second Romana at least, uh, and in her tenure as president, I like to think that Romana looks to this president, this particular president, as um, as as a model, as an inspiration for thinking externally, thinking proactively, thinking individually. And independently as a leader, and so I felt it was imperative to um, unite these strong characters, the doctor and the president, and to make the cast the president therefore um, as a very interesting figure. In that there's a little bit of nostalgia. The president's able to receive thanks from the doctor for helping with the Omega crisis, so Omega's mentioned and such. Excuse me. There is a sense of connection and comparison between what's happening right now to the events of the Three Doctors. We are in the same place amongst some of the same Time Lords. And um, there's another crisis happening, because in terms of the story, they quickly discover, the, the Doctor discovers that Gallifrey is being affected by whatever the Master's doing. But I also wanted to make the Time Lord President a sense of um, a stable point. A stable point for the Doctor, because he's amongst not exact, not really friends. Not quite enemies, certainly not arch an arch enemy like the master, nowhere at that extreme. But he, they're, he's not; they're not. These other three, the the time lord trio, the tribunal, they're not terribly far from the master in terms of the the doctor's antagonism, animosity, or at least um, polite, very polite uh, disdain towards his peers. But with the president, once the president arrives, now you have a balancing sense of, yes, he's, this is a man who represents the government. He's the face of their time of government, yet he's a lot more like the doctor. He's in, he's in the mold of a renegade. He's a maverick. He's not a renegade. But he's not a, a company man like the other time lords. He is he's a maverick. Not quite a renegade, but definitely not quite uh, a good, um, not quite a, um, a G-man, a government man, an employee, so to speak. Um, and so, the president, of course, then, because the doctor says, I need to see my friends, I need to see how they're doing, the president says, yeah, reveals, okay, we can, we, we can see them, and, and then, um, for people who want to know, imagine it's the same setup as you've seen the three doctors when they look at the screen and you hear the sounds of, and, uh, of the, of this, of, of this, um, connection, and, um, and you have references to things like thought channels, which appeared in, yeah, which is referenced in the war games, which I like to think are some type of connection to the Matrix and such. But you get to see images on the screen, just as you saw in the Three Doctors. And the sounds are similar as well to the activation of the screen. 
Um, a nice little note for anyone that wants to know is then you also have the uh, a part played by Lorinda, Lorinda Hart Fournier, a wonderful lady, very kind lady in Canada, um, who is a lifelong Doctor Who fan, and she plays the point uh, the part of the network uh, computer, the network voice, and and the connection to Doctor Who history is that this would would be is meant to be the same voice that you hear in the Deadly Assassin. The, the only female part, the female voice, um, performed part in uh, The Deadly Assassin, uh, originally played by Helen Blatch. And, um, and this, therefore, in my mind, this is the same quote-unquote character. It's the same network connection, network voice, network computer. Um, and so we, we get to see, um, of course, the prison hints, yes, well, I, will, I will show you, Doctor, your friends, uh, while we are still able, and he leaves that hanging. What's happening? What does he mean? And of course, we see, you know, shots of the other the other two teams, the the Earth team and the Scaro team. First, we see, um, oh, what's the first one? First one, yeah, we see is the uh, the Scaro team. So, a brief si situation where the Benton and Thorpe and Sarah Jane are going through the forest. And wonderful kudos to Gareth Severn for um, cre creating the the sounds of the of the petrified jungle, probably no longer quite petrified at this point, um, but the reviving jungle of uh, Skara, the Thals area, and um, and the wonderful sounds of, of whatever sedative, I like to think it's always like a, a bolo or a boomerang or something that has some type of sedative point that, um, so kind of a, a very offensive sedative <laughs> that uh, incapacitates these characters. Um, and then we have a brief introduction to a character called Tarbeck, voiced by um, Anthony uh, Medeiros, or Tony Medeiros. Um, really not a wonderful guy that lives in, I believe, Connecticut. Or is it actually might be Massachusetts. I can't quite remember, but he's in the New England area. He's an American. He lives in the New England area of our country, of, this, of, of the United States. And um, does a wonderful job. And, 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 therefore, and also does... Um, the role in American accent. And just as a brief aside to that, um, Tony asked me, how do you want me to voice this role, the character? And I said, um, feel free to voice whatever you like, however you want to hear it. And it surprised me, so, you know, because it's a totally original character. And the, and the fact that he has essentially an American accent is not, uh, unheard, it's not so strange or, an, uh, or out of place in, in Doctor Who when you think about it, because you will sometimes have characters soldiers or people or anyone really that will show up in Doctor Who and have done from the beginning that even amongst British characters they're often British people but they'll have an American accent or, so, or something or maybe American or Canadian or some type of transatlantic accent you have that Peter Purvis playing the, oh, I can't remember his name but the, the guy in um, the chase the, from Alabama or um, Captain Hopper from Tomb of the Cybermen some of the other uh, uh, characters, the Rocket Crew, they have a very decidedly American-style accents. Hey, what gives? <laughs> My dad loves that line from Tomb of the Cybermen. He'll often, when he, when he calls me, he'll say, Hey, Chris, what gives? <laughs> and that's just a scene where the, cap the captain in, in the Tomb of the Cybermen comes into the cyber control, and he's wondering what's happening. He's where everyone, where everyone is, and he says, Hello? Hey, hey, what gives? <laughs> it's, it's such a great line. Um... But, um, or Bill Filer, 
from Claws of Axis, and then various other characters. Sometimes you'll have an... Or, or one that's really funny is the... I don't think he has a name, but this opposition leader in um, Frontier in Space was saying, We've heard the people! War! 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 This big guy, and he has a very... kind of almost a southern-type accent, a very... kind of a... Well, almost a foghorn leghorn accent. I mean, it's a very, very strident, broad, uh, deep south accent that you hear. So Tarbeck does not have that kind of accent, but but it, it, I felt it's a very nice little minor staple in Doctor Who to have a sudden American accent amongst uh, other British characters. So v- very well done, very well done, Tony, for for uh, for, for carrying this uh, tradition ahead. Um, and we have Tarbeck, and he has um, some. A definite connection to Doctor Who history that you find out in a later scene when, um, that when he's talking with this particular group, that he is the son of uh, Taron and Taron and Rebek, who are characters played again Taron by Bernard Horsfall and and this and Re- and Rebek, which is a play on Terry Nation's daughter, I believe her name was Rebecca. Um, characters falls from Planet of the Daleks. And so, definitely a connection back to the previous, one of the previous recent Dalek, then recent Dalek adventures. So, some history. You know, the Thals that survived that story, you know, and it was implied clearly that they had a, some type of friendship or relationship. Well, they survive and have a, an offspring, they have a child. And his name is Tarbeck. Why does he have an American accent? I don't know. <laughs> and that's not, and I'm not saying that as a sarcastic slight against Tony. No, no, not at all. I think it was great that he chose an accent. It's just why does Tarbeck have such an accent? Who knows? Who knows? In in universe, so to speak. Maybe he's been on the front lines in the war. Who knows? Maybe he's been off world. But um, so we see what's happening with the with the Scarrow team, and then the network connection disappears, and the Doctor wonders what's happening. And the president says, "Well, I will explain, but let's show you. It's imperative. We need to show you what's happening with the other friends on Earth." So we see the Brigadier's team: the Brigadier Yates, um, Liz. Uh, they, um, they um, materialize, you know, back on Earth, just um, at the Dal- Dalek saucer, but they are immediately uh, the the brigadier. Of course, they're immediately um, um, confronted by a bunch of monsters as the right after the brigadier um, decloaks the Doctor's Humobile or his hovercraft. But before they can get there, an Ogron appears, and then a, uh, a Cyberman appears, and a Dalek appears. And they start firing, so the crew, the group has to kind of hide behind the, the remains of the caravan, the Doctor's caravan, uh, those are the unit caravans as for cover. And so you hear these monsters and their sounds and fire and weapons and such. And you also hear an Ice Warrior. Now, I mentioned the Ice Warrior because um, I just couldn't. And it's just a personal indulgence. I couldn't help myself, which is that, as I mentioned in the previous, uh, in previous. Um, um, Confidentials. What are my fa- which are my favorite monsters? This will be for part four. Confidential part four. Which are my favorite monsters in Doctor Who? And I love all of them, of course. But my top three um, are fairly my are at least largely cliche. Top one: Daleks and Cybermen. Well, that would be probably most people's one and two. Uh, there's not exactly a set third for me. It's the Ice Warriors, and I realized that I had a scene here where I have the Daleks, the Cybermen, and then also the Ogrons, and the Ogrons had appeared in part four of this series. So it, it made sense to have the Ogrons there, it made sense to have the Daleks there. And it made sense to have the Cybermen in the sense of to give them a greater presence because they had appeared in part five. And then I thought, well, let's, they, the Master's taking control of the Cybermen, let's bring them to Scarrow. 
and, and this is where the, you have the cyber controller walking around. So the, you have other cybermen, but this, you have specifically the one speaking as the cyber controller. Well, I realized, my goodness, I have two, I have three monsters here, two of which are my top one and top two. I can't help myself. I, I really want my top three there. I want the Ice Warriors there. And then I thought to myself, well, how do I, would that make sense? You know, having the Ice Warriors there beyond, what function will they have? And I, and at first I thought, well, I don't have any function, but I just want them there. But then I thought, well, like, to make it seem a little more justified, why would they be there? And I thought, well, it certainly could show that the Master off-screen, so to speak, while the Doctor's away, he hasn't been wasting time. He's been expanding his influence and taking over not just the Daleks and, now, and then later the Simon, but the Ice Warriors as well. Maybe they're his top three villains too, who knows? But it makes sense when people think, well, the Ice Warriors aren't cybernetic. Well, yes, they are. Um, much less so than the Daleks or the uh, the Cybermen, but they, the Ice Warriors are in the are are these organic beings, but contained within cybernetic armor, and they're certainly their um, their sonic cannons are cybernetically they're grafted onto their bodies, and their their helmets have um, cybernetic elements as well. Probably they have these, you know, their uh, you know the the red eyes and all that, but also there are these things on their side, which would be roughly where their ears are. Many of the the older style. Uh, helmets for the ice warriors. They're these red little slats. Uh, these red little, you know, you know, rectangles. And you wonder, what are those? Their ears? Well, what are they? Well, they're probably cybernetic um, hearing devices attached into their uh, into their armor. And so the ice warriors not are the probably the most largely organic. They have a lot of cybernetic elements to them as well. So it's a little. It's a little more of a reach, and it's largely an indulgence on my part, a personal indulgence. But I felt that it was, um, they are metal monsters also, not silver or whatever, but often the Daleks aren't, they haven't been silver for the longest time, but these ones probably are. But I felt, add a little color. Let's add some green into this uh, situation. So, uh, it was a personal indulgence, but I felt that it was, I had just enough time, and I should note that this was an extremely last-minute moment, because Gareth was already deep into the production, uh, putting together part six. It's not like, oh, some oh, quite a while ago, I added into the script and say, hey, can you, and such. Uh, no, while he was designing part six, laying down the tracks and everything, uh, I said, hey, Gareth, can we add the ice warriors? He said, oh, sure. Um, now, James Hart is the, does the trio of monsters, the Daleks, the Cybermen, and the Ogrons. And I thought about contacting him again, and I'm sure he would have done it, but I thought, you know, this is such short notice, um, I don't want to impose upon him because we need it right today. Um, and I might not be able to get a hold of him. Who knows? Maybe I can, maybe I can't, but I, he may be unavailable. And so I thought, let's, let's, since Gareth's willing to include them, I, I just asked him, hey, Gareth, do you mind doing the voices for the Ice Warriors? And he, and he was happy to do that. So thank you so much, Gareth, because he does an exquisite job. <laughs> Does a wonderful job of, of recreating the Ice Warriors sounds, and he got the, the, um, the, to a T, recreated the sounds of their weaponry and, and their hissing. Oh, perfect. Thank you, Gareth. Well done. So you have four monsters around there. The Daleks, the Cybermen, the Ice Warriors, the Ogrons, in one scene. So the Brigadier's team are pinned down. And just going from the story progression perspective, then we have that shot that they are pinned down by all these monsters, and how are they going to survive? And then, of course, we lose connect the network connection, the Doctrine demands to know what's happening, and then the time was reveal um, that Gallifrey's becoming disconnected from reality because of what the Master's done. And the Doctor says, how is this possible? 
and then they reveal that the the president reveals that the time the the master has is truly becoming a lord of time, a master of all, because he is uh, using some of the darkest, most arcane and forbidden powers of a time lord to bind. Maybe a time lord might create a timeline, but what he has done, what the master has done, and this is the extra bit of final bit of revelation of of his plan as a fail-safe and um, as a fail-safe uh, to make sure to ensure that he is in control of the situation the master hasn't simply um, created a new timeline he's bound the timeline anchored it to his existence as long as he exists this timeline this reality uh, will exist so the time lords they can't restore history unless they kill the master or they would exert their powers and break their own neutrality. And so the, the Time Lords, in a way, are powerless, bound by their own nature. And, and the president is acting in such a way that he, it would be, be that this would go even beyond his maverick um, nature because they would break all the laws of time. They would, no, in a way, no longer be, they would be seen. They, they would show themselves to the cosmos if they did this. They would take this route. But the maverick thing to do is, therefore, to kill the master. And therefore, we have the setup for what people have often. If anyone knows about the final game, they know, at least back in 1974, the idea was that the Master is probably going to be killed in some way. Uh, we didn't have very little detail, so I thought maybe it would be some type of explosion or something, but what I decided to do is just increase the stakes to an by many-fold, by, by such, a, such a, an extent that it would really be now a moral dilemma, a moral revelation for the Doctor, which is the only way that he can stop the Master this time is by killing him. It's not a question of, oh, how do we stop him? How do we thwart him? And so how do we kill him? How do I kill him? Can I kill him? Do I have the right to kill him? Little shades of what was happening, what's happening later in Genesis of the Daleks. Do I have the right to destroy the Daleks? And then Dr. Singh here, can I destroy the ma Can I kill the master? And of course, the president makes a slight reference, uh, very much echoing Planet of Fire, at the end where Ailey's master um, pleads with Davison's doctor to save him. He says, how can you do this to your own? Oh, and then he's supposedly burnt alive, burnt to a crisp. Of course he isn't, but, or at least not to the death. But in any case, here the, the president says there is, you know, I understand this is difficult for you, doctor, after all the master is your own, and the, the doctor stops and says, no, whatever we once were, we are no longer. We, we can never be. And the doctor realizes he has to kill the, the master. He, and and when they ask him, when the time was asked him, how will you do it? He says, I'll figure it out. You leave that to me. Uh, but uh, I'll take care of it. Um, so there is this real set, ponderous sense. Um, I should also then take a moment, though, to throw a, you know, explain a little Easter egg in this story, which is that the, the final uh, lines that Lorinda Hart Fournier has as the network computer is when she's reading f kind of very much deliberately echoing her, the, that same character's role in The Deadly Assassin, where she reads from the certain records, talking about Rassilon, how he got the, you know, capture the black hole and such. Which in itself is an interesting, almost, you could argue, revision of the three doctors, but they take tie together, because it's, Omega's never mentioned in the Deadly Assassin, but in any case, she's doing the same thing, she's reading from a certain historical record, and she references... Uh, in the days before the dissolution of the first High Council, the Lord President decreed that, you know, these binding powers, the binding reality to a Time Lord, should be forbidden forever. Um, I mentioned the first High Council, but not just the first High Council, the dissolution of the first High Council. 
and the Lord present. Well, it, I should say it makes sense that the Lord present, I think people would think would be the, um, the uh, would be Rassilon. The identities of the First High Council uh, have quite a very interesting connection with Doctrine of History, and I just say this, uh, right, because I want to mention it more than once, but I won't expand upon it much, but I like to think that this First High Council are, in fact, the Guardians. Ooh. <laughs> Something to think about. Just like I think the War Chief is the Master, I will just simply, without saying much more about it, I will say that I like to think the War Chief is the Master. That's a fairly well-connected um, and prevalent um, thought amongst a lot of fandom. What I don't think is probably terribly thought amongst fandom is I like to think that the Guardians are Time Lords. And I'm, when I mean the Guardians, I mean characters like the White and Black Guardians, the Celestial Toymaker and such. Um, um, and coming from the perspective of books like The Divided, Lo Divided Loyalties by Gary Russell, The Quantum Archangel by Craig Hinton, and The Turn of the Millennium, which expanded the idea that instead of two guardians, you had six. And Divided Loyalties revealed that the, the uh, Toymaker from the Celestial Toymaker is a guardian, a crystal guardian. Um, so it expanded it, you know, revealed a third guardian from the television series and said there are three others. I might as well just take a moment to say, who do I think are the other three? Well, you have Hecuba from the lost story, The Queen of Time, that was a few years ago made into a... Uh, it was a lost story from the Patrick Troughton era, which would have featured the sister, some sources say half-sister, but I think she ultimately is a sister, to the Toymaker. Um, she's never said that she's a guardian. It's never says so, but she, you say she's related to the Toymaker, therefore I like to think that she is another guardian. What's her color or whatever? I don't know, but uh, oh, probably the Azure Guardian. I think it's funny enough, a uh, blue Guardian, whatever. Um, that's getting into the weeds, but even so, there are colors for each Guardian: white, black, ruby, some type of red, Azure, um, crystal, and gold. The white and black Guardians are given from the key to time and the key to time. Um, meaning two, meaning the number from the re from about a decade ago in the audios, and the the Black Guardian trilogy, the Crystal Guardian is the Celestial Toymaker, Hecuba is probably the Azure Guardian. Um, those are the only ones in the performed media. It's long been thought that the Gray Man from the Seventh Doctor novel, Falls the Shadow, is a Guardian, a Gray Guardian. I would probably call him the Ruby Guardian, which is probably some weird Gallifrey, Gallifreyan version of Grey. Uh, and I say that simply because a lot of people, even back in the this book that came out in the 90s, and I discovered it afterwards, but had, some reviews at the time saw this character, the Grey Man, and he describes himself as coming from the first civilization in the cosmos who rejected his people's view of right and wrong, order and chaos, good and evil, and so he rejected that white and black dichotomy and took upon himself a gray perspective. And like the Guardians, in the time, including the Toymaker and such, or Hecuba, he can exist in, the gray man can exist in the, the outside world, but also has a, a realm, a cathedral, his own domain. Much like um, Hecuba has her grandfather, kind of a, her, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a, the grandfather clock. Um, or the toy maker has his um, toy room, or the black guardian has his kind of whispering mist realm, or the white guardian has his kind of his uh, um, 
his uh, his little wilderness realm. There's you certainly have these kind of repeated themes of these cos- strange cosmic beings that have their own realm that can interact with the outside world. Well, I like to think the Gray Man is a guardian, and that leaves a Gold Guardian. Who knows? I'm still thinking about that one, but I just say that to just explain that I. My intention when I'm referencing this in the in the part six is that the first high council are guardians. Why do I think they're guardians? Well, that well, I'll save that for for maybe for another confidential. But uh, but I'm certainly revealing, as I said before, and it's not really news if you listen to the Trap One podcast. I've said this before with Mark that I think the guardians are time lords. I just I take the RTD approach, which is I think there's a massive cosmos out there, a cosmological history when it comes to Doctor Who, but. And you have a lot of things that don't necessarily, that aren't necessarily, that aren't timeless necessarily, or at least they don't seem to be, but they could be a lot of things. And that's fine. But like RTD, and he said this in a, he was quoted in an interview in a magazine once, and this is in reference to the shopkeeper from the Sarah Jane Adventures. A lot of people were asking, is the shopkeeper a guardian? And he emphatically said, no, he's not a guardian. And he said this, I'm not really sure how the guardians fit into the cosmology of Doctor Who, or whether they should. And he said, I'll leave that to someone cleverer than me. I'm not trying to say that I'm cleverer than RTD, but I would hope to tackle that someday. And I've often thought to myself, I don't see how the guardians fit. Um, I don't want to get too much into a tangent, but I will just simply say that the Time Lords really occupy the niche of cosmic beings, at least in this era. Another thing about Gallifrey is that prior to the Hinchcliffe era, or at least the Deadly Assassin, so late Hinchcliffe, uh, the producer of Doctor Who during the first three seasons of Tom Baker's years. Um, the Time Lords were occupying kind of the, a cosmic level of uh, existence. They're, they have great powers. We see them use strange, very strange mental abilities. Um, Trevor Martin's second Time Lord, we, and therefore the incognito Time Lord, uh, demonstrates a very strange mental ability that is quite similar, if anything, to Sutek's mental abilities in, in Pyramids of Mars. It just light from the eyes, so to speak. I'm not saying that the, they're Osirens. No, what I'm saying is that you've got, these Time Lords have tremendous mental powers. Um, they're very celestial or, or, or um, cosmic beings, and including this era. And granted, when we see them in the three, do- we see the Time Lords and the Three Doctors, they're weaker, but they are being attacked and opposed by Omega who is an extremely powerful being, so overpowered that you really can't um, feature him, in my opinion, directly in, in, in a story. Where if you were, because if Omega were to be if Omega were to be released upon the cosmos in the Doctor Who fictional context, unreleased and un- unleashed, unrestrained, then that's it. Being ready when you really think about it, we've always seen we've only seen Omega in a very restrained context, in his own realm, or in a very reduced context in 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 the main universe, or then referred to or referred later in like remembers the Daleks in in mythology, and he's, even now in the Odyssey he's been used very sparingly. Um, so a very powerful force is attacking the Time Lords, so one of their own, but just a very powerful one of their own. Um, but then you get things like the Guardians, who, in the context of Key to Time, should be doing what the Time Lords are doing. But they come from an era when the Time Lords have been depowered, in the post-Robert Holmes era, where Time Lords are portrayed much more like regular people. Not human, they have power, you know, they, they're aliens, but even so, they're very much more human-like. Um, as, as much as I enjoy the Deadly Assassin, there is a, 
for better or for worse, there's a pejorative legacy to that story in terms of the effect, its effect on the Time Lords. Uh, and Terrence Dix talked about that. He liked what it was, but he, he admitted that it was very different from his era of how the, the Time Lords were portrayed. So you get, as Craig Hinton once said, this my friend, the author, the late Craig Hinton, he said that the Guardians came from a time where the they came because the Time Lords had been depowered. But... Um, like I said, and I'm only saying this because I feel very strongly about it, just to give you a sense of my what's in my head, I've always felt that... I've always felt a fascination, but also kind of a... a kind of a frustration with, those, with the Guardians, because particularly the white and black Guardians, and the Toymaker as well, but, but anything that... Um, these types of beings, in that you might think, what's wrong with having beings of great power that are not Time Lords, because you could have something like the Animus, or the, the Great Intelligence, or the, the Nesting Conscious, and they're not Time Lords, and, and yet they're very, these formless things that exist. You know, like the Great Intelligence, formless, shapeless thing, like floating about time and space like a cloud of mist, and yet with a mind of will, with a mind and will, as the Doctor says in The Whip of Fear, more or less. And I agree, there's nothing wrong with that. The Guardians aren't like that. They're these beings that show up, um, that look like people. They look, in terms of their dress, and they might have funny hats and such, kind of funny hats and such, but they look like Time Lords. They masquerade sometimes like Time Lords. The White Guardian masqueraded to, to recruit Romana, like a, a pair, at one point he, he showed himself, she thought that she was being um, uh, dispatched to help the Doctor by the President of the Time Lords. And yet it's the White Guardian. Guardians have appeared usually in connection with Time Lords. They look like Time Lords. They act like Time Lords when you think about it. They occupy a space uh, in the series which pretty much the Time Lords should occupy. Uh, they just come at a point in the series where the Time Lords have been depowered, so they kind of take that place. But the, my problem is, beings of that power, I, would, I wouldn't have so much trouble if, if, if we actually knew what they were. <laughs> Are they spirits? Are they entities? Are they artificial intelligences? Are they, are they um, aliens from a planet, another planet? Are they f aliens from another beings from another dimension? We have zero context of what they are. Zero context. Even now, not too much. In fact, now it's probably a little more muddled, with more recent events in the audios and such. But um, so I take the RTD approach, which is. Doctor Who tends... You can have as much as you want, beings as much as you want, but you tend to have at least an idea of what they are. A planet of origin, a dimension of origin, a plane of origin. We don't have that for the Guardians. They're just a couple guys, in the con originally in the context, these two guys that show up, white and black, it's very simple, but in the context of, of, of such a, con of a concept, it's almost like, well, the ultimate good and the ultimate evil in the Doctor Who universe. And yet we never see them. And we don't know what they are. Um, and for me, I like to have mysteries, but I like to have a mystery where I can solve it. They're an unsolvable mystery. It's just these beings that show up. Um, and a lot of people I've known that like would like to write a story, they would say, well, let's have the Time War and the, and the Guardians could show up and then snap their fingers and get involved. And think, well, sure, they could, but why don't they? because they're so ridiculously overpowered and in a certain way almost diffusely underpowered 
that they really, in a way, in my opinion, almost don't fit into Doctor Who. It's like Doctor Who is a subset of, a, of another story whenever the Guardians show up. Because they clearly have a race or some type of history, a rivalry, technology, the key to time and such. Um, and also such power. Um, the Black Guardian pursuing the Doctor and such. That he's... and. and the audios have shown him pursuing the fourth Doctor on multiple occasions. I've never liked the, this another element that frustrates me of the Black Guardian is that the White Guardian has to show up and help because it almost feels like the Black Guardian is so... so enigmatic and otherworldly, even for Doctor Who and Time Lords, that you need someone like him to show up and then help the Doctor. I've never liked that. I will say that. I've never liked the idea that there's this foe out there that maybe the Doctor can't fight, but maybe he can. And yet he needs, without asking, he needs this other being to just show up and then do something. And you don't know what that being is. I'm talking about the White Guardian. Um, and so, I feel pretty passionately about this. This is one of the obscure, not quite obscure, but one of the niche elements of the of the Hooniverse, the cosmology of Doctor Who, that I feel needs some normalization. Um, and I feel that that the best way to do it is to reveal that they are Time Lords. <laughs> and so I've got, I know it's a little long tangent about this, but, but that's the Easter egg, and it reveals kind of the whole pocket universe in my mind, so to speak, of what Doctor Who is. It's my way of fitting the Guardians into their cosmology, because like I said, there's so many things that just make a lot more sense if they are Time Lords. Because if you say, okay, well, they're not Time Lords, then I say, what are they? Oh, they're Guardians. What are the Guardians? Oh. Uh. Then that's the problem. As if you disassociate them and say oh, they're not Time Lords, then what else do you say except, well, they're the guys that made the key to time? Okay, well, what can you tell me about them? You can't say a thing. They are just these plot devices. And a mystery might be very interesting, but then, in my opinion, you've got to explain it. But my, again, my problem is that Doctor Who is too saturated with Time Lord mythology, um, in my opinion, really to allow this superset of beings, these Guardians of Time, the Great Old Ones, whatever. They can exist. I'm not saying they can't exist. Um, but even amongst things like the Old Ones, which tend to be these formless things, the Guardians still don't quite fit because they appear to have bodies. When they clearly have a form that's very humanoid, and and I should say, why do I think that they're time lords? What a th let's just say, what evidence do I have that they're time lords beyond their often meddling with the Doctor? Well, if you include the toy maker, which I do, um, the original intention of the toy maker is that he was. I'm not saying the original intentions have to be the overriding um, authority and explanation, but in this case, the original intention is that the toy maker is a, is a time lord. Seriously, it was. Um, the production team at the time, it was their intent that when they introduced this toy maker who precedes the, the, the white and black guardians, Doctor Who, by about a, oh, more than a decade, by about a dozen years, um, they never say so on screen, but you know, privately it was the intention that they were treating him like he was one of the Doctor's own people. A very ancient, ultra-powered, you know, time war that's using all of his abilities. Um, but he's so ancient and perhaps has forgotten who he is or at least he is so overpowered like maybe Omega he he can't exist within the normal realm of, of time and space for too much that's why he has his own realm the Celestial Toy Room which again even in the 12th Doctor's era I'll just say this there's a story where the 12th Doctor 
meets the toy maker. And the toy maker's realm, the, the celestial toy room, toy room, is breaking down. And the doctor, just because, because he's compassionate, he saves the toy maker. And how does he restore the, the toy room? By, inter, by, by, by replacing it, essentially, with um, a, por a portion of the TARDIS. Compatible technology. The toy room is very much compatible with Time Lord technology. Because the toy maker, not because, but, and, and also, the toy maker was originally intended to be, and it's never been revoked, a Time Lord. Or at least, in the Hartnell context, one of the Doctor's own people. Just like the Doctor, just like Susan, just like the monk. Um, and so, I think there is enough evidence to say that. It gives them context. It allows the things like the Guardians to fit into the cosmology of Doctor Who because it's no longer just a couple beings that show up the, as a plot contrivance. I'm not, I'm not trying to slight Graham Williams who created the Guardians or any authors that have used them since then, but let, being very honest, they are these kind of weird cipher beings that just show up whenever you want to use the key to time or something or to have the Black Guardian attack the Doctor. But like I said, this it, it, it gives them that context in that if you don't have um, some type of context of the, to the Guardians. What stops the Black Guardian from attacking the Doctor over and over and over again? And what would explain why we haven't seen him since the Peter Davison era? Something to think about. So yes, the first High Council are the Guardians. How do they become the Guardians? Well, that's a whole other story which, yes, at least in terms of back history, yes, I have um, created. I have connected. And that's definitely for another time. But a little Easter egg that reveals a pocket universe, like I said. Um... And so, uh, but all this explains certainly that it allows me to bridge, to a certain extent, the pre-Hinchcliffe era to the post-Hinchcliffe era, to the Hinchcliffe and post-Hinchcliffe era of Doctor Who in their portrayal of Time Lords, where they always say that if we want, if we know how to use these things, we are limitless in our abilities. And which connects with how the Twelfth Doctor describes himself and what I believe in terms of Doctor, the Doctor's abilities and Time Lord's abilities, which is that they can do anything. And not just simply with their wits, but anything. And that means if the Doctor wanted to become a rain cloud, he could. If he wanted to shoot lightning from his hands, he could. If he wanted to set himself on fire and completely survive, he could. If he wanted to throw himself into um, a sun or a black hole to get to reach the core of the sun and access his powers, good. I know it sounds... Oh, that sounds... That sounds almost ludicrous, but that's the whole point. This is fiction, science fantasy. And I honestly feel that we've only just, just like the human brain only uses a few percentages, less than 3% of its own capacity, or a few percent of its own capacity. I'd like to think that that's a little bit how the timelines are. Most of them only use a fraction of their capacity, including the doctor, but for, by choice, and maybe by f discovering who he is. And that's, that's therefore timelines that you see on screen in the early years of Doctor Who. Who knows that they have their full powers, but they are aware. This elite section of the Time Lord Society, they are aware, maybe even more so than things people on the High Council or such. They are aware of their history, much more than the average, oh, far more than the average Time Lord. It explains why someone like Spandrel thinks that the Eye of Harmony doesn't exist by the era of the, um, of the Deadly Assassin. You certainly have a society that was so decadent and degenerate that they decayed to the point of stagnation and petrification. They don't know anything about themselves. They just they simply exist. The, boor, the crushing boredom of eternity, as the Sixth Doctor refers, uh, cites in The Twin Dilemma. These, the, they are a race that, whether by design or simply by extension of, of existence, 
So by nature, they've forgotten in ways who they are. But not all of them. And the Master's discovered some of these, these powerful abilities. Well, once the Doctor resolves to um, stop the Master, of course, we have a visitation by Slypneer, and I've already referenced that she is a Time Lord from the first couple episodes of the final game. And um, we have a neat little moment, which is the Doctor... I have mentioned already that I, I wanted to, just for fun, feature the Doctor throughout these episodes in every costume that he wore in the television stories after Roger Delgado's final appearance, so after Frontier in Space. So, when the uh, briefly, for example, when in the prologue of Part 1, he's wearing his costume from um, from the Planet of the Spiders. Excuse me, Planet, Planet of the Daleks. And then in progression, the costume from the Green Death, the green, you know, the green outfit, Time Warrior, the outfit from Invasion of the Dinosaurs, the outfit um, from Death to the Daleks, which is the only one I think that's expli not explicitly stated, but you see on the cover of Part 3. And he's wearing it, by that outfit by Part 3. He changes in that costume um, after changing his jacket, after working on creating the Temple Transmat connection between the, his TARDIS and the Daleks' transmat machine in their, in their saucer their scout machine. Um, here we have an explicit change of costume into his monster Peladon costume, which is, and I love it. I'm sorry that it only had one appearance, but the deep, um, the deep emerald um, um, uh, jacket. Beautiful costume. I, lo I love that costume. From It's a shame that I'm grateful that he has him. It's a shame that uh, right at the end of his time, uh, Pertwee's doctor started to really expand his... Um, the vocabulary, so to speak, of his of his wardrobe, to expand the, his 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 clothing, his expressions. So it's still the same general colors, but a different shade. So a red, but then a deep red, um, a blue, but a uh, but a very very a li very light blue, like the green, but a super deep rich green. So to, and, other, and others, it's, instead of just you know the other colors, he suddenly has a scarlet, a shamrock, a purple, uh, like a royal purple. Um, emerald. And so he has emerald costume for the monster Peladon. <coughs> Excuse me. So he arrives on Gallifrey wearing his Death to the Daleks purple costume and he leaves wearing his monster Peladon emerald costume. But before he wears that, the first costume he's shown is, as we saw earlier in parts one and, and three, his, um, the first costume worn by Tom Baker. So the, the jacket and here the scarf. And I had mentioned it was um, it's, it doesn't. It's, it's kind of removed from editing, but uh, in part three, the Doctor also discovers the, doc the fourth Doctor's hat. But um, but the scarf is is explicitly mentioned, and Pertwee's Doctor gets to uh, um, offer a jelly baby to the Time Lord President. So, and it makes sense because although mostly associated with the fourth Doctor, oh, absolutely associated with him, the idea of jelly babies goes back to the Troughton years believe it was the Dominators. I think one of the stories in Season 6, he has Jelly Babies, and he certainly has them in The Three Doctors. Not on screen in The Five Doctors, but in an outtake. Uh, well, it's kind of behind-the-scenes funny business. Um, Troughton offers a Jelly Baby to Pertwee, so he's got... The simple fact is, on set in 1983, Troughton had in his coat pocket a bag of Jelly Babies. Um, so Pertwee... Um, who's never really been associated with Jelly Babies, he finds the future Fourth Doctor's uh, bag of Jelly Babies, and he offers one, so it's clear that he likes... In my perspective, he likes them. So, 
Um, but then there's this sense of, oh, no, we've got to, we've got to go. And so the uh, scene shifts from the time control on Gallifrey, the, the three doctors set, to the under levels of the capital. So it's kind of symbolic because we're at the very end of the John Pertwee years. This was intentional. I'm, I'm not trying to be clever so much as just fun and just having wonderful fun um, with this story. I thought to myself, since we are transitioning very much soon from the third to the fourth Doctor's era, let's transition from the Gallifrey set of the third Doctor's era, the three Doctors, calling space, to the fourth Doctor's era, sets of the Deadly Assassin. Uh, and so you have the same, um, you have the same uh, uh, sets there, so to speak. So at the conclu- throughout certain scenes in the beginning and the end of the Deadly Assassin. And then there's a neat little thing is that the Doctor, of course, discovers his TARDIS. And this is where his TARDIS is gone. And they explain that it's had system, uh, hostile action displacement system at the end of part three, sent the TARDIS, uh, pulled it forward and pulled it away from Earth into the one place. It was such a traumatic event. It went, the TARDIS went to the one place where it felt, quote unquote, safe because all of reality was being affected. So it returns to Gallifrey. But as another little fun foreshadow of the future, across the hallway or this passageway from the Doctor's TARDIS is a grad excuse me, a grandfather clock, and which is the Master's TARDIS. And in my mind, it is the same prop appearance as the grandfather clock of the Master's TARDIS in The Deadly Assassin. And uh, and this final, we finally get to see the Master's TARDIS. It's, we haven't seen it um, yet. And, of course, it's also revealed that it was not, that it was explicitly the Time Lords who um, got involved because they could see what the Master was about to do, and they're the ones that attacked the Master Charters, not the Daleks, as he said. That was always a lie. I think probably listeners probably knew that already. But it's explicitly shown that the Time Lords attacked the Doctor, the Master Charters, but what it reveals is that the Master Charters was not destroyed. It was simply like the Doctor's Charters recalled the Gallifrey. But the Master escaped and sets up his um, surrender to, to Unit. And this is why he surrendered to Unit, because he realized the Time Lords are after me, so I need a place to stay. And... Um, I need to stay in one place and hide in plain sight. Um, this also sets up um, the Master's Charters being on Gallifrey. It sets up, in a small way, some of the themes of the Deadly Assassin in that when the Doctor asks Goth, because Goth reveals, yes, it was, this is my operation to attack the Master and retrieve his TARDIS and such. Uh, at least we have his TARDIS, and the Doctor asks Goth, so what will you do? And he says, I will study it to understand more about the Master and, and, and learn why he is the way he is so we can better maybe just understand renegades, so to speak. And the Doctor gives him this warning, you know, don't study the Master's secrets too much. You won't like what you find at the dark corners there. And there, plus there might be some traps. It's a thematic foreshadowing to, of course, Goth's corruption and fall and death in, at the hands of the Master in the, the Deadly Assassin. Um, and then the and so there are those connections. And then finally, the Doctor and the President, they have a brief discussion uh, away from the, the ears and eyes of the Tribunal who are with them. And, and the President um, says, Doctor, I you know, wish you luck. I should tell you that going forward, things might be difficult because after the Omega crisis, my contemporaries are questioning my leadership, you know, my leadership skills, my leadership values, my leadership position. And, uh, and I felt that that was... I added this into the story because I felt that there would be clearly repercussions against the Time Lord President for his actions in 
the three doctors, not necessarily to see on screen, but I thought it would be interesting to, since we have so many Gallifrey series now, you know, the Time War, in the Time War era, you have, um, that are made by um, Big Finish Productions, it might be interesting to do kind of a classic era um, Gallifrey series with these characters. Uh, so like my, my own little mini, mini, mini version of, of that by saying there's some political intrigue. I am my authority, my my the confidence in my leadership says the president after how I dealt with the Omega crisis is, is now in question. And our friends, our mutual friends, are the ones causing this. They're amongst the ones causing, you know, some dissent. Uh, and it gives a possible foreshadow for other events just in the sense of what will you do, says the doctor. Well, I will, def- I will follow your example and defy, and defy. And if I can't, then I will resign with dignity. And then the doctor leaves, of course, and we say goodbye to Gallifrey, at least in this episode. For the context of the story, well, who knows? But certainly for part six, for anyone who, who's listened. And so, once the doctor leaves Gallifrey, like I said, we say goodbye. It's that little era. And um, the doctor, of course, resolves to go to Earth to rescue... Um, to rescue his friends there because they are in the greater danger because he knows he can trust the Thals and for the most part and um, and certainly his Earth friends the Brigadier and others are in much greater danger because there are monsters that you really can't reason with these things so the Doctor heads there of course he's having trouble getting there a little bit slow going because of travel and the Master's new reality is getting a little hard if it's not his own will and there's this and of course what's the Master doing throughout all this um, unlike the previous episode, the Master is a little more of a background presence in Part 6. You only see him in various scenes. Um, but just speaking with the Supreme Dalek, and, um, and there is one neat little moment where the, the, the um, Supreme Dalek reveals that the Emperor Dalek, you know, because his life support system has failed, will probably die. Um, and the, the Supreme Dalek um, says we'll create a new Emperor, but the Master says, no, no, he's going to die, yes, but he'll be, he, he'll live still. And and the Supreme Dog says, this is, there's a paradox here. He says, oh, you don't need to understand. You just know that he's, that here my will is, is essentially saying that his will is, is all-powerful. So people could live or die at the Master's command once his reality is complete, his control over this reality is completely secure. A little foreshadow, that comes a little earlier than the full revelation that the Master's bound reality to his existence. Um, but he knows the doctor's not dead, and and um, just showing that the master's kind of sensing things, you know, even away from Gallifrey, he's sensing what's happening. He knows what the doctor knows, and and such. Um, the doctor, of course, is heading to Earth. Um, the the brigadier's team, of course, is they're they're pinned down by all these monsters. But then they're at, about to be attacked by an ogron. But then a Dal- Dalek fire. Um, kills the Ogron, and suddenly the Daleks say there's unauthorized Dalek fire. Um, the Daleks are destroyed, the Cybermen are destroyed, um, and as is the Ice Warrior. Um, one little thing about the Ice Warrior I should notice is that Mike Yates in, uh, identifies the Ice Warrior as, as an Ice Warrior and such. The, uh, you know, never faced the Ice Warriors in the, their own era, and I believe the novel The Dying Days, which is an Eighth Doctor novel with the Brigadier and Unit, it's in 1997, I think indicates that the, they never also fought unit during their era. And that may be the case. Um, I actually haven't read The Dying Days. It's one of the novels I haven't read. But um, I have to get to it someday. But I'm aware of it. 
But um, I figure that Mike Yates, there's a little niche, niche little era in the Third Doctor's life where um, the, Mike Yates travels with the Doctor as a companion. Um, so it could be that Mike, um, the uh, unit in that era, faced the Ice Warriors. There was an Ice Warrior story proposed, I think, for Season 8, um, where the Ice Warriors would have attacked Earth using a, a Z-beam, I think the British called a Z-beam, which a beam of energy which would turn humans into into zombies. Um, that was never made, um, but it would have been written by Brian Hales, but elements of it um, make its way into the Peladon stories, where the Ice Warriors show up in the Pertwee era on screen anyway. So that's another lost story, and perhaps one could have that unit could face the Ice Warriors. Um, so it's a little nod to that, and also a nod to the fact that, like I said, that I, Mike Yates um, was a companion of the Doctor, a traveling companion for a, for a time. And um, the genesis of that goes back to Time Lash, believe it or not, the Colin Baker story, television story Time Lash, which is a, itself a sequel to um, uh, an unseen Third Doctor adventure. In that story, we know that the Third Doctor visits the planet Carfell. Um, we see a picture of John Pertwee's Doctor. He has his companions, which one? Um, we, there's a locket which shows a photo of Joe Grant. But one of the characters, oh, well, it's been such a long time, but dialogue indicates that the Doctor, the Third Doctor, was traveling with at least two companions, because they refer to Perry as saying, oh, you're traveling to the Sixth Doctor, you're traveling with just one person this time. Well, when did the first, the Third Doctor travel with more than one person? An interesting, perhaps at the time, mis misremembering of continuity, but of the era, but it, it allows for new adventures. And then I think it was the Virgin novels um, in the 1990s, the past Doctor adventures that um, indicated, revealed that that second person was Mike Yates. They never... That particular story was never novelized. But in the novel um, uh, Speed of Flight, the Doctor is traveling with Joe and Mike, and they're intending to get to Carfell. They never make it in that story, but at the end of that story, they they go there. Or at least they intend to go there. Uh, that's another story that the Big Finish Audios, I think, should uh, should tackle. But um, perhaps during those adventures, they had an adventure with the Ice Warriors. In any case, Mike is aware of who the Ice Warriors are, and the Brigadier doesn't ask who, so... In my mind, sure, why not? The Ice Warriors should be able to show up the back then everyone else did. Um, um, but um, someone's killing the, the several of these these monsters with, with the Dalek weapons. It's not a rogue Dalek, but it's Sam Jackson. Um, um, the Prime Minister, Jeremy Thorpe's um, right-hand man, his main bodyguard, or his main... His main um, uh, associate. Um, he's still alive, and he reveals, of course, he survived the purge, essentially. He, he'd appeared in the first three episodes, and the reprise to part four, but we haven't seen him really in part four and five. It's really since the end of part three, and he reveals that, yes, Thorpe's men were killed, but, and he says it with some, frust you know, some begrudging frustration, maybe, that oh, I'm probably too stubborn to die. Um, he said, I wanted to die, seeing all my men being killed, but I survived and hid myself in the armory and found a Dalek gun. And so he's got a weapon, and he's able to fight some of the monsters, but there's so many now. And he only has just the one. But, again, using the continuity of, of objects in this story, Liz has um, the the override device that the Doctor and the Master created from Part 2. He let her keep it in Part 5. And so she uses a widespread beam to 
alter and override the Dalek systems just enough. It doesn't destroy them, but just enough that it, it uh, addles them, it uh, confuses them, and the Brigadier and his party plus Jackson make it to the Humobile and escape. And in their escape, they activate the cloak and are on their way. Um, the Brigadier, it's a funny little comedy, the Brigadier says, on, oh, how do we find JoJo? <laughs> and then she calls them. She calls them, just like the doctor predicted. She's probably already looking for you. Well, Joe calls, so it contacts on, the, on a unit frequency. And so um, we have the return of Joe Jones. And um, she reveals that she's at Unit HQ, and you wonder, how did she get there? Well, it's a mystery for a slightly later. But they make contact, and so we return to Unit HQ. Meanwhile, on Scarrow, Sarah's party has is is made headway. They've all woken up, they meet with Tarbeck, and he reveals, as I talked about earlier, his parentage, Tauron and Rebek. Um, and he says, well, we, we, you're too, we, our, our position is too precarious, we'll have to silence you. Oh, no! And But as soon as Sarah Jane shows, even though they said, they've announced themselves and said that they are friends of the Doctor, and Tarbeck refers to the Doctor of Legend, the first Doctor, the Doctor of Memory, the third Doctor, he says, well, we still have to silence you, it's too great a risk. But once Sarah shows some fear, concern for her safety, um, another... Thal appears and says, no, we're not going to kill you. We had to make sure they are not Dalek duplicates. And this other Thal is Lotep. Um, played by um, David Llewellyn Malatesta. Um, did a wonderful job in recreating the voice. Of the Oh, and I, I'm trying to remember. I've been saying their names, so I might as well. The name of the original actor who played Lotep in Planet of the Daleks, who was a precursor love interest to Joe Grant before Cliff um, Jones in the following story, The Green Death. Lotep was originally played by um, an actor, Alan Tucker. Now here played um, by, um, um, uh, like I said, David uh, Luella Malatesta. And I believe that Lotep's name itself is, a, is an anagram of Patel. Um, I'd have to look it up. I believe that there was a, there was a character, oh, maybe someone... Might as well look it up, um, just for the fun of information. Um, I'm looking at this information right now. So, just one moment. Oh yes, just simply that the character was called Petal, not Pat Patel. I was thinking Patel, like perhaps uh, someone maybe of Indian or Pakistan or Pakistan origin, but uh, Petal. Um, but Patel, I remembered also in a way correctly. There is a character Patel on the uh, Moon Penal Colony in Frontier in Space, and originally Latep would have been named Petal. But um, to avoid confusion, they they made uh, reverse the name to Latep. So Latep returns, and I. To say that um, was originally going to have, I was all, I was always going to have a character, kind of another character, um, connecting back to Planet of the Daleks. Um, and originally, I was thinking it would be Kodal. And Kodal is another is he has a and the reason why it would have been Kodal is Kodal um, is a character from that story. Um, for accuracy, I'll look up the original name, original actor, um, played by the actor Tim Priest. 
Um, because Kodal has a much larger role than Lotep does in um, Plan of the Spiders. Lotep comes, comes in some of the later episodes, but you remember him more than Kodal because he has the budding romance with Joe Grant. But Kodal is, is a larger role in that story. So originally I thought, okay, I'll have Kodal return. Um, paired with the um, son of his fellow Thal soldiers, you know, or scientist soldiers, um, Rebek and Terran. But I thought to myself, yes, but Kodal would be nice, and he has a larger role, but he has less of a, an emotional connection um, to the Third Doctor and Joe Grant than um, Latap has. And, I, and I, what, maybe, what, what swayed me also was I thought, if I'm bringing back Joe Grant... Um, she hasn't. She wouldn't recognize Kodal, but she would have a, a more of an emotional reaction, a two-way emotional reaction between her and Lotep. So I thought, okay, it's going to be Lotep. So sorry, Kodal, you would have appeared here, but the uh, I guess it's uh, a balance. You have the the larger role in the television story, but um, Lotep has the more remembered character, so we'll give Lotep the more um, his fan due and give him a larger role here. Oh, I just mentioned Kodal. He would have. He was the original candidate to appear in this story. Um, but Latip returns, and they're not sure about should they attack the Daleks because they're so they're still so powerful and, the, and they've in this timeline they've really ravaged and 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 uh, um, overrun the, the Thals. But Thorpe fulfills his function, the story of being a very persuasive man, and he says, look, the, the doctor's here, if you know the doctor, we are here, here in his name, we, ex we have explained why the doctor's not here, but we hope he's alright, but the doctor's already done much of the work for you, he's destroyed the Daleks' armory, he's stranded them in their city, he's, he's breached the city walls, he's incapacitated their leader, the master, um, so now is the time to strike, so Tarbeck and, and Latep, they decide, yes, you're right, so let's, we'll attack them. So, this group is now going back to the Dalek City. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the, the, um, the Brigadier and his party returns to the remains of Union HQ, where we are reunited with Sergeant Osgood, who makes his full, first full appearance in this, in this story. He had a brief appearance through the radio, uh, talking with Benton in, episode, in Part 2, but now he makes his full appearance. And, um, and he returns, and so, and this this character is played by uh, Stephen McGrain, um, who does a wonderful job, in my opinion, of, of recreating recreating the character. Um, as originally played by, oh, let's see, I'm trying to remember Tom Osgood, and Tom Osgood was played by Alec Linstead, here played by Steve McGrain. Um, the character first seen in the Daemons, and whose daughter Petronella Osgood is, has appeared several times in the um, in the new series, in, in uh, along with Kate Stewart, the Brigadier's daughter. So we have a lot of daughters around in the doc in the unit now. Uh, but in this era, of course, their fathers are still running unit or helping. And um, Osgood, his technical skills are referenced by Joe. And blanketing and blocking the Dalek signals and frequencies so that they have a bit of a safe haven there in Unit HQ. They don't know how long it will last. Also returning are the uh, unit um, ladies, the unit um, ladies trio of um, Corporal Bell, Corporal's Bell, and Hawk, and uh, Lieutenant or Lieutenant whatever Thompson. 
and um, they've survived the the Dalek um, invasion of then present day Earth. Um, and we establish this at least a week, maybe about ten days after the Daleks have arrived, and we find out where Joe is, and Joe is has been waiting, and she's been there about three three or four days at UNHQ, and the doctor and she's been waiting in the doctor's lab. And uh, she reunites with the Brigadier and, and uh, Yates. Um, and again, she also reunites with Liz Shaw. She's met her before. In the context of when I wrote this story, when I wrote this script, I made the decision that Liz and Joe would have met already. On my own, had there been no story at all that would, had, would have said that, I would have said that anyway because I thought it makes sense if... If Liz is around on present day Earth and the Doctor's around, that they'll 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 probably have crossed paths at some point. But there's also a third Doctor novel called The Wages of Sin, um, where the um, the Doctor takes Liz on a trip in the TARDIS back to um, um, uh, Russia, pre pre uh, um, revolution Russia, um, and to meet uh, Tsar Nicholas and Rasputin and such. Um, so Liz and Joe know each other there, um, but, and then retroactively, even earlier, now you have a story before, and it was announced after I wrote this script, um, the third Doctor Audio Adventure Primord, from the third Doctor Adventure Series 5, where Liz and Joe meet, I'm not sure when it takes place, I think it takes place some... Oh, man, it might take place, I think, in early Season 9. I think it's after Day of the Daleks. I could be wrong about that. But in any case, um, so Liz and Joe have met. So it's just nicely in line of, in the, with the audio's continuity and the book's continuity that Liz and Joe know each other. And, and one of my favorite moments in this story, when the Brigadier arrives, at first Joe thinks, it's, the Doctor says, Oh, Doctor, and says, Oh, it's Brigadier. And the Brigadier says, I hope we haven't disappointed. She says, Oh, no. Not at all. I'm, and I have to see you and see you, Mike, and everything, and Liz. And she says, I just wish the doctor were here. I, I feel so much, just as much, just so safe to know that if you were here. And the doctor arrives right then, and he says the wonderful line, Yeah, wish is my command, my dear. Uh, I can just picture Pertwee coming out of the TARDIS in 1974 with Joe there. And and I'm trying to think how Joe might look. Uh, very, if, if anyone's wondering, what does Joe look like? Well, in this era, I like to think, of course, she looks... It's only a year or so later since her leaving, the, maybe about 18 months after leaving the Doctor. But um, in my mind's eye, she looks re- pretty much like she did in The Green Death, except um, a little bit, the very beginnings of of how she looks in the Sarah Jane adventures. So maybe instead of her her little boas, she has maybe something like the the the, the shawl, maybe an, an, a, a, South Af- a South American shawl that she might be wearing, or something like that that she wore in Death, Death of the Doctor in the Sarah Jane Adventures. So, the age of the Green Death with some of the clothing, uh, or similar clothing to Death of the Doctor. And, um, and of course, you know, that. and then this point is just wrapping up the storylines, um, but we have a main, kind of an important moment, which is foreshadowing events in Planet of the Spiders. Joe describes how she survived. She's, she, she describes how, you know, how... In this time of she, that uh, Cliff was killed, she and um, Cliff, Cliff Jones, her husband, um, from the Green Death, um, played by Stuart Bevan, who does not appear in this story, but uh, um, he's definitely a presence for Joe. They were on the Amazon River, which makes sense. I just think that why not be there? Um, and 
and the Daleks arrive. So the image in your head of Dalek golden saucers, as she says, with these saucers that appear in the skies, as all, similar to what Oscar's describing, they blot out the sun, they just start bombarding the planet, and so the skies are filled with ash and, and, and radiation and, and storms. And Joe and Cliff are on a boat, and, and she describes the Daleks rising like floating bodies, and that was a, it's kind of a reference, a little bit like I said earlier, like in part two, uh, this confidential series, so I described that I wanted an image of the Daleks breaking through nature in some way. The Daleks, in a way, defy nature. So, in stories like the Dalek Invasion Earth, when the Dalek rises from the Thames, or the chase that rises out of the, the Iridius Desert, and then in earlier in the series, it, it breaks through um, a wall of ice. A little bit like the Ice Warriors, but it breaks through the ice. I have the same, similar idea, just rising again out of water. So these floating Daleks, like floating corpses, these almost undead creatures, unnatural creatures, floating in the water, and they just they, Cliff throws her uh, Joe off the boat that, where they are, where they are, and he's killed. <clears throat> and then Joe is ne nearly captured herself, but she describes how she uses the blue crystals, the one thing she has from the Doctor, their, their wedding gift, wedding gift, and she uses it, thinks of the Doctor, and she's thinking, she's hoping that maybe he will come to her, but instead she ends up back at Unit HQ closest she could do at that time, because the Doctor's not around. Um, she doesn't understand how it happened, and the Doctor says he doesn't, and maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Who knows how much he actually knew about that crystal, but but um, it's a foreshadow to the events of Planet Spider, so I, I don't explain it, because those are properties and elements of that that plot device, that object, that aren't explained until the next story. So they have a purpose here, but they just add to the mystery of what's about to come. Um, and of course the Daleks then attack, and because they've detected the Doctor's TARDIS arrival, and they attack, and then you start to have a bloodbath. Here and also on Scarrow, a lot of the side characters and small and and major minor characters are just slaughtered. Um, and I really wanted to give that sense of you know, raising the stakes, so bringing back, like you had in Part 5, this action, and this the action part of the story. But then it's just a real sense of, of apocalyptic um, cataclysm. Um, Lieutenant Thompson, Lieutenant Thompson, Samantha Thompson's killed. Maisie Hawk is killed. Carol Bell is killed. Osgood, they're trying to escape it. Osgood says, we get here, get out of here, I'm going to fight it off, and he has a gun, he just starts firing um, and attacking the dogs, and he's killed. That buys everyone time to escape in the Doctor's TARDIS. Meanwhile, on Scarlet, the bloodbath, a parallel bloodbath continues, in that the, um, the... Assault crafts, the stealth, uh, the Thala stealth crafts are about to attack the the Thalic city, and we have a nice little moment where Sarah Jane kind of has her slight moral qualms about the fact that she's taking part in a in a in a bombing raid that's going to be using chemical and um, bacterial weapons to attack the uh, the Daleks. I like to think it's some of the same bacteria that we saw on like Planet of the Daleks, um, but I don't dwell on this too much just because. The story has to continue, but the sense of yes, we understand it's very barbaric, but it's it's, it's our only chance. But then, of course, by the time they've reached there, the the master and the Daleks have repaired the the, the city's defenses, and they're hit, and the and the convoy, the the stealth crafts are being hit, hit by these energy dispersal, essentially EMP uh, missiles. Um, and why doesn't it just outright destroy them? Because the master has asked. The Supreme Dalek, he's ordered the Supreme Dalek. I should never say asked, he has ordered him, certainly, in his very charming way. He's ordered the Supreme Dalek to keep the Doctor's companions alive. Um, so they aren't automatically killed, but they are certainly incapacitated. Um, 
But then, of course, the master showing this more ruthless side to Delgado, saying, just destroy the other ones, just fire all the weapons. I want the Thals, you know, wiped out. So he's just committing genocide at this point. Because um, the other the other stealth um, machines, um, ships, they turn away to escape, but then they just are being slaughtered. And um, the survivors of, Thals, of, of the Thal ship with uh, Lotep and Tarbik in included... Um, they witness, it's a very kind of harrowing scene, they witness the, the bombardment of the forest and the, and the ex total extermination of the Thals. So again, kind of foreshadowing the ancient days of what was, what were the Khaled's cry, total extermination of the Thals. And, um, the, the lines, my people, my people, murderers, murderers, as Tarbeck says, um, my people, my friends, as Latep says, and the, and, and then Thorpe, Wonderfully stated by by, by um, the numb statement by as Mark uh, McManus wonderfully portrayed is this the sense of Thorpe seeing even though he's allied with the Doctor and everybody and he's not a part of this he's certainly feeling the weight of a sense of responsibility maybe guilt maybe even shame of just seeing that I, I ha I was helping I helped to bring this about I'm not a part of this now so I'm not doing this he's not so mel not melodramatic maybe a little melodramatic but not so so emotional, not so attached that he thinks I am responsible for this, but he certainly is, there's a numb feeling of, these are the fruits of some of my actions. Um, so they witness the, from a distance the, the, the genocidal extermination of the Thals. And again, as I've said earlier, Sarah Jane, I think in this, in my mind, this solidifies for her the moment of where she realizes that the Daleks are absolute depraved, corrupt, evil monsters. Um, and I felt that this was imperative due to, to allow Sarah Jane to see things that you might not have seen directly on too much on screen in the Pertwee era. Just total extermination and, and death and destruction, which also continues in, in the immediate sense, because you could see oh, many, many people killed. But if you don't see them actually killed, you might note they're being killed, but it may be very scary and harrowing. But something else happens is in the immediate, which is the Master has ordered the Doctor's friends to be um, ca uh, captured, and Lotep as well, but all the other Thals, including Tarbek, this wonderful line, do, the Master says to the Supreme Dalek, do what you do best with the Thals, exterminate them. And so there's this wonderful moment, it's wonderfully designed by Gareth, where the Thal, the, um, the the this the doll the lead Dalek not the supreme Dalek but the lead Dalek that's gone to capture the, the companions. Um, this is all the humans will be will be taken. And uh, Tarbeck says we'll, we'll we'll fight you the or so he, he he defies the Daleks and then there's the Dalek it's like almost dark humor says Thals are not humans exterminate. Um. And then they're just several and just showing it's not just. Lotep and Tarbek there, although Lotep is spared for the moment. But it's not just Tarbek who falls, but maybe a dozen other um, Thals on, on set, so to speak, in the scene. And um, not including, I should say, not including the, the female voice uh, on, the, on the Dalek ship, that, on the Thal ship that says they're approaching the city. That's uh, actually a, a computer, <laughs> a Microsoft computer. There was a line of Dalek that was um, meant to be spoken, but... Um, I actually missed it and didn't give it to the actors. Um, I think it was supposed to be for Tarbeck, but that was my fault. 
Uh, it may have been for Latif, actually. I can't remember which one, but it's not their fault that they didn't catch it. It's my fault. I, I didn't send it to them. Um, and so we thought, well, it's just a small line. It's fine. But then Gareth had the wonderful idea of of, of using um, a Microsoft um, uh, the speech system. So you, you can have certain... There's a feature in, in a lot of laptops where you can just read things on a page through but through the computer. And so he was able to add a little bit of effect and then we have a, a an onboard computer on the ship. So that actually is a computerized voice. We have a it's it's just a Microsoft his his computer. Um but um but the but a, a lot of thals are just exterminated at once, just slaughter, just a complete slaughter. And it's that, it's the distant bombardment, but then the very personal, up close and personal uh, wholesale slaughter. Execution, slaughter, extermination of, of the Thals. That solidifies Sarah Jane's opinion and her, her conviction that the Daleks are inhuman, um, killing monsters. And I felt that that was expedient to do because, as I said before, Sarah Jane's um, two meetings with the Daleks on screen in the classic era. Three, if you include the very interesting, glorious oh, Goldwood, or what I think it was called, um, uh, audio adventure that, that felt featured just a little bit slain back in 1974 where she faces some dogs. It's a very strange story because you also I mentioned this already of Agador and the American Cavalry. Uh, it's very strange. But um, in but certainly in the two television stories in the classic era where Sarah Jane faced the Daleks in the first story, Death to the Daleks she faces the Daleks at their lowest point. At their weakest point. Not their worst, but their weakest. Because they're depowered. And they're locked up with her in a prison cell. But that by the time you get to Gen Genesis of the Daleks, she is saying that they are the most evil, ruthless, monstrous beings in the galaxy, and they should be destroyed. She is advocating uh, a benevolent, so to speak, or necessary genocide. I thought, how do you go from, oh, those things over there? Well, they don't seem so difficult to, we must commit genocide. And I thought, you've got to have a thing where she sees them committing genocide. And so that was the that was I felt an an, an expedient moment and purpose that she would see, just wholesale slaughter, unthinking, cold, unfeeling, ruthless, wanton slaughter by the Daleks. Um, and so these companions are taken, plus Lotep and Lotep was spared. And I originally I should say that I ha was going I thought that Lotep would would have been killed as well, but then I realized if I have if I have Joe. And I have Lotep. Um, I was thinking, not so much he's going to be killed, but the logical situation is that he would be killed too. So I thought, I want Joe and Lotep to meet at some point. Otherwise, why have Lotep there in a story with Joe? So I realized, well, it would make sense that the Master has a chance, because he's intending to use his machine um, with the blue crystal, if he is able to acquire that it from the Doctor, to test his powers uh, to control the minds of humans. But it would also make sense to have, um, um, as a test subject, also a Thal, to make sure that, um, and for his own ego, that he can exert his control over all life. And he happens to have two humanoid species there, so let's keep a specimen. So that's how Lotep survived, but no one else. Um, and then, of course, it all culminates in that the Doctor is traveling with the other team, the Earth team, essentially. Um, I have a nice little moment where you know, they're having trouble navigating through the through the vortex, and I have a nice little moment where the where Joe says, "Doctor," people are saying, "Oh my goodness, Doctor, why are we traveling? It's so hard." And <laughs> the British says, "Can't you control this thing or get under control?" And the 
and Sam Jackson says, preferably before I, I lose my stomach. Um, and Liz, of course, is wondering why is this happening, and the Doctor explains it's traveling in the Master's new reality. And Jill has a nice line. She says, Doctor, if this is how you're traveling these days, I want to get off. <laughs> and um, that's a reference back to Terror of the Autons, um, part four, a very funny line where um, after the Master has captured the Doctor and Joe and taken him to the quarry, um, at the end of the story, the Doctor's trying to escape, and he says, if I could just reach the brake pedals. And he's using that to, to uh, alert the the unit uh, men, the brigadier and such, who are, he knows are watching, to use, like, Morse code. Uh, the flashing lights of the brakes. And, but Joe at first thinks, before she knows that, she thinks that the doctor's going to try to maybe drive, essentially. She says, Doctor, if you're going to drive, I want to get off. <laughs> Wonderful little line. It's actually really, really funny. So I thought, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. Um, and so that something like that appears in in here, the final game, part six. Um, but of course, the master appears on the scanner, and he he threatens the lives of the companions that he ha that in, the doctor's companions that he has, the master has, in, um, as hostages, as prisoners. Um, and he says, if you don't if you don't materialize your TARDIS here, because they were going to materialize anyway, but somewhere else, a strategic position, who knows, and attack the master. He says, if you don't materialize in my lab. By the time I count to three, your companions will be dead by the time I count to four. The members of your entourage, as he calls it, calls his entourage, the doctor's entourage. The doctor agrees, lands the TARDIS, takes the blue crystal, and he has the doctor stand close while the others stand a distance away. He says, I want you close to see the full effect of your failure. And this is a wonderful moment where the master inserts the crystal and enters his machine, and he gets to say a line of dialogue that very clearly foreshadows um, um, other masters' similar dialogue in later stories, mainly um, um, uh, Logopolis and The Sound of Drums, where he says, people of the cosmos, please attend carefully, um, which is similar to, it's kind of in a, uh, quote-unquote, you know, uh, descending order of, of, of import not importance, but scale, Slightly differently, Ainley says, Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. And Sim says, Peoples of the earth, please attend carefully. I just wanted to... I thought, okay, you've got some of the more prominent, uh, long-lasting masters saying this line. I want Delgado to sing this line, too. So, Peoples of the cosmos. I want to say... And also differently. I didn't want to say Peoples of the universe. I wanted to make it a little different. Peoples of the cosmos, please attend carefully. And then he says, I am the master, and you will obey me. Very cool. You know, it's the stock line, but it's... it's I love the effect that... Gareth added, and the sense of he's really taking over reality. And then, of course, the companion starts responding that they, I will obey and everything. And then you have the, the climax, where the master's gloating, and he says, this, Doctor, you can't stop me. This machine is key. It only responds to my mind. And then the doctor says, then I have my answer. And he has this little speech where he says, you know, I, um... And, and he says, I have my answer. And the doctor, master says, do you think I'm a fool? He says, no, I think you're brilliant, the most brilliant mind in the world. You once said that you were my intellectual equal, res referencing back to Terror of the Autons. You also said that we are two of a kind, referencing back to the war games. I have to indulge myself a little, because I think, I, I believe the war chief is the master, but then I use it not just as an indulgence, but to lead to the next logical step, which is, you said that we are two of a kind, and maybe we are, or maybe we are one of a kind. Same, same thoughts, the same, uh, the same abilities, and the same mind. And therefore, if your mind can control the machine, and so can mine. 
And the master says, Doctor, I'm warning you. And he says, no, you have all the warnings. I have the words. Words like contact and call back to the three doctors. And Gareth was very good to ask to find and the same sound. So we have the same sound. At least the same sound of pitch. There are two different pitches. People often don't notice this, but there's the pitch of the sound of mental contact when you have two time modes involved. There's a slightly higher pitch to that very similar sound when three time modes involved, meaning the three doctors. So when the second and third doctor have their contact, that's the sound we use between the doctor and the master. But when the first doctor gets involved with that same type of contact, it's a higher pitch sound. Who knows why? Maybe just to differentiate, or maybe just was a production error, or maybe it was intended to mean, okay, when you have more minds involved, it's a greater strain. I don't know. Or maybe it's a stronger, tighter wavelength. I don't know. But, um... All these callbacks to, to the era, it's very, very, very fun. This, and the doctor is able to overload the machine. Um, not completely destroyed, but it's, it's overloaded. Um, he takes, he, the master's dazed and large, pretty much unconscious for a moment. The doctor takes the crystal. Everyone escapes the TARDIS, but not Lotep. He says, my place is here. I need to see if any of my people are still alive. So he gets to have this nice little brief reunion, reunion with Joe. And, um... And then we say, there, and, and the doctor, of course, and then he says his goodbye. So we say goodbye to Lotep. Will we see him again or not? Who knows? Um, but not for this part. The doctor escapes. The master's not, he's not happy about it, but he's not frantic because he, he still feels, oh, the doctor thinks he's escaped me. He's still within my reach. So he, he well, the, he orders the technician Dalek that I mentioned, kind of the, the successor of the Dalek, as I said, from the chase, the hesitant Dalek. <laughs> Um, probably the precursor to, like, the time controller Daleks. Um, the master... Well, that Dalek is, is stabilizing the systems. The master contacts the doctor, and everyone ha is cheering and congratulating each other, and they're very happy. I love all the laughing. The sense of, oh, euphoria. And then suddenly they're contacted by the master. The doctor's saying, well, you can't... I'm here. How are you going to... And the... What are you... Why, why are you talking to me? And the, and the master's because I'm going to... I'm going to get the crystal back. And he says, well... <laughs> How are you going to do that when I'm here and you're there? And he says, well, I have my, my uh, willing and loyal servant help me. And for a moment, Thorpe thinks it's him and saying, no, I stand with the doctor. And, and Sam Jackson agrees, in case, he says, in case everyone, anyone wonders. A little bit of self-consciousness there. But the master says, oh, my goodness. He says, oh, Jeremy, you always think you're the center of the tension. You and your little lapdog, your yapping lapdog. But no, my, my servant is, is far more loyal than you. Are you not? Captain Yates. <laughs> and then Yates suddenly enters into a hypnotic trance and has a gun. Sarah notices it. And then Yates says lines, I understand and, and I obey my master. The doctor will die. And then that's the cliffhanger. So Mike Yates, still a traitor? After all this? How does it work? How does it resolve? How did this happen? You will find out soon. This month. Because <laughs> so as far as I know, I, can, I think I can say this, although... By the time you hear this, it will be long afterwards, but from my perspective, I can say, as of now, goodness, it's now 3.14 a.m. on the 4th of May, 2020, or however you want to say, 2020, but in any case, on this day, um, we enter production of the final game, Part 7, this week. So I'm very excited, because there, and I will be definitely in contact with Gareth Severn, because there are a lot of fun little things that need a lot of very specific attention and a lot of details to making this episode the perfect climax for this adventure which is such a joy to make and to discuss well I've been talking now for oh, almost two and a half hours about two and a half hours now so um, I'm definitely 
time to go. <laughs> I definitely went on some tangents on this one. They were they were thematically involved in some of the things, but but you know it's also reflective of the length of this episode. It's a lot longer. So my goodness, I can't imagine how long am I going to talk. <laughs> if you want to, if you can stand listening to me, uh, for the final installment of the final game, Confidential, for part seven of the final game. Well, we shall see. But no matter what, thank you so much for listening again, and uh, I hope that you all enjoy. If you haven't have not yet already enjoy the listening to the final game part six and until next time uh thank you so much and uh as i said again may the fourth be with you <laughs>